it's really pleasant right now. Like it was like sixty degrees today. It was great. It was like f- nearly fifty here. You 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 got nothing over me. Eh. It didn't snow like last week or whatever was <laughs> like. <laughs> it didn't snow here l- last week, but it's going to snow this week. Like like Tuesday and Wednesday, we're going February is going to come in and punch us in the face. <laughs> yeah, you remember that? <laughs> when it's the middle of summer, you're like, I can't go outside or I'll die. Eh. I don't go outside anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> Fine, fair. Welcome to Preferred Enemies, the Warhammer 40k podcast that's all about the greater good. I'm your host, Rob. Kevin. Dennis. And Richard. And yes, we are going to be talking about the very brand new, as in just went up for pre-order, Codex Tau, or Tau Empire, to say it in full. Now, you'll notice we haven't done Gene Stealer Cults. We're probably going to hit that next time, uh, but I wanted to jump on Tau. Uh, first of all, two of us play Tau. And this is an army that's been in a major need of a revamp. Also, I'm not very good at Gene Stealer Cults, so editorial discretion. Haha. And I play Gene Stealer Cults, and I'm not very good at them either. <laughs> fair. <laughs> very fair. Uh, no, we, we will get it to Gene Stealer Cults, but I wanted to uh, get on the Tau Empire thing. And I don't know if anyone knows this, but a lot of the Tau Empire stuff has been leaked over the last couple of weeks which not just by games workshop some some naughty monkeys got their hold on got their hands on the book early and weren't good digital citizens and leaked a whole bunch of it so we're kind of playing catch up but i wanted to talk about codex tau because like this is an army where we have you know we've been slagging it for most of this edition now and for yeah, it's a good garbage. reason it, it was not good and so we're going to talk later in the show to see whether they were able to uh, pull this army out of the garbage fire. But before that, as always, news and new releases and your listener mail. And obviously we had a lot of things. This is LVO weekend. Uh, we are not at LVO, unfortunately. But uh, we, as we are talking, the final game of the LVO 40K championships is going on. Which, no surprise, Richard Siegler is in the finals. Um, <laughs> I mean, the the man's just amazing. So, uh, we'll. I don't know if we'll know. I imagine we might know who's won by the time we're done recording. But we'll we'll get to that. But so LVO, as always, uh, there's a big release, like a big preview. Now they've been rolling out digital previews for the last couple of years in lieu of being able to go to large events. Mm-hmm. But uh, they did have one, although it was not at LVO, but it was timed with LVO. It was at 10 p.m. East or 10 p.m. Pacific, which meant like here it was at midnight, and at the UK it was at 6 a.m. And that's way too late slash early to have a uh, an online preview and really be able to absorb it all. I don't think there were a lot of surprises on the 40k front. Because uh, we knew that, like, Eldar was getting new stuff, and Mm -hmm. uh, one of those things was a brand new avatar, which I will say the the new avatar is pretty sweet looking. 
Yeah, it's it's really nifty. I like that they gave him three weapon options, three head options. In my mind, though, I'm still sticking with the classic headpiece that has the fins on it, on the sides, and mm-hmm. the sword, because it looks best in my mind. I'd agree with that. The spear doesn't look bad, and that one, the spear is reminds me of the, the Forge World version, which True. I do like as well. Hand axe just looks dinky. Yeah. <laughs> now they like in the in the review or the preview they mentioned that uh, like this is the you know it's obviously it's the Wailing Doom and the Wailing Doom can can like shift forms so it whether all these different options have any different stat lines I don't know like they could what like it I, could be a purely cosmetic thing I, I think it is purely cosmetic because even when Forge World had the two different variants it did the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still, though, I, I do like the variety. I like having multiple options so that people can really customize and have fun with it. Maybe even do, like, head swaps onto other things. Like, there's a lot of room to customize this. So, uh, I I think... And I think it's really cool. And also, uh, I think Blood of Kittens, because they're actually at LVO, had a uh, they actually got to see it in, they had one in one of the model cases that GW brought for display and it's not huge it's it's much bigger than the old one but it's not gigantic it's not it's definitely not night size it's maybe a little bit bigger than armager size hmm. which i think is fair what we had before was way too small but it doesn't need to be the size of a knight so about forge yeah. world sized <laughs> yeah, I'd say it's it's probably on par with the Forge World one, and that's fine. I think the Forge World one is a is a is is a the right height for what this thing is supposed to be, which is a a big animated statue. Um, let's see, we got the we also got the new Mog and Raw, which we pretty much had guessed was coming. Yeah, I, I do like all the details on the model. I, I kind of think I still like the sculpt of the older one better, but. I'll probably pick him up and use him someday, but I'll probably hold off for a bit because there's a lot of Eldar stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I kind of noticed that, like, I didn't like the head as much as I like the old one. I like think the, that's the, exactly what it was. Yeah. Like, the cloaked, you know, hooded head just, I don't know, doesn't really work for me. So the big thing that I saw people commenting about, and, and along these lines of preferring the old one to the new one, um, the couple things that came up. One is it's the almost the exact same pose that the Death Jester is in now, so <laughs> he's it's mm. not all that unique. And while it is definitely more Eldari as far as like kind of lithe and thin, there's something about the old Magen Raw that really made him stand out because he was like chunky like a linebacker. Yeah, yeah. And, and this one it does not have that same feeling at all. Well, two things that I did not even, I don't know why I didn't register that he looks like a death jester, but as soon as you brought it up, I'm like, oh, wow, he does look like just a bigger death jester. Um, but also, if you look at him from the front and the back, the back, he does kind of still look bulky because of his backpack. Um, True. But on the front, he doesn't. So that could be where some of that discrepancy in size viewing looks. Words. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, uh, on the other hand, I will say that if you to- if you showed somebody this model and you s- and you had a list of like things to match the name to, and you said like Dark Reaper, 
this is this would match to it almost to a T. I mean, that's for sure. Yes. Yes. So they definitely got that visual down. Whether it's the visual that people wanted for Mogenroth, that's up for debate. Yeah. Uh, and then we got finally in plastic shining spears. Yeah, and those bikes look very, very similar to the um the Ranger jet bikes. I mean, they're not two person, but I mean the way the fins are set up on the bottom because they mm. they look different from the standard Guardian jet bikes. Yes. So, interesting that these two new models have similar looks. Yeah, and, you know, it's it's a little bit, not exactly, but it's a little bit along the lines of some of the the Harlequin jet bikes. It's got, like, the little mm-hmm. pop-out targeting computer and things like that. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see, like, you've got the basic theme of Eldar jet bike, but you have all these variations, and especially as they're kind of modernizing the, the model line a bit. I do like the detail of the little lance holder, like on like on one of them, you can see there's like a little gold lance holder on the side of like the top. Nice. Yeah, that is pretty cool. And yeah, so that that's just a, a neat detail. And again, they have helmetless heads for Inari because Inari don't like to wear lids. That way they can show off their individuality. And get shot in the face. <laughs> yes, it's very easy. To sh- you can be individually shot in the face. Thank you. <laughs> And then, uh, yeah, they sh- they show a shot of a lot that has all the new stuff together, including like the new Guardians, the new Avatar, the new Shroud Runner bikes, the new uh, Rangers, the new Autark, the new Dark Reapers, Magen Raw, new Jet, and the new Shining Spears. And so it's like finally. A lot of the line is in plastic. We're a long way from having everything that needs to be in plastic in plastic, but progress is being made, so I'm not going to poo-poo it. True. I mean, it's probably better that they didn't release everything at once, because then we know more will be coming maybe next year. Possibly, or even just rolled out later this year. I mean, they could do a second set of Eldar releases with tied to some campaign book or other. As long as they don't have to mm-hmm. change up the rules on units too much, they can roll out models whenever they want. And then uh, cutting over to the Kill Team world, we did get one other very cool Eldar thing, although we've only seen one little bit of it, but it is pretty cool to see that for the next Kill Team expansion for Nachmund, one side is going to be Eldari Corsairs. Which that has raised a lot of questions of are Corsairs going to get a supplement book for Eldari? And that's really going to depend on how deep a faction they make it, or are Corsairs just going to be a, a unit like squat? <laughs> well, well, like, so for example, there's, is it going to be something like the Novitiates for uh, Sisters, where it's a unit you can just drop into an Eldari army or is it going to be something where it'll have the Eldari keyword and special rules that say you can use it in a Asriani army or Drukari army or Harlequins or Inari? Like how how will you be able to use these? Because one of the things they pointed up pointed out, and they even pointed out in the page here, is they take inspiration from the Asriani, the Drukari, and other bits and bobs they picked up along the way. So it's like they're not really deeply embedded in one side or the other of the Eldari, but they borrow right. from all of them. So 
it kind of makes sense that you'd be able to play them alongside any of them, assuming you can play them in 40k and not just as kill team. I mean, I'm 99% sure they're going to release some rules for them. It may wind up being like the uh, Rogue Trader kill team, where it's like, hey, here are the rules for these specific models, and that's it. But I I would think they're... they're, It's such an easy win to put these models out and give give a data slate for 40k. True. And it could be along the lines of... They could come up with a new keyword that is akin to Agents of the Imperium. Mm-hmm. Because you've got stuff like the Rogue Traders or Inquisition, where there's not enough of them to ma- really make an army of themselves, but you can drop them into pretty much any Imperium detachment. You could easily do that same thing with like Eldari Corsairs, not counting against like Craft World or Cabal keywords, things like that. Mm-hmm. And this is a lot of theory crafting when what we've seen is one model. <laughs> right. It is a cool looking model, though. It's a very cool looking model. Well, that bird is going to break right off, though. <laughs> didn't we also have a lot of this talk when the Lone Squat came out as well for Kill Team? Well, it came out for Necromunda, which is its oh, own Necromunda. Thing. Okay, you're right. Yeah, Necromunda is its own thing, and so it doesn't really right. apply. Now, when they do come out with squats for Kill Team, then then we can have this okay. conversation. Again. Th- then all bets are off. <laughs> all bets are off. Necromunda did get a very fun trailer for Ash Wastes, which is basically going to be Mad Max Necromunda. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I, I'm, yeah, I'm excited tra- to learn more about that. <laughs> and the, the comic book style trailer that also played like something out of Borderlands was <laughs> really cool. But like Necromunda is quickly like just becoming its own ecosystem. Like, yeah, it's in the 40k universe, but it's so detached from everything else going on. So it's just it exists yeah. in its own little space. That's kind of a good thing. That is a good thing. It, I'm yeah. I'm glad to let it breathe on its own and not necessarily yes. be beholden to whatever is going on in 40k. And obviously, it has been successful enough to spawn a, basically a, like a second second edition of it and a whole bunch of sub factions and a new like spin-off game and I mean that's fantastic for for something where they didn't have to do anything with Necromunda. They could have just completely ignored yeah. Necromunda and they just basically brought it back from the dead with a vengeance and it's been very successful. So that's very cool. And then I wanted to talk a bit about the uh new chapter approved, not really getting into like a full review section, but just kind of some of the highlights. But before we do that, let's let's talk about the other big piece of news that dropped just like two days ago. <laughs> um, and this, this is gigantic and happening on the first day of LVO, something that will directly impact the LVO 40K and Age of Sigmar championships. Games Workshop, the Warhammer Events team, which let's not forget that the U.S. Warhammer events team is also headed up by Mike Brandt, I believe, formerly of the Nova Open, uh, has formed an official partnership with the International Tournament Circuit. Notice it's no longer the Independent Tournament Circuit. It's the International Tournament Circuit. To further support and champion Warhammer gaming across the world. It's early days and we'll have lots more to share over the coming months. The headline for now Taking part in official Warhammer events will earn you ITC points. So if you play in the Opens, if you play something at Warhammer World, if you, you know, anything that Games Workshop is running themselves, the, the immediate thing is you'll get ITC points for that. They, everything is basically, if Games Workshop is running it, it's an ITC event. 
they also list some of the things that will the benefits that will come. So first off, they break this into three groups. First off is for players. Uh, every participant in any ITC tournament or event, no matter how big or small, which could include everything from like RTTs at game stores, because you can get those set up as I, you can get ITC codes and earn ITC points for doing that. Uh, no, and for event, we'll have a chance to win an invitation to a special annual event and we'll even cover your travel and accommodations. There will be a host of new event types and formats on offer. So whether you're a steadfast competitive player or committed narrative player, there will be events and awards that recognize your skill and achievements. So official narrative event support, possibly friendly event support, things like that. They're going to officially support stuff like that now. We'll be amping up rewards and recognition for the hobby track with prizes equal to those on offer for gaming accolades. So Best Painted is no longer going to be relegated to like a second or third tier prize. Uh, more for champions, which uh, they say terms and conditions will apply on, on all of these. So, like, there's going to be some conditions on all of these. But for many, those com- the competitive challenge of Warhammer is the best part of the hobby. We're going to double down on rewarding p- those players' skill and dedication on the battlefield. Winners of major ITC events will be invited to compete at the official Warhammer final, where the best players in the world will get a chance to battle out for eternal glory. The first invitations will be awarded by the Las Vegas Open this very weekend. So this is now like a final invitational circuit, which that's interesting. Like LVO is not necessarily considered the final event of the ITC, or maybe it still is, but this is something new. Winners of major ITC events will receive a redeemable redeemable code for their choice of any Warhammer Age of Sigmar or 40k digital rules entitlement. If there was a book you didn't have, you just get one from Games Workshop. ITC Best in Faction winners for Warhammer Age of Sigmar and Warhammer 40,000 will receive digital rules entitlements for the subsequent calendar year for their relevant game system. So if you win Best of Faction, you get everything digital copies of everything they put out for that game system for a year. And end-of-year ITC winners, hobby track and competitive winners for Age of Sigmar and 40K will get to choose an army of their choice up to 2,000 points starting this weekend. Which, granted, that's like two people. Or three, I guess. Well, four, because I guess Sigmar has its own hobby track. So they'll be basically giving away four 2,000-point armies. And then I think this was, of all of those, because let's face it, many of those are not going to affect us in general, but this one affects everyone. Top-performing ITC finishers will have the opportunity to participate in the all-new Balanced Data Slate feedback group to help shape the future of Warhammer gaming events. So they're going to be getting the official feedback of people who have played the game at these levels to find out like what needs to be addressed, what balance issues exist, rather than just observing from the sidelines and saying, okay, yeah, that's obviously too powerful because too many people are bringing that, and obviously this army build isn't what we wanted. Talking to people like, okay, so what is it about these that are too good, and actually getting that feedback from people who aren't just like official playtesters. And then finally, more for tournament and event organizers. It falls to these mighty heroes to do the hard work of making sure the venue has a roof, the table's tons of great terrain, and the players a steady supply of caffeine. We'll make sure the appropriate organizers and judges have the codexes and battle tomes so they're fully up to date on all the units, missions, and rules needed to run a great event. Thank you. You do not understand. <laughs> like, if you have not run an event, you do not know how much is involved in making sure everybody has access to all the books so that you can make judgments on the fly. We'll be increasing the amount of terrain and other product support available. 
Now, to what level events that goes to, I don't know. But tournament organizers basically getting easy access to official terrain is a good thing. Uh, Tournament organizers will have the chance to join a TO advisory group to make sure there's a place to give feedback, learn from best practice, and ask for further help and support, which sounds like an official version of like the uh, 40k tournament organizers Facebook group. Don't ask to be on it. It's like a special invite only group, but this would be like an official GW version of that. Mm-hmm. And organizers will have the opportunity to participate in the all new balance. So they, so tournament organizers also get to be on the balance data slate feedback group. And as of course, this this is the one that's kind of weird. And this is one of our concerns when they first announced this for Warhammer Plus. And of course, Warhammer Plus members will continue to get a slew of extra event exclusive goodies and merch, such as mission cards, markers, counters, and widgets, and early registration. Finally, as we said at the start, this is just the beginning of how we plan on better supporting the Warhammer event scene. Stay tuned for plenty more news and announcements over the coming months. They give an email address to email about questions for Games Workshop support and involvement. And then they do also call out Reese and Frankie Giampapa, Reese Robbins and Frankie Giampapa, for creating and maintaining the ITC and the Las Vegas Open, the Bay Area Open, and what they've been doing for over a decade. I mean, that's that's awesome. And we know, like, we, we interviewed Reese several years ago, and, you know, he he had said that, you know, Games Workshop was definitely, had definitely been paying attention to what they were doing, and he had talked with them. So, I have to wonder how many years this whole conversation has been going on until they got to a point where they could finalize it this week. Probably, probably a while, but yeah. I, I want to give a shout out to Reese and, and Frankie, the ITC crew. They pretty much kept the 40k afloat when gw was bad guy gw and kind of took them oh, absolutely home. oh yeah no question so i mean there's a lot here there's a lot here that <laughs> that uh, games workshop has dropped on us some of this is really good and really welcome like the as somebody who has been a tournament organizer before for you know a, like a major tournament not a super major but you know still a major i mean the stuff they're offering to uh tournament organizers is fantastic i mean that's the kind of stuff you dream of even even if it's not necessarily prize support just having making sure everyone has access to the materials they need to hold quality of events because they know that how good local events are is what that's one of the things that drives people's impression of the game and it also helps aid people's enjoyment of the game so I mean, that's that's all fantastic. Uh, the prizes going to, like, winners of major events and best in faction stuff. I mean, that's cool. That's that's gravy. I mean, it's all fantastic. The fact that they're supporting, they're going to support more types of events and that, like, maybe there will be a narrative track for the ITC that gets officially supported and has ITC points. Mm-hmm. That's very cool. There are have been a couple of concerns brought up. Um, so in fact, somebody commented, um, I'm going to bring it up. Someone commented when we shared this, because, you know, the, a lot of the news was very positive. You know, a lot of the re- response was positive, but someone wrote, this is horrible. If they become official GW events, they won't allow any third party models or conversions. And obviously, we don't know what that's going to look like yet. Like, the, the, that right. is, this is very early in that. But I think there is an inst- 
an important distinction to be made here is that these are not necessarily official GW events so much as it is Games Workshop is providing direct support to the ITC. Although I do think it's interesting, as we said, the ITC is no longer the independent tournament circuit because they can't really be independent if they're partnered. Right. (laughs) Yeah, now it's Frontline Gaming's international tournament circuit. It's interesting to me because I do think, you know, the person that dropped that concern about, you know, if GW is the one controlling these events, like, you know, it, it, it takes away some of the freedom. And I think that is a valid concern. Like, I, I do think that that, you know, that is something that would be lost if that is actually what's happening. I, I have a lot of questions with, like, the mechanics of, of some of these things. So it's, it's going to all be wind up being in the execution. How much is GW actually going to be dictating tournament structures and things like that how much of it's still going to remain kind of you know quote unquote independent how is the how's the support going to work for like tos like can i set up the minimum like 12 person you know event at my uh at my local store run it once and be like okay send me all of the rules for free like you know so it's going to depend a lot on the execution of this and how like the details work out i think this is overall a largely positive thing but we just have to see. Like, I think GW has earned, in my opinion, they've earned enough credit to, like, at least get the benefit of the doubt on this. And Reese and Frankie definitely have, in my opinion. So, yeah, I don't think they would do this if it was them giving up, you know, control of their of their thing that they've created. So, I, I, I don't know. Right. I mean, yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, we've already seen the, the fact that, like, IT, now that Games Workshop has been putting out yearly mission packets... And that those have, like events have adopted those as the official missions. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- they were already moving in that direction where it's like they're p- going to provide all the tools to maintain this tournament circuit. And really, I think it like a- as of right now, though, they're not managing the as, as far as we know, they're not managing like the point system. They're not ha- managing event entry and data collation. I mean, that is still the ITC and Best Coast pairings. And we don't have an official Games Workshop ranking system. It's like they've outsourced that. And they're very clear this is a a partnership. This is not Mm -hmm. a acquisition. This is not bringing the ITC in-house. So in in that regard, it is... Not the same. Like I, I thought for a second, it's like, well, it's you know, it's it's putting Games Workshop on the track to be like Wizards of the Coast, where they have like the DCI and and maintain points like rankings. But even which is strange because like even the DCI is kind of being done away with for Magic. <laughs> like there's no right. DCI numbers anymore. But you know, it's kind of realizing that they, if they want the game to succeed, they have to take an active role in all aspects of it. And they've had for years now, they've had a very hands off with the possible exception of art boys. You know, they've had kind of a hands off approach towards tournaments. Yeah. In, in, you know, in the entire time we've been recording and it's only been in the last, you know, they, they've had more official guest support, I guess would be the way to do it. Like when we've been to LVO and, you know, Games Workshop is there and they've they've sent teams of people to do hobby shows and do like the the preview events 
and like help give price support and things like that. So that's, and like do have their own streaming team there doing commentary. It's like they've all, it's been there, but it's always still been kind of at arm's length. Like we're helping out, but we're not, we're Mm -hmm. not part of this. We're just supporting what you're doing. And this may, this draws them a bit closer in, but I still get the impression it's still, it's not complete control over it. And also knowing that Reese and Frankie are businessmen, and I think you're absolutely right. They would not give up control of this thing that they've created without having very clear terms in mind of like what they can and can't do and what Games Workshop can and can't do and will and won't do with this. Because I don't think Games Workshop necessarily wants to get into the business of micromanaging a ton of events either. And by working with a group that has already been adopted by the community has shown that they have a history of of creating solid guidelines for people to you know to follow and that people have been willing to follow those it, it absolves them of having to do a lot of that that legwork and i don't think they want to do that but they want to be successful and support it so this this is just making that support i think more official and not limited to just the couple of big events that they go to yeah no, and I think overall, like the the smaller and you know mid tier size events, which you know we kind of fall into with our event, I think we'll benefit from this. So, like selfishly, yeah, I have a positive outlook on this because, yeah, it could potentially benefit us. It could potentially make make it easier for people to attend events or get get, get prize support and stuff like that. So, but I, I do think overall, like it is good for the hobby. I think that them having an official presence in these larger events. Uh, bene- you know, selfishly, it benefits them as a company. Like they, I'm sure that they, you know, their marketing department didn't love that. Like, oh yeah, the biggest Warhammer 40k event where thousands of people show up and it's like we have no input in. So, um, right, you know, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, like I, I, I'm very intrigued with where this could go. Um, it has the potential, I think, to to potentially go badly, but I don't. I don't think GW is that company anymore. I don't think they want to mess this up. I think yeah. they like making money. So <laughs> they, uh, yeah, I think they, do. they don't want to piss their audience off. <laughs> no. Oh, no. I mean, they, they, there's, like you said, there's any number of ways this could get screwed up. And yeah. so, whereas, like, I'm very bullish on the, the intent behind it and what could possibly be very good about it. I am a little bit cautious too. And I, you know, it's, you want to make sure that this doesn't get messed up. Uh, also, one thing I would point out is when we think major event, we're thinking along the times of like ITC ranking of like minor, like RTT, GT, major, super major. Uh, when they refer to major events, I'm thinking they're like for them, a major event would be like one of the opens LVO yeah. Adepticon stuff like that. Um, so I don't think like winners of major events. I, that doesn't necessarily mean like if you won renegade open or if you win show me showdown or something, you're invited to the official Warhammer final. If you win Adepticon, right. you are absolutely invited, you know, that kind yeah. of thing. Also, I imagine the whole thing of like Warhammer plus members get ex- event, exclusive goodies and merch one of which is early registration i have a feeling that's going to be limited to those very large events as well so imagine adepticon having to open up registration a week early for or maybe even just a day or two early for warhammer plus members that's going to require a lot of coordination 
between mm-hmm. Games Workshop providing that data and then get you know having a method for Adepticon or Las Vegas Open or Nova Open or you know any of those large events to be able to like tap into that data so they know like okay if you if we can't verify you have a Warhammer Plus membership you don't get to use the registration form yet so that could i mean that could easily get messy very quickly there's a lot there's there's right. there's technical hurdles that because other than BCP, which I know I'm pretty sure Adepticon doesn't use BCP for their registration. Uh, you know, there's a lot of events that don't like even Las Vegas Open doesn't use BCP for their registration. Mm-hmm. They have a web store that you go on to. So it's like they'll have to find ways to get access to that data and relatively real time because if somebody subscribes to Warhammer Plus the day before or the morning of registration opening up, they're gonna, yeah. You know, there will be people that do that. That will sign up for one month, for just sure. to be able to get early registration and then cancel like immediately afterwards. And they're gonna have to figure out how to handle that as well. So there's there's a lot of stuff that could get messy. Yeah, and there are technical solutions for that, but yeah, it, it, it could absolutely get messy. Right. Well, and that's what I'm saying. It's like it's one thing to say we're gonna offer early registration. It's another to actually be able to pull it off consistently unless you are having all of these widely varied events funnel their registration through a single system. Yeah, that that could be that bit of gatekeeping could have very serious ramifications. So I'm curious to see how that pans out. Also, I there's one thing on this page that I never would have thought I would see have seen on an official like Warhammer community article. The last image on the page shows people playing Apocalypse and there are unpainted models on that table. Oh, you're oh, the uh yeah, that town art. Is that even on a base? Uh <laughs> it might yeah, it's it's barely on a base. There's oh, an, yeah, like, yeah, there's an right. unpainted yeah. town art. There's a uh, warhound that looks to be still mostly white. <laughs> yeah. Like somebody primed it and maybe did a little bit of paint, but not much. I mean, there's, there's a lot uh, of gray plastic un- on that. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of gray plastic and resin on that, on that table for that <laughs> APOC game. So it's like, oh, wow, they put an official Warhammer events logo on that, that image. Wow. I'm, I'm honestly surprised. <laughs> but yeah, this is, this is very much going to see this is a huge, this is a potentially huge, development we'll have to see how this actually pans out and i i don't think we'll be able to get much of how it's going to pan out from just this lvo because obviously like yes the prize aspect for like champions that will be dropped immediately for people at lvo Mm -hmm. the tournament organizers bit the warhammer plus members bit the new event types we're gonna have to see how that plays out over the over the next few months and probably through yeah. the rest of the year is when we'll see that develop. No, I imagine this will be a slow rollout. Like they're not, they would, I would hope that they would take it slow and, and roll it out carefully. Yeah. But uh, th- I have a lot of questions, but I'm excited for it. Cause I do think that there's, there's a lot of really great potential. Oh yeah. Yeah. And also the fact that they have not like, as far as I know, like this came out of nowhere. There, it's not like there's been a mass blast of information. Like, Hey, have you signed up as a, a, tournament organizer in the past with like an event with x number of players we'd like to contact you about like upcoming changes to our partnership with the itc 
I can I can tell you that they haven't sent that email out to yeah. like any group that I've been part of. So the only the only thing that I saw is there's an ITC tournament organizers Facebook group, uh, which is limited to just tournament organizers, obviously. And Reese posted right on Thursday, like right before the GW seminar. So like, hey, everybody that's here at LVO, we're going to be meeting and breaking some news after the seminar. But like, basically, what happened was like, you know, I've obviously I'm sure this was what they were talking about, but. Most people were at LVO, so they just went to the meeting and talked about it there. And then LVO's been happening, so nobody's like posted like minutes or follow ups and stuff. So I imagine we'll get a lot more information in the upcoming weeks, and then we'll we'll have a lot more like details. Um, but like I said, there's the the largest event of the year is happening right now, so now's not the time to get the details. <laughs> right, and they dropped that at like ten twenty Thursday mm-hmm. night, like. Yeah. Or like after the after the GW seminar, which they said they were going to have going at 1020. Yeah. Which G, you know, actually come to think of it, LVO may have had an, a special in-person version of the online one we got. So I don't uh, that I don't know. I, yeah, I think and like I said, I, I've been following people that have been at LVO this year. I think they just kind of. They, I think they just kind of played the 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 Twitch stream. Like if they got everybody in a room and played the Twitch stream, and like they may have been more questions and stuff there. But I think they basically got the same same stream that we did. Okay, but like I said, I expect I'll get a lot more LVO information in the upcoming days after the event ends. <laughs> yeah, so excited to see where this is going to go. Um, so speaking of tournaments, I did want to talk a bit about the new chapter approved. I'm not going to get into the points changes. GW has actually covered a lot of the the points changes, like the major ones on Warhammer Community, because they did an article basically saying like, here's the like going through group by group and saying like, here's here's the models that got like, or here's the units that got like the biggest point increases and the biggest biggest decreases. So like that's that's all been kind of revealed anyway. So instead, I'm going to focus on a couple of the changes to mission structure itself. Because there's there's a couple of things that are are very important to how events are going to be played over the next six months for matched play. Um, so one of the first changes right out the gate in the muster army section, all the units in the player's army that have selectable faction keywords, that is faction keywords presented in angular brackets, so chapter, legion, cabal, sep, stuff like that. Any of those where you select a sub-faction of the army. Presented angular brackets that a player selects when they add those units to their army must all have the same selectable keywords. This means, for example, all units with the chapter keyword in a player's army must be from the same chapter. And so the, all these units must replace chapter with the name of that chapter. Uh, which cult cabal like they give that example there are a couple of exceptions the mark of chaos and allegiance as in like demonic allegiance keywords these can be different for different units in a player's army so you can have a mixed demon force you can have mixed mark of chaos in a cat like you could do a chaos undivided army and that's still fine but you couldn't have a chaos undivided where you had world eaters and emperor's children together for example you 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 could not have two detachments of different uh, chaos marine legions, and then the dreadblade and freeblade keywords those can be mixed in with other knights because they're like it would be really weird to force like the entire concept is like oh and then there's this dude that decided to tag along as an independent operator, <laughs> but that does mean like if you're playing space marines you're playing one flavor of space marines you do not get to mix and match 
the perfect combination of chapters. And it's like, you can still do soup, but you can't do in-faction soup. But they're really trying to focus on mono-faction armies these days as much as they can. And we'll actually see that in one of our listener mail questions. But yeah, so so that is that is a big change to army structure. You don't get to like mix and match to, like between detachments. And then one of the other things is you don't pick your secondary mission, like your secondary objectives, until after the mission has been determined and you've determined who is attacker and defender and what zone you're deploying in. You'll know who's deploying first and who's deploying second and what deployment zone you're going to be in before you go through and choose your secondaries. Also, only one of your de- one of your secondaries can be from outside the mission packet here. So like you can have one faction specific secondary. Everything the other two have to be from this mission packet. While okay, so while the codexes have that rule in it, now they've just made it universal no matter what no matter how your codex is worded and i think that's important because they do actually add some new faction secondary objectives in here too fair but i do like the fact like you don't have to pick secondaries going in quite as blind so like there those are a couple big changes and then there's another change this one has is a little bit weird um and that's a change to what happens if you concede Ideally, a battle should always be played until the end. On occasion, though, one of one or both players may not be able or may not wish to complete the battle. If both players agree to end the battle early, then they can agree- end the battle at a mutually agreed point. We suggest the end of a battle round. The players can then calculate their final victory point totals, taking into account any objectives achieved so far to determine the victor. That's pretty normal. Like, if both players just agree to drop it, you just calculate out the game. If only one player wants to end the battle early, that player must concede and remove their models from the battlefield. A player who concedes scores zero victory points for the battle. Their opponent is the victor, and they can, if they wish, calculate their final victory points total, taking into account any objectives achieved so far. If their score from the primary and secondary objectives is less than 60 victory points, increase that score, or increase that player's score to 60 victory points. This will be boosted to 70 points if that player's army is painted to a battle-ready standard. So you get your 10-point battle-ready. So, yeah, if one if one person decides to concede, the other player takes 60 points minimum. And depending on, like, which, depending on when you concede, you might just take 60. Because, like, if somebody concedes first round, there's no way you're going to have 60 points. Whereas before, it was like the, you played out the rest of your turns and score as many points as you want. And so now it's like if one player decides to concede, game's over and you'll you'll take what you have or 60 whichever is higher. And I've seen some people bring up the possibility that, that this could be weaponized, especially with the focus on um high like trying to score as many points as possible. Like for example, again this is going to come up in one of our letters, LVO was using not so much a win-loss record but total battle points to determine who moved forward. Mm-hmm. And so you could completely screw somebody if you wanted to be a real dick. Oh, look, I got paired with Richard Siegler first round. I concede. Like, we'll start playing round, you know, round one. Okay, I concede. Gav, your 60 points. And suddenly that could screw him really badly yeah. in the overall standing. Now, hopefully that would be considered, like, that kind of behavior would be considered unsportsmanlike. And I think you should get booted if you do that. Oh, for sure. But it is something to be concerned about. I do like that they kind of like 
spelled out and standardized what happens when you concede, though. Like, I, yes, this can be weaponized, and I think that's a concern, and we, you know, TOs need to be aware of it. But I'm also glad that they took out a lot of the ambiguity around what happens in that event. Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, the other player keeps playing to score as many points as they want is is a little bit ambiguous. Mm-hmm. And it, it's also depending on like, well, like, what if my objectives, what if I took objectives that require me to kill things? How do I score points on that? If you've pulled all your models off the table, I don't get points. Do I get points for killing them? Because they're yeah. not on the table anymore. Yeah, the other player may continue to play out their turns until the battle ends if they wish, perhaps to accrue a few more victory points, or they can choose to end the battle now. So when you concede, you remove all your models from the table. So yeah, you could also, you know, like you could hurt somebody on secondary objectives in the old system. This way, it's just like, we don't care, like whatever your objectives are. So like it, it works really well for somebody who's conceding like turn four, where it's like, it's very like you're already at like 60 some points. It's very mm-hmm. obvious who's going to win this. But that's one of those things like if you both but that's really a case of if you both agree. Like if you both agree, then you talk out the rest of the game and you're fine. Most times players are going to agree to concede. Like if somebody says, "Yeah, I I don't have this." But that really should only be like that should be a mutual thing and you agree to like kind of like with uh like Dennis when you and the Necron player at uh at the US Open in Austin decide just kind of talk out the last like how the game was going to go like that's that's a mutual concession that one we had a judge on true true you did have a judge kind of helping you do that but like that's one of those concess like that's a concession like we can't finish this game let's figure out how it's let's like kind of math hammer it out and see how how it's going to go but where like one person wants to concede and the other doesn't that's such a weird case but I guess making it a, a you know a a minimum of sixty points that does stop somebody from like conceding at a point where it would be impossible for somebody to score enough point. Like you could match like theoretically you could max out your primary, but you might not be able to get any of your secondary. So at least this gives something. But it is it is weird. Concession rules are always weird. But I suppose right. it's better than having somebody who concedes with you know get like a full 100 points and maybe this is a way to address the spanish nazi problem <sighs> where one player concedes and then the other player gets like full points for the mission yeah so, i don't know it's still just weird it's weird <laughs> and then uh as far as like the uh like you know they did update a number of the secondary missions i'm not going to go through all of them Although they did add faction-specific ones for the factions that don't have new codexes yet. So, Aster Militarum, Chaos Knights, Tyranids, Chaos Space Marines, Chaos Demons, and Imperial Knights, they all get faction-specific secondaries, which is something they've needed to have for these factions. Because otherwise, they're just stuck playing... Like they don't get to play anything that's tailored to how their faction plays. So I'm very grateful that they put those in the mission packet. And then uh, the other change is on all of the missions now, they got rid of mission-specific secondary objectives. Instead, the primary objective will only cover, like, the holding objectives portion of it will only get you 12 points around total. Each one then has, like, a second primary that's worth three points around. So it could be anything from, like, 
Break Them Body and Soul on Recover the Relics, which is the, the very first one, which you get a point for each unit destroyed during the battle round up to a maximum of three points. So it's like you have to play to max out your points. You have to play both holding objectives and killing your opponent. But then like there's one called tear down their icons where it's taken hold is the main like holding objectives, primary objective. And then one of the things you can do in the mission is use an action to set explosives on objectives. And at the end of the game, you get four victory points for each explosives marker that was within your opponent's territory. So it requires you to, like, set up explosives while your opponent is then trying to run around and defuse the explosives, <laughs> which is just silly. But, I mean, it's it's it requires you to do stuff beyond just sitting on objectives to win. But by being, you know, mar- you know rolled into the primary, it's not something you take and then only have to take two other ob- objectives. So you're having to take three secondary objectives outside the mission and then do whatever the mission is having you do in addition. So I think they're going to lead to more varied and interesting games. I hope so. Also, they tone down the number of missions that have domination. The one where you have to hold, you know, cause it, like take and hold is control one objective marker, control two objective markers and control more objective markers. And then domination is two, three and more. The ones that are have domination all at least have six objective markers, which they did not all have before. Some of them would only have like four or five. So I, I generally, I, I generally like this. Uh, I would love to try some of these out. I do have one complaint about this year's. Uh, well, I guess the the last one had this issue as well. the The new chapter approved books are not spiral bound, and I don't like that. Yeah. Also, they don't have the rule book in them uh, either, which last year's did. So you can't just bring one of these and have everything and your codex and have everything you need to play. You have to bring a separate rule book as well. That I'm not as much a fan of, which means they'll probably sell you a, a they're probably going to come out with a tiny rule book that they can sell you separately because, I mean, they are a business and they're going to do that. I hope so. We've been wanting them to have that for a while. Yeah. <laughs> That's why I love, like, the first chapter proof they came out with that was in this kind of format where it was in file format. I love that, and I want that all the time. And yeah. uh, now I don't have that, so that makes me a bit sad. Ah, and so, oh, yeah, and as far as uh, other new releases, Tau went up for pre-order this weekend. And then they officially announced that Eldritch Omens will be going up for pre-order next weekend. With that is the Eldari and Chaos Space Marine box. Yeah. And that's like the the only like new kit they've announced. And they didn't announce like Chaos Space Marine or Eldari codexes. So we'll have to wait to see when those are coming. But obviously, if this is up for pre-order, those will be coming very soon. I, I imagine by the end of February, one, if not both of those books will be out. They might even release yeah. them the same week. I think at this point, I definitely think that Eldar are probably going to come first and get hopefully a separate window just because there's so many new models coming with it. Like when the, the Chaos book comes out, I mean, they haven't even begun to talk about any kits they're going to redo. And there's been all sorts of rumors for, you know, what Chaos kits are going to get redone. And we haven't seen any of that officially in previews yet. So I would think that right. Eldar is definitely a lot closer I, I would love to see Chaos get an update because, you know, the second wound on those Space Marines would be nice. But yeah, I, I think 
I think Eldar are going to have a pretty good size release window this time. I mean, there's a lot coming out for them. Yeah. And as we pointed out, like, this isn't even all of the line that they could redo. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. But, yeah, yeah. so it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, but, like, yeah, Cast Space Marines, I know there are people who want new Berserkers. There are people who want, like, plastic noise Marines would be nice. Yeah, there's... you know, not having to buy f- metal or fine cast bits to convert up some of the stuff <laughs> would be really nice. Having some of the models like the Venom Walk or the Venom Crawler and Obliterators as separate purchasable items would be nice. Right. As with Tau getting pretty, you can finally buy the uh, Ethereal on a hover drone by itself now. It's about time. But yeah, so that's that's the stuff that's coming down the pipe. And that officially takes us over to your listener mail. As always, these letters are written by you, the listeners, and we'll tell you how you can have your letter read on the air at the end of the segment. So first up is a letter from Evan Colon. Uh, Evan writes, uh, Dear Preferred Enemies, I've recently read through the new Gene Steeler Cults Codex and wanted to know if you folks are as disappointed with it as I am. Don't get me wrong, the new Conceal, Crossfire, and some of the cult mechanics are great but it has come at the cost of taking away the variety and flavor of the army. Uh, streamlining the codex, Codex's melee weapons is not necessarily a bad thing. Who needs stats for a wrench that doesn't do anything? However, what the designers have done to the cults has gone way too far. Removing rending claws and cultist knives is one thing, but taking most melee options from aberrants is by far another. I don't care if the new mono-weapon profile is better than both the heavy power hammer and the power pick they've removed an interesting strategic choice for how to arm your aberrants for a one-size-fits-all weapon that takes all choice and fine-tuning out of the unit uh, metamorphs got the worst of this new streamlining effect beforehand it was all about how you armed your metamorphs and now and what they were intended to fight then made them an interesting swiss army knife unit now in the new codex they're pigeonholed into being slightly better acolytes taking away most of their options along with their individuality it becomes an even bigger slap in the face for people who specifically went through the trouble of modeling different builds of metamorph squads to maintain a sense of WYSIWYG for their army uh, with Brood Brothers being pushed out of the Codex, it can seem like a minor compromise for the streamlining of things. However, with the only one quarter of your army can be blue, Brood Brothers rule, it takes most of your it makes most of your army unplayable if you've heavily invested in building up your Brood Brothers units. Just try fitting a Rust into an incursion level game to find the problem. That's not to say that everything is bad for melee units in the new Codex. Pure Strain's got the Patriarch buff built into their profile and a four up invulnerable save, which is all good. But let's not mince words. There was nowhere for pure strains to go, but up considering how bad they were beforehand. The GW game designers have gotten lazy, and we all can see it. Regardless, I don't mind that Gene Steeler Cults has become more of a shooting army. As someone who plays Tau, that's not a downside. However, if they're going to make that kind of decision, it would at least be polite of them to keep some of the things that made the army great to stay relevant. Sorry if I'm coming off as a little salty. I haven't seen anyone express the level of disappointment I am with the new Codex and wanted to know if I'm being off base or if I'm justified in what I'm seeing. Yours truly, Evan, from the land of the Bark Eaters. Uh, P.S. Also, could you list the armies you folks play on the podcast page somewhere? I know you bring up the armies you play during the podcast all the time, but it's hard to keep track of it on the fly. It would help to address, address questions to the person that plays the army directly. So first off, uh, for the postscript, uh, I can absolutely add that, add like an about us page to the website and list the armies that we play. I don't so, want that because I don't want to have to list that out. <laughs> <laughs> it will be a good exercise, Kevin. Y- you can leave off all the ones that are all gray plastic. 
Yeah, we're all going to have stupidly long lists, dude. It's well, okay. Well, if I leave off all the ones, if I leave off my unpainted armies, then I only have like two armies. <laughs> See, there you go. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anywho, sorry. Uh, um, so, so getting to the main topic that that Evan is talking about, we've seen this kind of streamlining before, where like one of the things Evan's mentions is like options that didn't really matter before getting kind of filtered out or simplified. Now, his his complaint about, like, for example, he mentions aberrants. Aberrants were like big muscle boys for Gene Steeler cults. Now, the old aberrants, um, they had a heavy improvised weapon, a heavy power hammer, a power pick. Or, I should say, the aberrant was armed with a heavy power hammer or a power pick. The Hypermorph was armed with a power, heavy power hammer or heavy improvised weapon. Now they are armed with heavy power weapons and the hypermorph can replace it with a heavy improvised weapon. The heavy power weapon is plus three strength, minus two AP, three damage. Whereas the old ones were the power hammer doubled your strength, minus three AP, three damage, minus one to hit. Or the power pick was minus two AP, like straight strength, Minus two AP, D3 damage, and if you had the pick and you had a Renin Claw, you got to make an additional attack with a Renin Claw because you could use both hands. And he's based, like his complaint is, well, yeah, the heavy power weapon is better than either the power hammer or the power pick, but it takes out some of the flavor. And it's going to be weird because we're going to be talking about Tau, which is an army with crisis suits where you can absolutely tailor your weapons to like what you want to do with a particular crisis suit. Mm-hmm. But is there value in picking one of those weapons over the other? I mean, it. There was a, a you know, it. It was a strategic thing of do you want the aberrants to hit harder or or kind of hit a little more? So it. Mm-hmm. There, there definitely was a strategic choice in the way it was before. But if both of the weapons now are well, there's only the it, one weapon entry. Oh, Except, right. if, like, if there's, there's still the improvised weapon for the hypermorph, but for the, yeah, for the hyper- but just the aberrants, they only there. There's not a a weapon choice, right? They just have one weapon that's essentially a better choice than kind of both the old options, right? Right. Mm-hmm. So, I kind of appreciate it just for the matter of of simplification. I mean, I I like that, but I haven't played Gene Steeler Colts a whole lot, and you know, my opinion as to which of the old weapons was better to take or how to use those weapons if you had, you know, a squad that had the one weapon and another squad that had the other weapon, you know, that's not something that I really had a good grasp on tactically. Right. Because I I just didn't have that experience because I haven't played them enough. And, like, the other example he brings up is the hybrid metamorphs. Now, they really did change. And I remember talking about this when we did our review of that book way back when, where it's like, Oh, do you want to go with a claw or a talon or a whip? Because each or a bone sword, because like each one had its benefits and drawbacks. Like the whip let you fight after you died, or the talon gave you an extra attack with better hit rolls. The claw was better strength and better AP. Uh, the bone sword was your strength, but 
even better AP. And now the hybrid metamorph has metamorph mutations as one weapon that covers all of those. And it is technically better than anything other than maybe the claw, but it's plus one strength, minus three AP, so it kind of rolls in the Rending Claw's chance to do better AP, right? but just has it all the time, and is one damage. There is still the Cult Bone Sword, but you can only, like, take uh, one in the, like, only the meta- the leader can take that. Yeah, I think that was, I, I think that was the way it was before... Yeah, the leader could take a bone sword. And so now the leader can still take a bone sword, which the bone sword is better. It's plus one strength, uh, minus two AP, two damage now. So that it's, it's better. The, and the, like the whip lets you, uh, reroll hits against a non monster, non vehicle unit. So the leader can have, can have the whip. So the leader can be better at hitting. And the entire unit always has the, if they are slain, they still get to fight in the melee in the fight phase. So you don't have to take the whip as a weapon to do that. So really what you're talking about is like, which do you have? The claw, the, the claw, the talon, or the rending claw? And the metamorph mutations is basically, I am all of those things. And so, you know, is, is it better to take a Swiss army unit that has like one or two guys that are like dedicated to a particular style of fighting in it? Or do you just go with, like, is it better to just have one weapon that kind of encapsulates all of those ideas? Like, especially if you're not getting into the minutia of point management, because, like, the claw was worth more points than the talon or the rending claw. So you could tailor your point costs a bit more. And I think looking at how armies have been designed, they've kind of gotten away from that real finicky war gear point management thing. Like most war gear options are roughly the same cost. And if they're different, they're going to usually be like in increments of like five or 10. Yeah. Overall, I, I, I think that it, it does bring a matter of this is more uh, approachable to, to learn how to play the army uh, or at least how to build the army. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Whereas like the complexity is more from, for, for the army is more, you know, where you move them on the table and the stuff that you actually do in the game. So it's a matter of the, the army builds are going to be less varied because there are, there are literally less options. Right. But it makes the army easier to play. Well, no, and no, I think you're absolutely right. I think it's a matter of, Let's move the complexity out of list building, that that fine finicky tuning out of list building where you're trying to squeeze every point of advantage out and like trying to figure out it's like, okay, I can afford one guy with a claw because I need that one guy with the claw, but I'm going to have to go with like, like I'll go with rending talents, except for one person will have a metamorph talent because I can get that extra point in there. And it's like, how much do you, especially looking at like how much is actually gained by doing that fine amount of touching, you know, of touching up points and that fine tuning of a, a unit, when really what's what's more important and where they've like with the new crossfire rules, it's much more about how you're placing their armies. They're moving the army away from list building, tinkering, and more into tactics and strategy and how you're actually using it and where you're actually placing things. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, I think you're right. It's like, it should be easier to, like, building a list shouldn't be that tricky and that finicky. It should come down to the gameplay. And I think that's that's where they're going with this. And for some people, they like that fine tuning of unit builds. And so yeah. I could see why that this might turn someone off if that's what they like. But I have to look at it from the sense of, but how much is really gained by that? Like what, like how much is really gained by having that one weapon in the units a little better than the others? And I like with the heavy power hammer and the power pick or with this, it's like, is there really enough there to matter? And considering it's like now it's just heavy power weapon, your guy that's modeled with a power pick is fine. And because, and with these being metamorph mutations, it doesn't matter how, like your older models aren't invalidated by this. It's just, they're simplified. You don't have to worry about pulling the right model out. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, and I think, this is a thing that they did with Age of Sigmar like a long time ago, where mm. a, a lot of the profiles and like little fiddly like weapon options just kind of, they either went away or it wasn't even a matter of you had to like, even when they reintroduced, you know, points into Age of Sigmar, it was a matter of like, you can just have, you know, this guy with a, with a, a musical instrument in your army in, in this unit. And it didn't cost any extra points if, cause if that's the model that you had from before, you can still use it. Right. Yeah. I think they've, they've tried to get away from like having a lot of extraneous costs unless they have very clear, definite game advantages that are, that will, be huge force multipliers. So I think, yeah, I think they're kind of going in that strategy. And so if there's no points value difference between like the different metamorph weapons, there's really no reason to have the different metamorph weapons. Now his complaint about brood brothers, I think there is actually a bit more value in that because yes, the new brood brothers rules screw you over. If you built your army thematically to be a brood brothers army. Yeah. Because I think the old one was what, like, you could have, I don't know if it was, well, the Brood Brothers were just units in the army. Like, it was just units in the Codex. Yeah, um, they just, they, they had to be the a detachment on their own, right? Right. Well, and that was, you could also include, like, an Astra Militarum detachment that had, like, all the regiments changed out with Brood Brothers. Right. And then on top of that, you had units with the Brood Brothers keyword, which you could include in your regular detachment. They just never got your cult creed. Right. And so in the new codex, it's Brood Brothers are, there's no units for them in the codex. Like you can take Astrobart Militarum units as Brood Brothers, but it can never be more than a quarter of your, your army. It's like, yeah, when when mustering a battleforged army for each Gene Stealer Cults detachment you include in your army, you can also include one Astra Militarum detachment, even though the units don't share any keywords. The inclusion of Brood Brothers units in your army does not prevent Gene Stealer Cults units from your army from using the crossfire ability, provided that the total power rating of Brood Brothers units from your army is no more than twenty five percent of your army's total. Which means, in an incursion game, which is a thousand point game, you can't use more than 250 points of Brood Brothers, which, yeah, trying yeah. to fit a Lehman Rust into that and still have be a legal detachment is going to be pretty much impossible. Yeah. 
And the reason they like the whole thing with uh, like Crossfire is yeah, Crossfire set up. If every unit in your army has the Gene Stealer Colts keyword, including excluding unaligned units and the percentage ratio of Brood Brothers units, so you can build a a army that has as much Brood Brothers as you want, but you lose access to cr- at Crossfire and anything else that like w- checks your percentage. So you actually punish yourself if you do it. And I do think that sucks for people who really leaned into the Brood Brothers idea because that's not the how it was set up in the past. And I know Games Workshop is doing it to try to cut down on cross-codex shenanigans, but it still hurts. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I I kind of I mean, it's it's kind of the same thing that you've seen with with the other ones where like the the cheap little spammable troops, they get a cap on how much you can take of those. Mhm. This is kind of that's this also kind of falls into that category as well. In in addition to the the cross codex advantages, right? Because like Brood Brothers Infantry Squad in the old book, it was like Guard Infantry was cheaper than Neophyte Hybrids. So yeah, you take Brood Brothers, you just be giving up. Like they wouldn't get access to your cult creed, but you could still use them as cheap troops. And so like, yeah, it's exactly like that. It's like, you've got to put a cap on them or people will use them as cheap fodder to get all their good stuff. Otherwise, I I don't think it's necessarily a case of GW being like being lazy in game design. I think they're actually being very careful with game design. And honestly, like the, things like the crossfire rules and some of the stuff that we talked about last episode, like the custodes, katas and things like that. They're absolutely not being lazy. I think they're just looking at what their vision for the game is, where there's value in having the customization and the fine tuning and where there isn't and how to try to minimize any weirdness for cross faction synergies. Because the other thing is that makes balancing factions easier if you don't have to worry about how one faction's rules impact another. Yeah. So you don't have to worry about how Gene Steeler cults are going to work with Brood Brothers because you're way limited on what they, on how many you can take. So, uh, yeah. And and I think there's a, a, a thing to be said for, you know, they're trying to maintain like army identity so that not every army, like, plays the same but that there's still consistency between how armies are like made and structured if that makes sense no no i think you're no it makes sense total sense so i think it's it's just easier for everybody involved to to like it's easier for them to 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 balance it's easier for army building like all these issues and i can totally see why someone might be upset about them because if yeah. they had built their army to the eighth edition st- structure and now they've changed it on you, I can understand why you might be salty. Yeah. But what I would say is give it a try and see if you're really feel like after playing it with several times, see if you're really feeling like you're missing out. And I can't really help you on the brood brothers. If you built an army that was heavy into brood brothers, maybe play guard as your second army and have fun with it. <laughs> I mean, not to be a jerk, but I mean, at that point, without the crossfire rules, yeah, you're you're basically just playing a guard army, right? 
So Evan, like, I hope, like, I'm not trying to poo-poo your 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 concerns, and I I don't want to say you're off base, but it just may be that what you're wanting out of the army, what you like out of the army, is different than what GW wants, and is different than what other people are looking at. That doesn't necessarily make you wrong. It's just you're coming from coming at it from different points, and you like what you like. And if you built your army a certain way and you enjoyed that, yeah, this could rub you the wrong way. Um, next up is from Daniel Miller. Daniel writes, Hi from the UK. Long time listener, but I haven't asked a question in three to four years. I've been away from playing since COVID started, so I've only played three games of ninth so far with my orcs. Uh, so first question is, specialist mobs. The orc codex says if your army is a battle forge and includes any orc detachments, excluding super heavy auxiliary. Does this mean if I have a battalion and a super heavy auxiliary with just a gorkonaut, then I can or can't give him a specialist mob? Uh, in a similar vein, number two, uh, can I give big crumpas to a unit of three deaf dreads? The wording says models, but I'm unsure. And three, do you have any tips for picking secondaries? Marines are popular in my local area, but I really struggle picking secondaries, whereas I can clearly see which ones people should pick against me. Thanks for all you do. Kind regards, Dan. Oh, let me go get my orc codex. I'll be right back. I'm back. I love having a rolly chair and bookshelves. <laughs> it's like being a librarian. Nerd. Yes, I'm not arguing that. <laughs> okay, so if your army is battleforged and includes any orc detachments, excluding auxiliary support, super heavy auxiliary, or fortification network detachments, then when you muster your army, you can upgrade one orc's unit from each detachment in your army to be a specialist mob. So a battle. Okay, so this is where it gets kind of the 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 difference between battle forged and battle forged for matched play. Battle forged means your army is in detachments. Period. Like your army is built of detachments. It's not just a loose pile of models that you that you play together and includes any orc detachments. And the reason it says excluding like auxiliary, super heavy auxiliary or fortification network detachments is the idea like because a battleforged army like we we tend to think of like well the battleforged army has to have all the detachments share a faction keyword not necessarily <laughs> that's only for match play right. for narrative play you could have a guard detachment and a orc super heavy auxiliary yep it'd be yeah, you could totally do that. And it would be a battle-forged army because it's all in detachments. Uh, for, like, open play. You can do open play and still be battle-forged. So, in this case, what it's saying is you can't use specialist detachments unless you have an orc detachment that is not one of those three. Once you have one of those... Once you have an orc detachment that's not one of those three, you have unlocked specialist mobs. And I would say that, yes, you could give a specialist mob to a Gorkonaut and a Super Heavy Auxiliary. That That's where I would go with that. Uh, yeah, I think so. So, yeah, I would say, and again, if you're playing in a tournament, check with the TO always before you, you know, when you're doing your list building. I guess check. we should check on the GW app, but who knows if that's correct. That's a sad state of affairs. I have to say, I don't know if that's correct. Specialist mobs. Yes, I can officially pick specialist mobs for a Gorkonaut. So according to the the 40k app, which has got to be considered about as official as it can be, except for point costs, pay no attention to those. Those are made up. <laughs> <laughs> Judging from my own experience that they still haven't fixed those issues. 
But yeah, according to the official GW app, you can pick a specialist mob on a secondary, on a super heavy auxiliary, as long as you have a non-super heavy auxiliary orcs detachment as well. So that is confirmed. So so your first one is, yes, you can absolutely uh, have a battalion and a super heavy auxiliary with just a Gorkonaut, and the Gorkonaut can be a specialist mob. Yes. Very, absolutely. Um, in a similar vein, can I give Big Krumpas to a unit of Deep Dreads? Big Krumpas, or a unit of Deaf Dreads. Yes, so Deaf Dreads are one of the units for Big Krumpas. The selected unit gains the Big Krumpas keyword and the following ability. Each time a Big Krumpas model makes a melee attack, add one to that attack set roll. A model in a Big Krumpas unit will have the Big Krumpas keyword, so therefore... Yes, the Deaf Dreads, can, each Deaf Dread will get the Big Krumpas rule. Because it's, n- it's not like equipment or anything, it's just the keyword and that unit gets the rule. So you could absolutely give a unit of Deaf Dreads in the battalion the specialist mob, and each and it can be a unit of three, and each of the models in that unit. Because you do that at army building, so even though they get split up into separate units... They have, they gain the keyword during army construction. So, yes, the unit of three Death Dreads will each gain the effect from Big Krumpas. So that would totally be fine. I don't think there's anything in the FAQs to counteract that. They do not specify, so I would say that's totally fine. I, I will say, as an experiment, I tried adding just a super heavy auxiliary detachment to an army and the option to give it a specialist mob was still there. Okay, so <laughs> that's the sound of me tossing my phone on the table because oh, right, GW, <laughs> fix your app, make make it actually match reality, match the the rules that you have written. Uh, okay, I'm gonna say if the rule, I'm gonna say the app allows it. I'm I'm generally good with it, but yeah, uh, just yeah. I don't see a reason, but even not counting the app, I don't think there's a reason why you couldn't. As long as you've unlocked specialist mobs with the proper set of detachments. Yeah. And then third thing, do you have any tips for picking secondaries in general? Honestly, a lot of picking secondaries is going to be practice and knowing like what things are going to work against what armies you're facing like you have to be able to look at your opponent's list and the mission at hand like what are they going especially now uh and the mission that they're going to be doing and like where where they're going to be deploying and figure out like what are the secondaries that are going to be the easiest for me to get points off of them with and knowing that some people are like a lot of people will try to build their armies in such a way that it is hard for you to max out secondaries like and that that's going back like even before the chapter approved started the book started putting out missions and secondary objectives back in like the ITC days part of the the art of tournament list building was building your list in such a way that your opponent didn't have good secondaries to score off of you and that really hasn't changed too much the one difference is there are secondaries that you can pick and there were secondaries back then as well that don't know so much depend on what your opponent does as much as what you are good at. So 
like if we look at the secondaries that are in here, like I'm looking at looking in the brand new one, like okay, so you're playing orcs. Unless you are going weird boy heavy, which you probably won't be, you can skip the entire Warpcraft section apart from Abhor the Witch. If you're playing against the Psyker heavy army, Abhor the Witch is always a good choice. It, so, like, if you're playing against, like, you're playing against Marines, but if you play against a Grey Knights or a Thousand Suns player, you're probably going to want to take Abhor the Witch. If you're playing against a Marine army that had, leans heavily in, like, captains and lieutenants and chaplains and such, Assassination's a good one because they've got lots of characters, so you can probably max that thing out. If they bring, if they're vehicle heavy, if they bring a lot of, like, Redemptor Dreads, which I think are still nine wounds... Well, let's see, Redemptor Dreads are still only worth one point. Like, if they're going vehicle heavy, bring it down can be good, but it's going to be tricky. Uh, grind them down. If you're bringing mobs of boys, grind them down is a good one for you because it's going to be harder for them to kill your units than it will be for you to kill theirs. Uh, because that you score three victory points at the end of the battle round if more enemy units than friendly units were destroyed. No prisoners. If, if your opponent is bringing lots of models... Run no prisoners because you get like your points are based on how many how many wounds of models you've killed. But also realize people will probably play no prisoners against you if you're reading mobs of boys. It's just again looking at things, uh, figuring out how like what can what can your units do that are like what is your what can you do better than your opponent and what can you do just good in general. Like there's always the retrieve blank data whether it's like retrieve octarius data in the previous set there's retrieve knockman data now um if you're playing like with bikers retrieve knockman data is a good one because infantry or biker units can perform it so you can basically send a unit of bikes running around and trying to collect points or um one popular thing is like having units drop down like having deep strike units drop down next to objectives and then doing the retrieve data action on the next turn you know it's things like that or like behind enemy lines is your army going to be good like if you're playing a very fast mobile army can you like if you're playing you know cult of speed or you know evil sons or free buddha buggy weirdness um are you like behind enemy lines you can get your vehicles everywhere you can probably score behind enemy lines or engage on all fronts if you can just like take over all the table quarters Stuff like that is how you pick pick your secondaries. And then look at your faction-specific ones and figure out which one faction-specific one you are likely to be able to achieve. I mean, it's, it's an art, not a science. And you will get better at doing it the more and more you play. So, yeah, you've only played three games of 9th edition with, with orcs. Um, it's going to take you a while to, to get there. And... The thing about like players who are really good at pit playing secondaries, they play all the time. So they've and they they also talk a lot. Goonhammer, for example, will uh, regularly run like state of the game articles where they'll take a look at the meta and figure out like, okay, here are all the secondaries that are currently being played, and like here's the best scoring ones, which will then tell you also like how are people building their armies to be able to take advantage of them. So it's just. Like, it depends on how deep into this you want to get. But if, like, it, it all, but like a lot of it is, like I said, depends on how your arm, your opponents are playing their armies as well. If somebody is playing a army full of small models, 
Uh, no prisoners is fantastic, or no, not no prisoners. Uh, grind them down is fantastic because if they're playing a bunch of small units and you have big mobs of boys, you will easily kill more units than they will of yours. So that just becomes an auto take. But if they're taking big blobs, no prisoners is a better choice because all that matters is how many models or wounds worth of models are you killing? Which if you're playing Marines, remember all those Marines are worth two wounds, which is twice, basically a killing a unit of 10 Marines is the same as killing 20 like Skatari or sisters. And then you figure out how many kill points you got and divide by 10, round down, max of 15. And then you also score more victory points if the kill point tally was 50 to 99 or over 100. So if your opponents bring just tons of people on foot, you take no prisoners. If not, you maybe take grind them down. Or if you have something you like you think is going to survive, take to the last and figure out things that are going to be resilient. So, but again, it all it's based on your army list, your opponent's army list, and just practice and knowing what you can score. I mean, Dennis, you've you've played competitively in this environment. You, is, is, am I off base there? No, I mean that that's standard advice. I'd say um, to the last, I think is can be easily a trap. I have had no luck with that one because if you're already on like you're losing a lot of models, to the last won't help you. Yeah, if you're losing a lot of models, but it's just like there, there's a few cases where like you can play to the last, but like I don't know if I necessarily play with orcs. But although there's some orc stuff now that is stupid resilient, like the boss on a squigasaur, beast boss on a squigasaur, I could see taking to the last because those guys are tough as nails. Yeah, the problem is, is if they're up front. That is true. It just depends on, uh, again, a lot of it is knowing how your army plays. Uh, if you're playing very aggressive, I would not take to the last, definitely, because it could go very badly very quickly. But yeah, yeah, I, I do think there are definitely some objectives that have in the past been considered kind of trap objectives where it's like it looks good on paper, but it doesn't in practice. But again, that just is one of those things of you ha you play enough and you figure it out. Yeah, I mean, experience is the best teacher. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It is. It is. And uh, I mean, that that's something we've we've said on a number of competitive like competitive questions it's just like you play over and over and over again until you learn it all. So I mean, I, I will toss this out. If you and you're just playing friends for you're not being super competitive, ask them for some help and kind of figuring out until you get a feel for it. Because that way you're both learning. You're both getting better. Right. No, absolutely. Practice games are totally great. And just, yeah, just learning what to do. So hopefully, Dan, that is that is of some assistance to you. Uh, next up, we've got a letter from Paul Candle. Paul writes, Hi, Rob and Preferred Enemies. Uh, this will be long, so bear with me. As to the last episode on the subscription to minis in 20 months, I think GW took the Encyclopedia Britannica subscription motto from the late 70s and redid it. I mean, outside of us old guys, who would know? I think the discussion in the last episode was hilarious when I recalled the Encyclopedia subscription. It was an aha moment for me. Ah, yes. You can get the entire encyclopedia, but you have to subscribe. You'll get volume one today. What if I want to know the rest of it? You'll just have to wait and pay for those books separately. I just went to the library. I went to my grandparents' house because they had a copy of the world book. <laughs> Granted, it was from like 1968, but it, I mean, what's what's changed in our understanding in the last, well, at the time it was like the last 
20 years. It was still relatively modern. I mean, yeah. World maps haven't changed since then. No, and, and one day we would go to the moon. I don't know if we ever made it. Well, I mean, <laughs> depending on oh, who no, you Oh, no, we're not opening that can. We're not opening that can of worms right now. Because <laughs> that's we, where the Sisters of Silence are, right? Spoilers, we did go to the moon. Okay, anyway. <laughs> moving on. He says, and now a question on LVO and how they ran the event. Notwithstanding the fact that players knew what they signed up for and the fact that the Shadow Round was agreed to the past few years, do you think the Shadow Round is outdated for all undefeated players for the final four spots? I saw in chat on livestream during LVO, the players think it is fair because then it determines who gets in. I do not think so. For example, let's say there are 12 undefeated. The final eight play off for the last four spots. In theory, all four winners could score 100 or all win by the same score. The tournament then reverts back to margin of victory, then to the points for the tournament. What if the margin was the same? The placings revert back to overall points. In my example, it's completely hypothetical to further the point. I, average Joe, could get paired with two regular players and beat them, then beat John Lennon, Alex McDougal, Richard Siegler, and Nick Nanavati. However, because I was the lowest point total, I have to play in the shadow round. Let's say I beat Manny Chima, by, but by a few points. In theory, I would could not make the final eight because my margin of victory was not enough or my total points were not high enough. How is this any more fair than just running it off total points for majority and the final group playing for the eight spot only? I mean, playing a game at 9 p.m. local seems a bit much, even if that is the thing now. I think that for community balance and to enjoy everything else any tournament has to offer, food, friends in the area, and other activities, is more important than an extra round of play. Moreover, to the point of feel-bads for poor random computer pairings I saw online, you can only beat the players in front of you like any professional sport, such as all the major team sports. Remember when the Seattle Seahawks made the playoffs at 7... seven and nine with a home home game in 2010 and the Buccaneers and Giants missed the playoffs with records of 10 and six, even though they were not in the same division, I'm using it to demonstrate a point. I'm curious to hear all thoughts. Thanks, Paul. Um, I will say the playing a game at 9 PM local to figure out who makes the cut is not something that happens at most events. LVO is kind of an outlier. (laughs) Yeah, I mean the shadow the shadow round usually only happens at these super large events where you don't wind up with eight undefeateds, where you you know have twelve and you have to kind of pare it down to just eight to make the event work. And in my opinion, like the players don't have a problem with it, you know, across the board. Like nobody's saying they have you know doesn't appear anybody really has a problem with it. I'd rather settle it on the field, you know. I'd rather play it out on the tabletop than go with just margin of victory and things like that. Um you know, even in the the example you kind of mentioned about, like, professional sports and stuff like that, it's like, yeah, I mean, there's some vagarities of, like, divisions and stuff like that. But, like, those teams played, you know, played out on the field. And then when the Seahawks, you know, went 7-9, and nine, got a home game, like, they won that, that playoff game on the, you know, on their home field. So, like, eh, I don't know. I'd rather, if, if there's ever a case where you can play it out rather than just going off tiebreakers, play it out, in my opinion. Right, right. And they, they even say, like, in the event packet, you had going into the LVO 2022 champs. They they 
put in the following. So if anybody doesn't know what we're talking about when we say shadow round, this is it. There's so for day two, there's a there were three regular rounds. So rounds four, five, and six, and then at nine p.m. there was a finals qualifier round if needed, and that is the shadow round. And what they have written for the shadow round is, if at the end of round six there are more than true more than eight truly undefeated players, truly undefeated is defined as six and oh, no ties. Then a shadow round will be played. The format and qualifications of the shadow round participants will not be known until the total number of event attendees is known and the results of round six have been submitted. However, it will be formatted to have the least number of players in the shadow round to determine the final eight. This year, there were four players who basically had the top like they their scores were such they were very clearly the top fourth so like they they had undefeated records and best points they ended up in the finals no question and then for the remaining eight like for the there were 12 undefeateds so players five through 12 got paired up and basically played knockout rounds to determine who moved on. At least I believe they're knockout rounds. I don't know if, I mean, I don't know if they were based on margin of victory, but I don't, I, I'm, this is one where I'm not quite sure on. Like if you could lose your shadow round game, but still make it in because you only lost by a little bit. But I, I would think unless like the point totals were completely screwy. Yeah. I would think it's just knockout, but yeah, that that's a good question. Fortunately, Goonhammer and Frontline both have their day two coverage up. Oh, and uh Seekler won it's the final. Uh this is my this is my look of utter surprise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean after some and apparently people weren't even sure he'd be at LVO. He was a surprise show up. <laughs> Siegler's final match against Loris Custodes looked to be a tough one going in, but ultimately Siegler managed some brutal swings mid-game to seal things up, wiping a bike captain and Trajan off the board in the same turn, and closing things out 97 to 67. Wow. That is that is very well done. Um no, Yeah, Sie- it looks like it was it looks like it was just a straight knockout because the uh the eight people that played in the shadow round, like the the four winners advanced. So Yeah, day two games. Yeah, so the shadow round gives us the final eight. So let's talk about this is from Goonhammer. Let's talk about the shadow round. It's not a secret or anything, but rather a quirk of the event size and the realities of pairings. In order to get an event with a single undefeated player using Swiss pairings, you need a certain number of rounds to cut the field down. Basically, if you have N rounds, you can have up to two to the nth people. So three rounds gives you a single winner on eight people. Six rounds gets you up to 64 and nine lets you have up to 512. Because LVO had more than 750 players, that meant adding a single round to pare down the field to a final top eight. The cutoff here is to take the top four players, give them free access to the final eight. The remaining four spots were determined by a four-game shadow round. Siegler's final 93-point game and the otherwise low-scoring mission, the scouring, helped him jump up into the top four and avoid the shadow round. Meanwhile, our shadow round matchups were Matt Laura versus Quentin Johnson, Evan Tomchin versus Ben Cherwin, Manny Chima versus Alex McDougal, and Anthony Vanella versus Lucas Troller. And yeah, so like, yeah, Ben didn't make it in. Manny Chima didn't make it in. Uh, obviously, Matt Laura beat Quentin Johnson. Let's see. And Vanilla. Anthony Vanilla made it in. So yeah, it, that one was just a straight knockout. 
But whether you made the cut or not was completely based off of your scoring before that. So it was a combination of being undefeated and having high enough points to not have to face the last, you know, that extra round. I think it is fair because, as you said, like, it's not a secret. All the players know what it is going into it. And it is absolutely the weirdness that is caused by having a Swiss system where otherwise you would have to have everybody play 10th round. So by getting it down to here are the top players playing an extra round. And again, it's an oddity both of the size of LVO and the fact that LVO has to have a like a no question winner. Mm-hmm. Like by the nature of it being the final game of the ITC season, at least as of right now, you can't not have it. And it would also suck if you were one of those undefeated. Like, I think the shadow round is better than having the cutoff be purely on battle points because you could be, you could be in undefeated, but be in ninth place because of points and not have a shot to get in, even though you've, beaten everyone you've played against an event this big a bracket where you have no control over it because it's completely based off of what your how you how your opponents did is not great i think it i i absolutely agree that it is fair and the fact that everybody involved thinks it's fair is fine does it suck to have to play a game from 9 p.m to midnight yes Absolutely, yes. There is no question on that. Now, at least this year, it doesn't sound like they had any of the BCP issues that have occasionally popped up in past years where games (laughs) started at like 9 p.m. just because that's when round six starts now because BCP shit the bed. But yeah, I I, I think in this situation, it's fair. It's fine. It And it's just kind of a thing that has to be done. Are, will there be upsets? Will there be people that like are dark horses that sneak in by the skin of their teeth? Absolutely. That's one of the things that makes this exciting too. Like Manny Chima, everyone was kind of expecting that like that Manny Chima might run away with it because nobody knew if Siegler was even going to show up. And then when Siegler mm-hmm. did show up, people, I think a lot of people were expecting that you'd have a Siegler versus Manny Chima final. And instead, in the shadow round, Manny Chima gets knocked out by uh, uh, brain uh, gets knocked out by Alex McDougal because Alex McDougal list was made like apparently like I don't think he specifically made it this way. I don't know, but like according to Goonhammer, it looked like it was tailor made to destroy lists like Manny Chima's, <laughs> and it did. It killed some. So Manny Chima was running a Drukari rack heavy list. With over 150 racks on the table, uh, Ma- uh, Alex's list killed 100. I know it's at least 150 because in ra- two rounds of play, he killed over 150, <laughs> and pretty like it pretty much brought the game to a con- uh, effective conclusion within two rounds. It's like there's not much you can do to bounce back from that. So yeah, it's. Like, those are the kinds of upsets that make this exciting, kind of like the Seahawks getting a wild card spot and winning a home game to move forward. Those, those are the fact that you're mentioning that story 12 years later tells me that it was a good story. Yeah. 
and everyone's going to remember at least for a while, you know, for a while, and they'll probably look back. It's like, oh yeah, I remember when like Manny got knocked out by surprise by some guy playing like Tyranids who just murdered, you know, like murdered everything in your list. Or Siegler show again. Siegler showing up at all is apparently a shock. Oh no, and then he just wins ITC. So yeah. <laughs> so that's just the kind of stuff that that is just makes this this fun. And again, it, this is going to be limited to events like. LVO, potentially Adepticon, although I don't even think Adepticon hits 750. LVO is a special beast. LVO is a very, very unique event. And then finally, a letter from Ashley Tibbetts, and Ashley writes, Hey guys, still been listening. Hope you're all great. Here's my question. I haven't played since the middle of 8th edition. What do I need to start playing again? E.g., what books do I need, and what's the best way to learn all the new stuff? Looking forward to a new Tau Codex, Ashley. So, what you will need for, for 9th edition, you will need a rule book. You, I mean, you absolutely need the new rule book because there's a nice. number of... I'm assuming they have dice since they played in the middle of 8th edition. I They specifically Models. asked what books they need. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> that too. I'm assuming they have models. A, a table, table space would be helpful. Oh god, this is why I can't have nice. This is why we can't have nice things. You realize this, right? Yes, yes, I do. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, moving on. They spe- Ashley specifically requested information on books. Books. What books do they need, and what's the best way to learn? So that clarified. You will need. The core rulebook, because there are enough changes between eighth and ninth edition that you will need to, you will need this book and you will need to go through this. Specifically, like obviously the core rules, a lot of the core rules are available for free, but army construction is not available for free. I think like command point generation stratagems uh, are not available for free, like detachments, uh, strategic reserves, actions. Terrain features, terrain traits, those are not available for free. Also, your, like, match play missions are not available for free. But I would absolutely, like, download the core rules. Those are free. But you will want a core rule book because it includes all that extra information, especially army construction, which army construction is not even in, like, when they had the chapter approved last year that did have rules in it. I don't believe it inc- even included army construction. It just included like strategic reserves, stratagems, etc. But like what the definition of detachments are and how the detachments work and how many command points you have to spend on each detachment. There's one thing you'll have to learn. Command detachments cost you command points. They do not get you command points. Um you can also get the 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 base rules that you can download for free. Um, mm-hmm. from like this getting started with Warhammer 40k, uh, you can get a mini core, you can get a core rule book in the command edition, but if you already have armies, you know, an army, you don't need that. And it's 165 bucks. So 65 bucks is cheaper if you just want to buy a core book, but you'll need a core book, obviously. Um, if you are going to play match play at all, you will need to get chapter approved for a couple of reasons. First off, chapter approved has the newest points totals in it. Points totals get updated. I think they, you know, they started doing this in eighth edition. Uh, so they've continued that. Um, basically, 
every, all the points are going to be in chapter approved. So you will need the newest copy of chapter approved. You can find that under, uh, under Warhammer 40,000 uh, ways to play matched play. And the brand new copy of that just came out this week. So that's the chapter approved Warzone Nachman Grand Tournament Mission Pack and Munitorium Fish Field Manual 2022. Um, there is the Warhammer 40,000 app. Do not trust it. Its point values are, are weird and do not calculate correctly. I hate having to say that, but it is true. Then, of course, you will need a codex. Fortunately, if you're looking forward to a new Tau Codex, that goes up, that has just gone up for pre-order. So you will want that. Beyond that, uh, anything else, like data cards are nice to have, but you don't need them. And that, and that's really, those are the things you need to play. You need a core rule book. You'll need chapter approved. You'll need your codex. And th- that's fundamentally it. As far as, What's the best way to learn the new stuff? Practice games. Practice games mm-hmm. and read the rules very carefully. When you play your first practice game, like very carefully go through the the rules because, for example, there is a new phase of the game called the command phase. So just play the first game step by step. And fortunately, in this book, everything is very clearly bullet pointed out. I think this is the best organized rulebook they've done for 40K ever, so it should be pretty easy to follow. And anything that is a more advanced rule will be flagged as such. So, for example, like there's the command phase, the movement phase, and then once you're in the movement phase, like it tells you it's broken up into these two sub-phases. And then after that, it'll be like advanced rules, moving over terrain, flying, transports, like if you're like start out simple, don't use any transports. Don't well, I would say you don't use units that fly, but you're playing Tau, so that's going to be a little bit tricky in some cases. Even though you don't use the psychic phase, read those rules so that you understand how other people will use the psychic phase. Work through the shooting phase very carefully, like carefully read each of these sections and then play practice games and just follow it very closely. And and really because what you're doing is it's similar enough to 8th edition as far as like how things basically resolve that it's very easy to fall into the trap of oh that's how this worked in 8th edition 9th edition has enough like there's a few major changes like again the addition of a command phase and the fact that your command points are based off of the size of game you're playing to a lot of little tweaks and changes like coherency works differently in this edition um you like you can't keep your units stretched out in a line you have to make sure that everybody's within coherency of two other models if the unit is over five models if i remember right so it's just like there's things you have to take into account um there were things that you will do wrong if you just do them based on how you 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 remember doing them so you'll want to relearn things it's similar to 8th edition, so you should be able to pick it up pretty quickly, but there's nothing like a practice game to actually start causing it to gel in your mind. And if you have a letter or question you would like us to answer on the air, there are three easy ways you can do that. First off is to email us. You can email us at our first names at preferred enemies. 
com. So Rob at Kevin at Dennis at Richard at PreferredEnemies.com. You can also email us at, us at our first names at PreferredEnemies.com. Uh, second is Facebook. We are at Facebook.com slash PreferredEnemies. You can like us there, follow us, and keep track of what we're doing, what's coming up, our commentary, when new episodes drop, etc. Third is Twitter. We are at Twitter.com slash PreferredEnemy, singular. And we take comments and letters from all those sources, collate them together, put them in the hopper, and get through as many as we can in an episode. Hopper is empty. In fact, we had one just come in today to help fill up the list, uh, but we've gotten through it. So if you have a letter you want to read, now you want us to read, now is the time to get it in. In addition, uh, there is the Midwest Conquest coming up Memorial Day weekend in Kansas City. If you are in the area and would like to attend, you can go to MidwestConquest.com and sign up today. We have a GT, we're, or we have a we have the 40K uh, Grand Tournament. We are hoping to make that a major by having at least 58 players. Uh, we have the... Uh, Friendly, which Kevin is going to be running, which is for a more casual, less competitive environment focused on hobby and sportsmanship as well. Uh, we have uh, the Night Joust, which is always just like a fun side event. And uh, finally, there is Beer Hammer on Friday night for those of you who are 21 and older who want to imbibe, hang out with friends, and roll dice. Uh, you can find details on all of those at MidwestConquest.com. Also, a quick reminder, we are not necessarily the ones organizing event. Uh, this is being organized by the Heroic Morale Crew out of uh, Peculiar, Missouri. Uh, yes, Peculiar, one of the greatest town names in the history of America, and they have a Peculiar Games and Hobby store there where you can find all your Peculiar Games and Hobbies, and 40K is one of the most Peculiar Games you'll ever play. Uh, but uh, you can go to MidwestConquest.com and sign up, or you can also look on Best Coast pairings.com search for warhammer 40k events around memorial day weekend that is the like the 25th or like 26th through 29th i believe yeah uh, that uh, is the 27th through 29th uh in kansas city missouri it'll actually be held at the sony creek convention center and hotel in independence missouri uh, but you can search for uh midwest conquest uh war on warhammer 40k events on best coast pairings and find find events there to sign up for as well uh finally if you want to help support the show we have a patreon we are at patreon.com slash preferred enemies now if you have the money to help support the show we ask that you first look to use your wargaming powers for awesome and help support charities in your immediate community but after that if you still want to help support the show and help pay for things like our recording service and our web hosting and our microphones and uh, travel costs when we start returning to events as we are planning to do later this year you can do that by using that as our we basically use that as our online tip jar uh, so uh, we don't lock any of our episodes behind a paywall but if you want to help support the show even if it's just a dollar a month enough people put in a dollar it really does help out it is what keeps us relatively cost neutral on this so we really appreciate all the support so again that's uh, patreon.com slash preferred enemies so we're going to go ahead and take a break and when we come back we're going to be talking about the brand new codex tau empire See you in a bit. Miniatures. We build them, we paint them, we love them. That's why we also want to get them to the battle and back again safely. And that's where Kara Multicase comes in. They offer a complete model storage and transport system. They offer a wide selection of core trays for standard size miniatures, as well as custom cut trays for specific models. KR's trays are made of a soft foam, available in a variety of colors, that won't scratch or snag your models. And to protect the foam, the trays are carried in easily stackable, swappable cardboard cases. 
They also offer a full range of Kaiser bags, backpacks, and aluminum cases for transporting your KR cases. You can even choose from pre-built tray selections to suit your army, or use the autofill app to find just the right trays for your particular force. Whatever your game, 40K, X-Wing, Warm Hordes, or Historicals, KR Multicase has the cases to fit your needs. You can find out more at krmulticase.com. KR Multicase, soft foam for your figures, hard cases for the soft foam. Are you tired of playing on a boring battlefield? Do you want to step up the quality of your gaming table and make your battle look real? Then you need to check out the battle mats from GameMat. Their professionally designed rubber-based mats are just what your gaming table needs. Available in a variety of styles, with everything from rolling grasslands to urban war zones, winter wastelands to alien deserts, there's a GameMat mat to fit any kind of terrain. Their mats are padded, anti-slip, waterproof, and when you're done rolling dice and battling on your mat, just roll it up and stick it in the convenient carrying bag for easy transport and storage. And if you don't have a gaming table, they've got you covered with their folding Gboard portable gaming area and their line of pre-painted resin terrain. If you're ready to upgrade your gaming table, head over to www.gamemat.eu and find the gaming mat that's right for you. Game Mat, giving your armies the battlefield they deserve. And we're back, and that means it's time for our main topic, which is our look at the new Codex Tau Empire, which has just gone up for pre-order as of uh, Saturday. And uh, this copy that we are reviewing was kindly presented to us by Games Workshop in exchange for a uh, fair and honest review. And, like, first of all, if you are not familiar with the Tau Empire, the Tau are a race... That really doesn't feel like it fits into the rest of the 40k universe at all. It is, it does not fit into the grim dark oeuvre, so to speak. <laughs> uh, in ways, in other ways, not so much. But yeah, they're they're definitely a different style of race and army. <laughs> oh yeah, very much so. I mean, aesthetically, I, I mean, you will obviously see uh, people just, you know, describing them as anime weeaboo army and giant mecha. You know, like if you like, you know, anime mecha suits, you will like the Tau, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but uh, the interesting thing about the Tau is they're like, they're like fluff wise, they're a relatively young race. They lean into technology in a way that the Imperium does not. Yeah. And. They also believe in diplomacy first, guns second, which is which is really unfortunate in a war game. <laughs> yeah, but when they need to bring guns, they bring guns. <laughs> yeah, they bring guns. <laughs> they bring lots of. They don't bring much else. They find melee combat to be distasteful, and they're not very good at it in general. But but no they they're an interesting faction to play their their culture is broken into a caste system but unlike caste systems in the human world which have been based primarily on some arbitrary social ranking in tau culture it's actually based on like 
tribal background. I'd I'd really say that the the castes are more tribes than anything, and even their yeah. history describes yeah. that. Where it's like you know the you know the air cast were originally like people in the mountains that used gliders, and the the earth cast you know did mining and li- lived in the mountains. Or, you know, yeah. like, did mining, and then the fire cast, like, lived in the plains and hunted, stuff like that. And so, the co- they've they've and maintained... Everything these. changed when the fire cast attacked, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, yeah, though, the whole, the yeah. idea of the Tao history is that the four, the four tribes were fighting amongst each other, and as often happens with war, there was sickness and plague, and they were, like, it was a, a species on the verge of collapse, and then one day, lights appeared in the sky over one of the mountains, and then from the mountains came Moses with these ten, commi- no, no, but pretty Things much. 15, with- teen, ten. Ten, ten Oy. commandments. <laughs> Oi. <laughs> no, but uh, Ethereals, a fifth tribe, comes down from the mountains and tells the, the, the four warring tribes, no, you all need to get along, and we're going to follow a, a system called the Tauva, which means in the Tao language, the greater good. The greater good. I was waiting for you to say it. <laughs> Shout That's going to get really hot, old. Hot fuzz That's going to get really old, but I'm going to continue to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the idea that if, if every tribe follows their part and com- and contributes their skills to the greater Tau people, that they will, they will survive, you know, from each according to their ability to each according to their need. Uh, insert mm-hmm. communist Tau joke here. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, so the Tau actually ended up prospering as, as a species and developed technology, well, spaceflight technology and started expanding into other planets. And to the, to the, you know, the point to kind of hammer that home, like how quickly they ascended, there was an imperial, um, scouting mission or you know that that like surveyed their a survey mission that surveyed the the original tau homeworld four thousand years ago in in lore i think and mm-hmm. they were just a backwater like nothing alien species like yeah no big deal nothing and they come back like a thousand years later and they've got rail guns and you know robot suits and stuff like that so like they are in the world of 40k where it's like this has been going on for you know forty thousand years They've came onto the scene very, very late and very, very quickly. <laughs> yeah, and it is strongly suggested that uh, they were uplifted somehow, that the yes. ethereals were engineered. Now, who's engineered them? We don't know. And how the uh, the ethereals got all the other tribes on board so quickly is also unknown. What is known is that basically if an ethereal tells another another tau to jump the tau will ask how high jump that high and then ask yep. if that was to the, the ethereals uh specifications they they follow the ethereals like with slavish devotion and there's that grim dark for you <laughs> there's the grim dark and, and yeah like there's no you know tribes aren't allowed to interbreed like castes aren't allowed to interbreed so if you are if you are a fire cast you you are going to mate and raise a family with somebody else from the fire cast and if you're earth cast you're gonna mate and raise a family with somebody from the earth cast and that's just how it is and everybody Mm -hmm. 
and there's suggestions that and there's it, like they they do discuss it in the book briefly talking about the ethereals and they they mention that nobody's really sure how it's done and cuz it's also no, almost nobody ever captures an ethereal because entire tau armies will fight and die to prevent an ethereal from being captured or killed yep like they are devoted to the ethereals with one key exception we'll get to that <laughs> And so they, it's basically a bunch of Adeptus Mechanicus, like, um, like biologist Majos, just, you know, Magi just kind of freestyling and trying to figure out how it works. And they're like, uh, maybe it's psychic domination. Maybe it's pheromones. Maybe it's racial hypnosis. Maybe it's invisible organic nanites. <laughs> and actually, the, the pheromonal control, there was a book that a Black Library put out years and years ago called Xenology, which was actually yep. a really neat book. I, I think it's considered non-canonical now, but yeah. it was a really neat book that was basically the – biology and dissection logs of a uh a biologist magi or magos and like they actually had an ethereal and they mentioned that there was like this weird crystal thing hidden behind the nose flaps on their forehead and that it was similar to the crystal thing that they'd retrieved from a completely different species that gave off some sort of pheromonal control and they're like are these the same and like it's one of those things like it kind of makes it seem like it's pheromones, but it's probably not that simple. But nobody really knows. Like they, like I said, that book is considered apocryphal now. So yeah. Uh, well, and even even if it wasn't, even if it was canonical, like even in the forty k world, just because a radical inquisitor says something, that doesn't mean it actually. It's this so. <laughs> is true. This is very true. And, and the psychic domination part seems unlikely because Tau yeah. are like not – I wouldn't say they're psychic nulls. They're not like quite to the level of Sisters of Silence, but they barely register in the warp. Yeah. Like I think it's been described like if a, if a human mind is a raging bonfire in the warp, a Tau mind is like a flickering candle. Just they have that little psychic – impact on the warp which also means it's very difficult for them to like be possessed like tau possession is like almost unheard of yeah and it also means they're incapable of warp travel <laughs> completely incapable right <laughs> at best yeah. the two things they figured out how to do is one they figured out how to uh they basically it's described as like skipping their ships off the surface of the warp they kind of bounce off the immaterium to go faster than light <laughs> Just kind of, it's some Tokyo drifting. It's I get it. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> and then they did manage in the last, like the last book in uh, Greater Good, and I think they mentioned this a bit in the, the Eighth Good. Edition Codex as well. There you go. <laughs> in the Eighth Edition Codex as well, they managed, like they were studying alien warp travel, and they managed mm. to open up a permanent wormhole through the warp to another part of the galaxy. And so now they've expanded through this thing called the Startide Nexus into another section of the galaxy. Um, although it didn't go well for the people travel. Like, basically, they built a bunch of warp drives. That's what it was. They built a bunch of warp drives, and they all tried to go through it once. And I mean, it went real bad. It rarely works out that well for the first people through, but the second or third group through probably made it. <laughs> 
Yeah, the ones that came back were kind of twitchy. <laughs> it, it weren't good. But, you know, those are just the dangers of being an expansionist race, which they totally are. Also, I mentioned that they use diplomacy. They're also one of the only races that actually has, like, meaningful, useful, symbiotic relationships with other species without yes. just slaughtering them. They, Which sometimes they bring into their armies as auxiliaries. Sometimes they're just, like, trade and development partners. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very interesting – just in general, like the Tau Empire is a very interesting counterpoint to several other 40k races. They're an empire in ascent, where the Eldar are an empire in decline. They, you know, they're they're not, you know, they're the opposite of xenophobic. Like they they rope in other species, which is the opposite of what the Imperium is. Like it's just a very interesting counterpoint. They're also still like you know evil mind control space communists. So like it's not all you know. It's not all wine and roses, but like it's just a very interesting counterpoint and to to some of the other armies in the game and like kind of a wholly unique thing to 40k because like some of the stuff of the things like, yeah, the big mech suits and stuff like that. But like they're not really like directly based off of anything else like the Eldar or like space Marines and stuff like that are. Uh, and I find that very interesting. Yeah, they this were is actually, my favorite race in the game. <laughs> yeah, no, they 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 are. Something that doesn't just have a straight fantasy analog. Yeah. Like, even Necrons, you can just say, oh, yeah, they're they're mummies. They're, like, Egyptian-style yeah, like, mummies. Yeah. They're tomb kings in space, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah, the Tau are something very unique, and I think because they are so very sci-fi as well. Yes. Like, it's... They, they just come across as something that kind of speaks to the wider nature of the galaxy that there's there's more than just what we see with like the old races as it were mm -hmm. yeah absolutely and they're a huge contrast to the to the imperium of man it's like you kind of get the impression like this is what the tau are what the imperium under the empire of uh, the emperor kind of aspired to be kind of aspired mm -hmm. to behave where yeah. they were, you know, they were doing the great work of of reconnecting human, you know, human uh, development across the galaxy, and trying to bring you know human colon lost human colonies back into the fold, preferably without fighting. But if they had to fight, they were definitely going to fight and take you over. And the Tau kind of do that same thing, but they don't play into like superstition or xenophobia or technophobia. And so, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's kind of refreshing, but there is just that slight grim, dark edge underneath it of, but mm -hmm. not everything is cool and kosher. <laughs> some there's, there's some weirdness going on. Yeah, exactly. Also one of the only races that uses robotic helpers. And I love pages 22 and 23 of the codex because they actually show what all the drones look like and what all the support systems look like. And it's the first time we've had this in a Tau Codex ever. <laughs> I've been playing this army since fourth edition and I've been guessing as to what like the different support systems are. Like this bit is consistently this. I have no idea if it's actually correct or not or until now. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. And so it's nice to see what all these are actually confirmed so i'm really grateful for those pages 
But uh, but uh, enough about uh, the the fluff behind the army. Let's let's get into the rules on this thing. And the this army is is interesting because like we've talked about a lot of armies uh, as Ninth Edition Codex has been rolling out, and a few have had like some of them are like. Yeah, like Custodes, for example, felt like really not that heavily changed except for having a few, like a new system layered on top of it. Or there have been forces that have had like existing systems they had kind of retooled to do, you know, to work in the new system better. And so like when this codex was coming out, we're like, okay, so what's going to happen to like the big rules for Tau, which were the greater good and savior protocols, which greater good (laughs) gave you basically free Overwatch and made you Overwatch better than anyone else. And then uh, Save Your Protocols was what allowed you to just shrug off any wound onto a drone. And then it basically became a mortal wound on the drone. And if the drone had an ability to shrug off wounds the way like shield drones did, you could make life really annoying for someone by just taking big blob units of shield drones and parking them next to something you didn't want to die. And it would just never die. Yeah, And we're like, how are they going to retool that for this edition? And we've talked about having wish lists for things like, I can jump, shoot, jump, come back. So you have like that mobility to jump out of cover, fire, jump back into cover, which was a classic Tau strategy for many years. Uh, up through what, about 6th up edition? Through or, or was it 8th? I think it was 8th edition when they did the big reset that they took it away. Because even in 7th, when kind of the the golden age, quote unquote, of Tau, um, yeah, like they they could still jump, shoot, jump. It just wasn't nearly as effective as lines of blocked infantry. <laughs> mm-hmm. But then Eighth Edition, that like that mobility was gone, and so Tau turned into a very static gunline army, and it was not mm-hmm. a terribly fun army to play or to play against. And then Ninth Edition, it was still a static gunline army which is terrible for an edition that's built around moving and capturing objectives. We're like, how are they going to fix this? And they've done some very interesting things about that. And as we go through the codex, we'll, we'll get to what those are. But starting off, normally this is one of those things where it's like, okay, well, I talked to you about like the, like some of the rules early on, but I'm going to have to jump ahead to the, to the army special rules. I'm not going to have to do that because I'll, I'll discuss that when we get there. But the army special rules on this don't really mesh with anything else before it. It's just kind of its own right. thing. Um, so as far as, as building a Tau army, um, everything has, you know, it's Tau and uh, Tau Empire Detachment has to have everything with the Tau Empire keyword, except for unaligned. A Farsight Enclaves Detachment is a different thing. Um, Farsight Enclaves are a group of the, t- a splinter group of Tau where they were sent to do an expansion as the tower often do. And a commander named Farsight was in charge of it. And during the expansion, they were fighting orcs and Farsight hates orcs. So he kind of got a little get, bit zealous and he had a bunch of ethereals with him on this, uh, this mission uh, accompanying him and his army. And they ended up on an abandoned world called Arthas Moloch. And while there, Someone killed all the ethereals. We don't know who. <laughs> Normally, if all the ethereals die, well, this this hunter cadre is getting retracted because they're going to get sent back home because, you know, you need to have ethereals leading you. That's just how things are done. And Farsight was like, no, I have orcs to kill and kept fighting and then just kind of dropped off the map. 
And everyone's like, oh, Farsight must be dead. Because obviously if he would have come back if his ethereals were gone because we told him yeah. to. And instead, years later, they discover, wait a minute, there's entire colonies of Farsight's army <laughs> that have set up on these planets. And there's not an ethereal among the bunch of them. And they apparently don't want any ethereals around and apparently don't really listen to ethereals. Like even if an ethereal comes and visit, they don't care. Yeah. Which is weird. <laughs> Well, and the other thing that's weird, too, is that with Farsight himself, he's hundreds of years old at this point, I think. And, like, and Tau are are a very, like, mostly short-lived race. Like, human-ish age, maybe a little bit less. So he is way older than he should be. But still looking young and spry. And even yeah. he doesn't – even he doesn't know why. <laughs> so, uh, as an aside on that, like, I know that in – one of the previous books, they kind of hinted at that it was the sword. Is that still kind of like the... Oh, no, they straight up say it. Okay, I wasn't sure if that was it. Yeah. Yeah, what they say is the Dawnblade, the sword that he picked up on Arthas Moloch, is uh, made of chronophagic alloys. They It eats time. Whenever he kills someone with it, whatever life they would have continued to live goes to him. So every time he cuts down an orc, however long that orc was supposed to live, it's his now. <laughs> I, by the way, I love sci-fi mumbo jumbo of like chronophasic blade. It's like that. It's a vampiric blade. It's a vampiric blade. Got it. Okay, yep. cool. I just, but I just love the like <laughs> sci-fi dressing on stuff. I think it's so great. <laughs> and, and it even says like, yeah, he, th he thinks it might be the sword, but he doesn't know for sure. But if he ever confirmed it, he would kill himself. Because yeah. which Farsight's like a with, good guy he, <laughs> with the sword. Because if he kills himself with the sword, that would be problematic. Because then you might create an infinite loop, and who knows what happened then? It's like he using an easy button, to find an easy button. <laughs> 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 so anyway, anyway, Farsight Enclaves Sorry. is another is one of these sub factions of Tau and its detachment. The reason they have detachment specific rules for that one is because there's. Uh, some special rules on army building. Yeah. So, uh, Tau Empire units gain the Cadre Command ability. You can only have one commander in each, you know, one keyword commander unit in each detachment in your army. Um, and if you're far sun enclaves, you can have two because they don't have ethereals, so they have room for taking more commanders. Far side enclaves detachment gain the independent power ability, which means they can't take ethereals. Or you can't include ethereals in the detachment. And now that you can't mix and match, uh, at least in match play, you can't mix and match, uh, like, septs, because they're a sub-faction, that means mm -hmm. you can't have them in your army in, yeah. in match play. And then um, Tau Empire units, exclu excluding Tau Auxiliary, which is the aliens that come along to help them, uh, get access to sept tenants, which is their chapter, chapter tactics, uh, effectively. And so the cha the the various septs are Tau Sept, which is like the OG Tau army, the the Tau from the planet Tau in the classic, you know, ochre and white armor that they used to use all for a long time before they changed up the color pattern that they use for armies now because it just the new one photographs better. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Chris Peach has pretty much said, yeah, we change it cuz it photographs better. Yeah, the white and red is a sharper look. <laughs> it it is a sharper look. But Tau Sept, their Sept Tenet is actually they used to be focused around the greater good. The greater good. 
See, I got to say it every time. It's just that's how it goes. <laughs> but uh, it used to be focused around that ability. Well, that ability, spoilers, is gone. There's nothing to, you know, that free Overwatch ability has been removed from the army entirely. Yeah. So what do we replace it with? Well, instead, they get an ability called uh, Coordinated Fire Arcs. Uh, any unit with this tenet is so when they're selected to shoot or fight, you can reroll one hit hit roll or one wound roll when resolving that unit's attacks. That is immediately a good ability because that is basically free CP all over the place. Absolutely. And then all their aura and non-aura related abilities are extended. Like anything that has a bubble around it is extended three inches, which means like ethereal abilities, commander auras, things like that are all wider areas, which means they cover more of your units, which is a good thing. And they also have the focused fire stratagem, which is a thing they used to ha- they had before, where uh, when you target an enemy unit and they take wounds from a Tau Sept model, then when a Tau Sept core, they did add the Tau Sept core keyword to this, so it's just core, which does mean a lot of vehicles and such don't get access to this. But mm-hmm. any other ta- time a Tau Sept core model from a unit attacks that same enemy model or that same enemy unit, um, you add one to the wound roll. So you're just more likely to stick wounds on a unit if somebody else in your army has already put put wounds on it. Yeah. Uh, there's Viorla. Viorla is strike fast. Uh, Viorla is a very aggressive Tau army. For, at start of your first turn, for each unit from your army that is wholly within your deployment zone until the end of the turn, add two inches to the move characteristic of models in that unit. So if they start in your deployment zone, they want to get out of it as fast as they can. And then you can reroll advance and charge rolls for them. So really just advance rolls because you're not really going to want to charge. But yeah. <laughs> not generally. There are one or two instances. Yeah. There, there are a couple of corner cases where you might want to, but generally advance rolls. And because yeah. a lot of the weapons in this army are assault weapons, that is not necessarily a detriment to you. No, that's that's very good. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's Sisea, uh, which their focus has always been on like urban warfare. Hence, their ability is named Masters of Urban Warfare. And this is one of those, if you are X inches away from me, you I, I am always considered to be in cover. So, like, if you target a vehicle more than 18 inches, if somebody targets a Sasea vehicle from more than 18 inches away, then the vehicle counts as having dense cover, so minus one to be hit. Or infantry more than 12 inches away. Or And vehicle and battlesuit models don't suffer the penalty for firing heavy weapons at enemy units within engagement range. So, like, if somebody gets up close to you and you want to fire a heavy weapon, traditionally for, like, big guns never tire, that's minus one to hit. That is no longer the case for Sasea. So, they don't mind getting stuck in and being able to use the big guns close up. So, they're better, like, they're harder to hit if you're far away, and then when you get close up, they can hit you hard, you know, hit you just as hard. There's Dalith. Uh, Dalith is a sept known for its diplomacy and working with their alien allies. And so part of that is they're also very well coordinated. So mm-hmm. uh, each time a range attack is made with an infantry unit. So this is kind of like the Sasea one. If somebody shoots at you and you're not in engagement range, so if you're not right up on you, you get light cover f- for your infantry. So plus one armor save. You always have plus one armor save on your infantry, which... Um, is is good because your a lot of your infantry doesn't have the best 
mm-hmm. armor saves. A lot, you know, it's, there's a lot of four ups in this army. Although there's also a fair number of three ups that you're going to see now. So that, that could be, be better than you think. And then the other thing is there's a whole tactical philosophy. We've actually talked about this in past episodes. We'll get to the, the guts of it later. But as far as, uh, like whether you're going to be playing aggressive or defensive, Normally, only Tau Empire units, not your auxiliaries, your alien allies, are affected. If you're playing Delith, your alien allies are absolutely affected. They do get the benefit mm-hmm. of it. Borkan. Borkan is all about uh, high-tech, uh, experimental weaponry, and scientific development. Their septennia is they make weapons better than anybody else. Uh, so their superior craftsmanship says all their ranged weapons... All the ranged weapons get four inches of extra range to every profile. That's a, That means that your base infantry units have 40 inches of range. That's correct. And those are rapid fire weapons. Insane. <laughs> yeah. There is, like, there is nowhere on the field that a Borkan army cannot touch you. And then each time a ranged attack is made with a weapon that has a strength characteristic of seven or less against a vehicle or battlesuit unit with that's Borkon, you subtract one from the strength of that weapon. Now, that's kind of interesting because it's not protecting you against strong weapons. It's protecting you against like those mid to weak range, like auto cannons and less, which mm-hmm. is a little bit weird, but it does keep like your vehicles that are like tough seven from being picked off by strength seven weapons. It won't help you against like las cannons and melta, unfortunately, but it, yeah. you know, against some armies that just try to hit you with uh like weight of fire and chip away at you. It makes, it does allow you to be a little bit more resilient. Well, it's going to, it's going to make your opponent fire their anti-vehicle weapons at your vehicles. Like that's, you know, rather than just chipping away at you with, with smart, you know, with uh smaller gunfire, like they're going to have to dedicate heavy weapons towards you. So, Right, right. And then they also have a fantastic stratagem called experimental weaponry. Uh, You pick a Borkon unit when they're about to fire. You pick a model and one weapon that that model is equipped with. And uh, until the end of the phase, each time that model makes an attack with that weapon, uh, your opponent does not get invulnerable saves against it. So... Kind of like the hammerhead that we've talked about in past episodes, but on any weapon you want. And there's, as yeah. we, we talked about the storm surge weapons, you know, I think last episode, that strength 16, 12 damage gun. Yeah, no invuln save for you. You can ruin someone's day with that. That's, yeah, that's the plan. <laughs> and then finally, Farsight Enclaves. Farsight Enclaves are a very... Kind of like Viorla, they're a very aggressive, in-your-face sept. And uh, each time a model with their tenant, which is Devastating Counter-Strike, each time a model with this tenant makes a ranged attack that targets a unit within 12 inches, that target is treated as having a marker light token. What does that do? We're going to tell you in a bit, because we're going to... uh, We will end up jumping ahead and talking about marker light tokens now that we've introduced the concept. And then each time a unit with this tenant is selected to shoot or fight, you, you can reroll one wound roll when resolving the unit's attack. So not quite as flexible as Tau Sept, but free, a free wound reroll is not bad. And it encourages you to be up in their face, which is going to get you that marker light token, which is going to give you a better chance to hit, which is not quite as good as a reroll a hit, but it's still pretty good. 
I mean, I would I would argue that getting the reroll on the wound is better than getting a reroll to hit. Like, it's nice with the the other one because you got the flexibility to choose. But mm-hmm. if it could only get one, I'd rather have the reroll the wound. <laughs> yeah, true. And then um, they do have a really neat stratagem as well called drop zone clear. Use the stratagem in your movement phase when a Farsight Enclave's battlesuit unit from your army is set up on the battlefield using Mantis Strike or the Homing Beacon action. Basically, you've deep struck in. Until the end of the turn, each time a battlesuit model in that unit makes a ranged attack, you can re-roll the hit roll and you can re-roll the wound roll. So it's kind of like the old uh, Dark Angel mm-hmm. ability when like a Deathwing unit would drop in and then they could just re-roll their hits and wounds. Yeah. There's some fun combos you can do with that with, when we get into weapons and stuff. Because Oh, yeah. There's yeah, some really good weapons. <laughs> well, and, and just some of the ranges, like they've reworked weapon ranges so, like, flamers, for example, they got the 12-inch flamer now. Yeah. So, that used to be a problem before, is, like, when flamers had, like, an 8-inch range, you couldn't, de- like, deep striking in flamer suits was a terrible idea because you couldn't actually, you know, once that 9-inch bubble was there from 8th edition, like, the flamers mm-hmm. couldn't do anything. And uh, so, they they fixed that and... Like, you could just go nuts on clearing out. Yeah. Like, you could drop next to it, like, within nine inches of an objective and just... Just barbecue everything. I mean, literally clear the drop zone. I mean, yeah. it's a very accurately named strategy. Yeah. And they do also have a way to create your own septs, your own collection of sept tenants. And I actually kind of like this system. It's very simple, but it's also got some complexity and some very specific like trying to avoid particular combinations and it's basically playing along the idea of different septs have developed as the tau empire has expanded and you know colonized worlds and then those worlds the people in those worlds develop particular philosophies and so the idea is you pick a sector they've got a map you pick a sector to start in and then that's where you pick your first ability, and then you have to pick from a neighboring sector where your second ability comes from. And so that keeps you from combining, like, for example, there's A is in the middle, to the north of it is B and C, and to the south of it is D and E. And so you can't have abilities from B and E together. But yeah. you could have B and C, or A and B, or A and C. A can have be paired with anything. And so it helps them prevent any weird combos that might be unintentionally overpowered. Yeah, it's a, it's a more organic way of, like, some of the restrictions. I remember, like, in the Sisters Codex, where they're like, this one can't be paired with this one, and it's just stated. I'm like, this is a way to do that, but to kind of do it in a more fluffy version. Yeah, and this is this book leans heavily into this this expansionist fluff too. Even in the Crusade rules section, it really hmm. leans into it in, a, in in some cool ways. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, we'll talk stratagems at the end. Um, prototype systems. This was something that was uh, brought in from the Greater Good and include and basically gives you ways to upgrade. They're not relics. And in fact, they specifically say they are not relics. A character could have one of these and a relic without any conflict. Mm-hmm. And you can put them on non-character models too. So they, they give us like they can go on commander models, crisis Shazvari, which is basically crisis sergeant models, crisis bodyguard sergeant models, and then ghost keel suit models, which there's only like one or two that can be put on ghost keels because it's specific to how they're set up but basically each one this is their 
you know, special unit upgrade that costs power level and points. Mm-hmm. Almost all of them are are weapon replacements, although not all. There are a few that aren't. But there's some real winners in here. Like, there's the advanced burst cannon, which the burst cannon is like the stock weapon on a crisis suit. And it's the stock weapon on stealth suits and things like that. The burst cannon, you can replace it with an advanced burst cannon, which has more shots, better strength, and better AP. And prevents anybody hit from it from ignoring using an ability that would ignore those wounds. So, like, a feel-no-pain ability nice. doesn't work against that weapon. Or the Thermoneutronic Projector, which is just a fantastic <laughs> name. Um and can go on a commander or crisis model equipped with a flamer, replaces one of the flamers with a different flamer. Normal Tau Flamer is strength four, AP zero, one damage. Classic flamer stats. And mm. although instead of D6 hits, it's D6 plus two. So it's a better flamer than an Imperium flamer. But uh, this one is so it's 12 inch range, uh, assault D6 plus two. Strength four, AP minus two, two damage each. So, fantastic flamer, although it does have one difference from the regular flamer. The regular flamer has the normal, you don't roll to hit, because it's a flamer. You know, it's kind of the Mm -hmm. template weapon type thing. Uh, This one doesn't. I don't know if that's going to get FAQ'd or not, because that seems like it should get eroded, even though, it you know, the better stat line and on a commander who has a ballistic skill of two up, it's going to be fine, but it's still an yeah. odd thing to leave out. But the other thing is it has a melee profile as well. Right. And when you fight, <laughs> you make D6 plus two additional attacks with a weapon, which are also strength four AP minus two, two damage. <laughs> this is a Tau you might actually charge in. Right. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm going to get spicy. within... I get within 12 inches of you, I'm going to flame you, then I'm going to charge you, and then flame you again. Yeah. <laughs> and punch like you it. at the same time. Yeah, no, it's, that one's fantastic. <laughs> I don't want to go through all of those. Those are two of the ones that have, like, immediately popped up. There's also, like, a plasma rifle that has a better AP, and no uh, invulnerable saves are allowed against it. Or a, a fusion blaster, you know, so a melt-a-weapon effectively that let like it's got a slightly shorter range but when you whatever you hit you draw a line between them and you and everything along that line gets hit as well nice so kind of doing the uh the lantern thing from that uh, mortarian has nice get into warlord traits i i I, you know what now that i'm the more i look at these because some of these uh do reference that we're going to jump ahead I said we weren't going to do this one. We go ahead and jump ahead to page 92 because we need to talk about philosophies of war and marker whites. So we've, we've mentioned the philosophies of war in a couple episodes past, but we'll, we'll cover them again. So the idea of the philosophy of war is Tao have two competing philosophies of, of how to fight. Uh, one is Montka. The idea is the killing blow. You pick a target, you hit it from multiple directions as hard as you can, and you take it out in one strike. Like, multiple overlapping attacks, just run at it fast, hard, and finish it off. The other is Kalyon, which is Patient Hunter. These are, because as I mentioned, the Fire cast originally, which is the Warrior cast for Tau, originally started off as Hunters in the Plains, and so you either pounce the target, 
or you waited very patiently and set up traps for it. Kalyan is all about, like, we'll set up feints, we'll send out bait units, we'll lure the enemy into a trap, and then when once we have them where we want them, we spring the trap and finish them off. Mm-hmm. And how this plays out is, first, like, if you pick one of those two philosophies, if you pick Montka, you can advance and move without any penalty. You count as having remained stationary uh, until the end of your shooting phase. So no penalty for advancing and firing assault weapons, no penalty for firing heavy weapons and moving, things like that. And then each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack that targets the closest eligible enemy unit within the range shown in the table below, which goes from 18 inches turn 1, 12 inches turn 2, 9 inches turn 3, you improve uh, armor penetration by 1 and reroll wounds of 1. So, you know, like, this is a very Farsight or Viorla-friendly uh, mm-hmm. philosophy. You get in close, you get, like, you you maybe you re-roll those advance rolls, or you get in close to get that that marker light hit and re-roll those, you know, re-roll wound rolls anyway. You, you get in closer and closer and closer. And so, but to take advantage of it, you have to be getting up close turn one, turn two, turn three. Turn three, it expects you to be within nine inches of the enemy to really get the benefit. On the other hand, if you take Kalyon, then you can shoot and fall back, but you, you take a minus one to hit, which normally you, you can't shoot at all if you fall back. So the idea is like you have that bait unit that gets, that gets charged while well, it falls back and then shoots again and then falls back and shoots again and, and you know, forces mm-hmm. that, that enemy to charge, charge deeper into your lines. And then each time a model in this unit makes a ranged attack that targets the closest eligible enemy unit within uh, 12 inches, if that model is not within engagement range of any enemy units and did not fall back this turn, it scores additional hits on an increasingly or on a number that gets increasingly better. So starting turn three, you get an extra hit on a six. Starting turn four, you get an un- an extra hit on a five up starting turn five. So last turn of the game, you get it on a four up now. And that's the other thing, those abilities that uh, the Kalyan advancing without any penalty or the, or the, the the Monka advancing without penalty or the Kalyan being able to fall back. That only applies in the proper battle rounds. Monka stops working after turn three by turns four and five. You better have it just about wrapped up. Kalyan doesn't start kicking in till round three. So, yeah, you do have to be patient when you're playing Kalyan. That right. that can be a rough go. Uh, and so the other thing uh, that I want to talk about is marker lights. Now, marker lights in the past have been a weapon that is carried by several different units in the game. And they it was always like a heavy weapon with a range of 36 inches. And you fired it in your shooting phase, sometimes instead of firing a normal weapon in recent editions, in addition to firing a normal weapon. And it was a weapon that didn't have any strength, didn't cause any wounds. But if you hit somebody with it, you marked them with a marker light token. And then you could spend that marker light token for any number of effects from like re-rolling ones to hit to uh, ignoring cover to being able to fire seeker missiles at them without just firing them wildly into the air or um, 
like eventually, if you got like, I think it took what four or five marker light hits to finally just get a straight plus one to to hit. Yeah, it, it was a weird escalating chart, and uh, it gave you some interesting flexibility and options, but it was kind of confusing, and not all you had to stack a lot of marker lights to be able to get things you wanted and. This new system is much better. <laughs> oh, yeah, because the way it is now, for, first off, they're leaning hard into the action system, which I appreciate. Like, if you're going to have actions, find ways to use them. Yeah. So the tau- the fire marker lights action, one or more marker light units. So marker light is now a keyword that a unit has. One or more marker light units from your army can start to perform the action on the start of your mo- at the start of your movement phase. This action is completed at the start of your next shooting phase, which will be the next the imme- the phase immediately after your movement phase. If the action is successfully completed for each model in the unit that is equipped with one or more market lights, for each marker light that model is equipped with, select an enemy unit within 36 inches, so same range as before, that would have been an eligible target for that model if the unit had been selected to shoot. And roll 1d6. On a 3-up, that enemy unit gains a marker light token. Now, that's per model. So a unit could end up dropping four, five, six marker light tokens on an enemy unit. And one of the first big things in this is 3-up. It's always on a 3-up. That was such a huge problem in the past because a lot of the units firing it had 4-up ballistic skill, and if they moved, it was a 5-up because it was a heavy, or they were drones that already only had a 5-up ballistic skill, and so it's like, well, maybe I'll get like two or three hits. Now, you can actually get a fair number of hits with this. Also, if you're a vehicle or a drone... Moving during the action does not cause the action to fail. So they have a lot of flexibility. So like marker light drones can start the action, move, and then you don't actually check to see if the marker light, like where the marker lights are going to go until after, until the end of the movement phase when the action is finished. You don't target it Mm -hmm. at the beginning of the movement phase. You, you say, okay, this unit's going to use your marker lights. You do all your movement. You then you actually test for the action. And can target so like you can you could pick a a marker light squad that like a marker light drones or like a marker drone squad that is in cover and say okay they're going to use marker lights and then they get to move into a position where they can target it and because they're drones they don't fail the action and they do specify that multiple units can use the marker light action so unlike a lot of actions you it's not like okay this one unit will do its marker lights this turn no everybody gets to do it and what do you do with those marker light tokens? When a Tau Empire unit, not an auxiliary, shoots at a unit that has a marker light token, they get a plus one to hit, and then you remove a token. So if multiple units fire at them, you just peel off tokens one by one until they're all gone. It is so simple. There's no extra abilities. There's no chart to follow. It's just you do an action on a three up, you get a marker light hit, and then other units can basically spend those marker light hits to get plus one to hit. Easy yeah. peasy, so so simple. Much more streamlined. <laughs> oh yeah. It also means there's none of that weirdness of okay, so you're charging me. I'm gonna go ahead and do Overwatch. Okay, so first I'm gonna fire my marker light guys because I might as well marker light. Okay, now you got marker light tokens. Now I can spend the marker light token to reroll ones to hit. And no, it's like this is only done during the shooting phase. You can't line up targeting lasers on somebody when they're running at you. <laughs> 
So that's just, it's a much simpler system and very, very good. So, so for example, that Farsight Enclave thing where it's like, hey, if you're within 12 inches, the target is always considered to have a marker light token. That's a free plus one to hit if you're within 12 inches of somebody. That's yeah. really, really good. Yeah, especially since this is a mostly ballistic skill four army. Yes. Yeah, mostly except for like characters. Characters are almost yeah. all two ups. So I wanted to get those out of the way so we can explain some of the other mechanics and like so the uh, the tactical philosophies also because they do come up in these. Yeah. So uh, you've got precision of the hunter. Each time this warlord makes an attack, you can reroll the hit and wound roll. That's that's always a, a good ability. There's through unity devastation. While the friendly sept core unit is within six inches of the warlord, each time a core model is and that unit makes a range attack on an unmodified ro- roll of six, improve the AP of that attack by one. Uh, that one's a little bit of a yawn fest. I think I think there are yeah. better choices. Uh, Ghost walks among us. Each time an attack is made against the warlord, subtract one from the hit roll, and each time the warlord advances, they just automatically advance six inches. Don't roll. Uh, that one's really good. That is just, yeah, you know, minus one to be hit is always useful. Uh, through boldness victory in your command phase, select a friendly sept core unit within nine inches of the warlord until the start of your next command phase. Each time a core model in that unit makes a ranged attack, uh, unmodified hit roll of six automatically wounds the target. Nice. Not bad. I, I'm not a big fan of the a uh, hit of six automatically wounds because especially with Tau weapons, a lot of them are going to autom- are going to wound on very yeah. good rolls anyway, and there's so many ways to get rerolls of wounds in this that we've seen already. That's true. That's true. The last two, though, I think this is why I wanted to explain the uh, the tactical philosophies, and I think these are some the a couple of the more interesting ones. Exemplar of the Kalyon. After after both players have destroyed their armies and determined who has the first turn, select uh, up to one friendly sept unit or up to three friendly sept units if you selected Kalyon this battle, and redeploy them. If the mission uses strategic reserves, any of those units can be placed into strategic reserves without having to spend any additional CP, regardless of how many units are already in strategic reserve. If both players have abilities that redeploy units roll off, the winner chooses who redeploys their units first. So, you've determined who both players have deployed, you know who's going first and who's going second. If And if you take this as your warlord trait, you're almost always going to be taking Kalyon. I mean, there's yeah. no reason not to. You get to read... So. <laughs> like, so if they read... If they deployed first and you know, like, what they're going to do, you can pull... Like, you can pull stuff off the board and just send it into reserves and have it come in, like, turn two or turn three. Yeah. Or if you're going, like, if if they're going first, yeah, like, you could pull stuff off the table. If you're going first, you can redeploy stuff since you know, like, you can play the army kind of defensively and like, okay, so no, I'm going to be going first. I'll go ahead and place myself aggressively because I don't have to worry about you popping out and shooting right. me. So that's that's actually a really cool ability. And then the other one is Exemplar of the Montka. In your command phase, select up to one friendly... Uh, core unit within nine inches of the warlord each time the start of your next command phase each time a core model in that unit makes a ranged attack that targets an enemy unit within nine inches or 12 inches if you selected Monka, you can re- re-roll the wound roll so you pick somebody within range of your warlord they get to re-roll wound rolls if they're close enough to the enemy yeah which i mean also fantastic 
there's actually a Cruise HQ now, one of the alien auxiliaries. Um, so they have their own set of warlord traits. I'm not really going to get into them. I don't think they'll come up much, but it's it's cool that there's actually they're actually theoretically playable as a an entire detachment of Cruise. So one one question actually before we move on from warlord traits, maybe I'm just missing it. So they they have the named characters in warlord traits as always. So Shadow Sun, exemplar of the Kalyan, Farsight, exemplar of Montka. For on she, they have a warlord trait listed that I don't see on the page. You're right, you don't, because on she is specific to Viorla, and so he's got the oh, warlord okay. trait. Okay, got it. Okay, I yeah. was like, wait so, a minute, what did I miss? Like, what did I miss? Okay, no, you didn't. You didn't miss. Okay. You did not miss one. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you, his is Academy Luminary. Um, each time you spend a command point to use a Tau Empire strategic ploy or it's war gear stratagem. So it has to be one of those two. Uh, okay. Roll a D6. On a three up, you get the command point back. So it's Got cool. It. Okay. It's very cool. Yeah. Although it is interesting that Farsight does not get the Farsight Warlord trait. <laughs> right. <laughs> Which he never has. Like whenever they like when they made Farsight Enclaves their own thing, he didn't get that Warlord trait. He got Exemplar of the Monka. Sure. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> okay, I just wanted to make sure. I was looking at that. I'm like, did I miss something? Or okay. <laughs> uh, then we get into relics. Uh, a lot of these are new. A couple of them have been are older ones. They got uh, upgraded. So, for example, one of my favorites. I think all. I think both of our. I think one of our favorites in general is the yeah. Onager Gauntlet. Uh, the donkey, donkey punch. punch. <laughs> the good old donkey punch. Now, it used to be like, it was like a power fist. It was like a strength 10, AP minus 3, like 3 damage punch, but it was minus 1 to hit. And it also only, or maybe it wasn't minus 1 to hit, but you only got one swing with it a turn. Yeah. Like, that was, they were very specific. Like, you could, it was, you could do your normal attacks or you could do one punch with this. I think it was minus one to hit because that was back when they were like when they were giving power fist minus one to hit and everything and like they were handing those out a lot. So I think it was fewer attacks, less likely to hit, but you hit like a freight train when you, when you do hit. Yeah, it was it was and it was it was an odd weapon for a Tau army because it's it is a right. purely assault assault weapon, but it was funny as hell. <laughs> it was fantastic to use. <laughs> Okay, no, it was not a minus one to hit. Oh, it wasn't? Okay. But each, but each time you fought, okay. you can make one and only one attack with the weapon. So, like, you got your oh, okay. your normal attacks, and then you got one, and out of those attacks, you got one with the, with the donkey punch. Now, that limitation is gone. You can do all your attacks with this, and it is now strength 12, AP minus four, three damage. No penalties. Yeah. It's It's fantastic. <laughs> But also, as amusing as that is, there's also the Bagel Hunter's Plate, which is a funny name, <laughs> but a fantastic piece of gear, plus one to your armor saves, and uh, you ignore wounds on a five up. Nice. So, I mean, that that is that is great. Um, there's also a couple of Kroot-specific uh, relics. Again, they're unlikely to ever come up. But again, I'm glad to see warlord traits and uh, relics that are yeah. useful for Crute. Like you could actually do a a Crute army if you wanted to. Like I could absolutely see that for a uh, you know like a crusade army. Like I'm you know just play Crute if you want. Well, so one of the things that's kind of interesting and and 
I, you know, we talk, we'll talk about it. Or I think we talked about it earlier about uh, the new Eldar Codex that's coming out. Like, there's going to be rules in that Eldar Codex to like play Harlequins and um, Corsairs in either a uh, Eldar or a Drakari army. It would have been really cool if they had incorporated a rule like that that allowed you to take like a detachment of Kroot and play them in like a different army as like just like yeah you can take like a patrol with this and they just and they don't break you know they just work as alien auxiliaries because that is the thing that happens where recruit mercenaries mm-hmm. team up and work in other armies that would have been a really cool thing to add and maybe that's something that'll get added down the line uh, uh, I but it's really absolutely- cool they're setting it up. I could absolutely see that happening down the line, especially now that we're starting to see like in the campaign books, the uh, like armies of renown where it's like if you take Mm -hmm. a very restricted list of units, you get benefits and like special warlord traits and relics and things like that. I could absolutely see a a Kroot mercenaries army of renown where you're playing Tau, but you just take Kroot, but they make your Kroot better type thing. Who knows? Maybe we'll get to see some of the other stuff that didn't make it into the codex in one of those uh, campaign yeah. books eventually. Because <laughs> Tower are due to be in a campaign book. Because yeah. we're like five in with Vigilus alone, and Tau haven't right. shown up once. <laughs> I mean, they've technically shown up in like the Kill Team, Noctum or whatever. You know, the the one with the uh, sisters. But yeah, like it's yeah. So they're, I, they're kicking around out there, but they're. I'm sure they'll be included in one of the big books going forward. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, and then um, past relics, uh, there is the invocation of the ethereals. Ethereals now work like chaplains, which makes sense. I think. Yep, I like um, it. Yeah, and it's they basically work the same way. Um, you roll. Uh, you roll a die and like on a three up the uh, the invocation is inspiring and does the thing. Uh, they aren't some of them are as good as they were before. Some of them are just like, but they've also added a couple of new ones. So, for example, a storm of fire used to give you like extra shots. Now it lets you uh, perform uh, ranged attack actions without failing an action. It lets you do ranged attacks without failing an action, which is always useful. In, in this edition where you might be using actions to score objectives. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sense of Stone still gives uh, a, a unit within six inches, and you have to actually pick one. It isn't just a bubble of everybody within six inches, and it only affects core units, but they get a five up, feel no pain. Uh, Zephyr's Grace, you pick a unit within six inches. Uh, each time a ranged attack is made against the unit as if you did not. So as long as you moved, you subtract one from the incoming attack roll. Power of Tides uh, lets a Tau Auxiliary unit, so you can actually use it to buff your Kroot, adds one to wound rolls whenever they make an attack for the turn. So that includes melee, which Kroot are actually vaguely good at. Yeah. And then the new ones, Unifying Mantra, um, you allow... uh, Tau units to re-roll morale tests within six inches or uh, add one to combat attrition tests. So it just makes your Tau less likely to break. And then the last one, Wisdom of the Guides, which I think normally Ethereals can pick two of these. This is one you should almost always have in your back pocket. Uh, If the invocation is inspiring, you gain a command point. So if you have nothing else to do, gain a command point. Yeah, (laughs) that's not it's not a bad one. (laughs) No, no. We'll skip the uh, chapter-approved missions till the end, so after we've looked at all the data sheets. Uh, the Crusade rules, 
I want to play around with these because like some of the crusade rules have like, you know, really weird construction things. This one, you are effectively playing a mini version of like master of Orion. You (laughs) generate a space system. You generate all the individual planets. Those planets will have diplomatic power and military power. You have diplomat points and military points. And then you are trying to basically absorb this system into the Tau Empire. And so you have to go through planet by planet and you either have to spend more diplomat points than, than they have equal to or higher. So yeah, so like they have a diplomatic score of four and you have four diplomat points. You can spend your four diplomat points to take that planet over. And if not, you can go for a military, which let's say they have a three military power. You can spend three military points and take over the planet that way. However, if you do a military takeover, you have to roll a die to see if you accidentally raised the planet while taking it or not. (laughs) If you raise the planet, you get, yeah, you get no, like you don't get any benefits from it when you add it to the empire. Oops, we did a genocide. Eh. Yeah. <laughs> there's your there's your grim dark folks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, every time you win a battle, your crusade force gains a military point. And so the idea is kind of like over a long enough time you're going to play this crusade army, you're going to earn enough military points to start taking over planets, but there's also a requisition called show of force that lets you spend like you spend a, a requisition point and then you can trade two military points for two uh, diplomat points. You basically like nice. flex your muscles and then like, see, that's why you don't want to fight us. Aggressive negotiations. Exactly. <sighs> and, and like the, one of the planets will be the core world and you can't take that one until you've taken all the other planets in the system. The number of planets in the system is random. The different, the kinds of planets that they are is random. And there's even a random chart for like, what is the temperament of the species that inhabits this system and that will determine like is it harder or easier to take them by diplomacy or military see now i'm now i'm thinking about this in terms of like role-playing games because i know we've been talking in our other conversations about like traveler a lot and i'm Uh thinking i'm like this would be really cool to set up a campaign where you just like use like a role-playing system to like play out the the diplomacy want, you know, stuff. And then when you go to fight a battle, you just break out the army and you fight a battle. Like, yeah, I don't know. It just could be really neat. <laughs> they even give you a photocopyable sheet of, for like a system and for like tracking your takeover of the system. <laughs> and you can't leave the system until you have taken everything over. So like, you can't just like screw the system. I'm going to move on and try to take over an easier one. No, you have to finish this one before you can move on. But I, I I just find that system amusing, and I really want to play around with it. Just like you said, that role playing aspect of uh, like, okay, so we've done our thing. Let's now let let's just let's talk this out. <laughs> and so now we get into uh, the Tau data sheets. Uh, one thing is there is a separate set of data sheets for drones. Uh, drones are interesting because once upon a time, and by once upon a time, I mean last edition, uh, drones were like, you could take units of drones on their own, or you could take drones with certain units. But when you did those drones then split off and became their own little units. And so you could end up having, 
a ton of little units on the table of drones, which you often didn't want to do because if a mission was kill point based, not that we do that anymore, but if a mission used kill points, um, that hurt you real bad. <laughs> right. But it also let you take a lot of cheap marker or cheap shield drones and then, oh, look, they're leaving the people that took them and going over to that riptide so it doesn't die ever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so now, um, first off, drones have uh, pretty consistent stat lines. There is four separate stat lines that cover the, like, dozen or more version types of drones. Um, shield drones are one of the only shield drones have two wounds now, uh, but they don't have a feel no pain, but they do have an invulnerable save. So that's how they made shield drones a little bit hardier is they can actually take two wounds. Almost all of them are strength three, tough four, uh, 10 inches of movement, four up armor save, leadership six. However, when, when you take drones now, you take them generally as upgrades for a unit and they're just models in the unit. And they don't count as being destroyed for, like, when they're destroyed, they don't count for morale. They are ignored for the lookout sir rule. They are ignored for determining whether a unit is uh, of half strength, half strength or not. They don't count for determining the unit's average toughness. They're just extra, extra dudes that don't count for thank, anything. Thank God they changed that rule because there's nothing worse than taking a Riptide and his two drones and realizing you now have a tough four unit. Right. <clears throat> also, a unit that contains only drones can't perform actions. They say it's because limited parameters. I argue that it's because they don't have hands. I mean, but there's other there's other units in the game that don't have hands that can do actions. <laughs> I think. I think it's just. I know it. Drones don't have hands. That's I'm, that's my now. I'm gonna my excuse. now I'm, I'm gonna start modeling it. all of my shield drones with hands. It's gonna be really <laughs> weird and creepy. <laughs> gonna look like one of those toys from sid's toy <laughs> sandbox in toy story <laughs> like the duck with the big muscle man arms on it <laughs> this idea is terrible and i want you to do it i know now i kind of want to do it <laughs> okay <sorry>. um, <laughs> also they talk about dock drones like once a drone is if a drone is included on a vehicle basically the drone doesn't count and the vehicle is just treated as having its weapons which easy easy like enough that. to handle and if the drone if the vehicle is destroyed the drones no longer automatically separate from the vehicle and remain the the basically the drones are just yeah they just become extra weapons on the vehicle much simpler yeah drones have the drone keyword they have the fly keyword they don't gain any keywords from the units that they are part of but even though they are not infantry and they will never pick up the infantry keyword from units they're with they are treated as infantry for interacting with terrain, so they don't screw things up if you have an infantry unit with some drones, and the infantry unit walks through the walls of the terrain, but the drone units get stuck behind. <laughs> Not that they can just fly over, but, you know, it's just like sure. they made sure that the, the drones interact with things the way infantry does, so to keep it consistent. Yeah. And there's lots of little drones. I'm not going to go into all the drone abilities... Like I said, shield drones have a four up and vulnerable save. Um, marker light, marker drones have marker lights. I mean, those these are the ones you're going to see most often. Gun drones, gun drones have, just have a gun. <laughs> they, they have two guns, and also gun drones are not smart. They can only target the nearest target. Who needs courage when you have a gun? <laughs> <laughs> 
but there's also a couple of uh, like special utility drones. Uh, there's a couple of drones that are specific to Shadow Sun. There's drones that are specific to Pathfinder units or Riptides or broadsides. Even the interceptor drones that are on the uh, like one of the flyers are listed under here as well. No, I do like that they listed them all out. I like that there's pictures of them and like it just it's very very clear like what they do and yeah it's it's great <laughs> yeah and now we get into actual non drone units um, we've got the uh, we've got Commander Shadow Sun she is she got an upgrade in uh, the Greater Good Phoenix, uh, Psychic Awakening book uh, that is pretty much the version she has now um, where she she is now Supreme Commander. So she can join and she can also join pretty much any army without interfering with their septenant. And her, yeah. she's basically got like a super stealth suit. It's minus one to hit her. She's got a five up invulnerable save. Uh, she can infiltrate. She has the master of war ability, which is uh, an ability that all the commanders have now, which is the, it, which used to be where you would pick Montcar or Kalyan. Now it's just the classic captain ability of core unit within six inches can reroll once to hit. And then she has the defender of the greater good, which is basically the chapter master ability of pick a unit that's a pick a character or core unit. They can reroll all hit rolls if they're within six or you pick them within six inches, they can reroll all hit rolls. Um, so she is basically a, the closest thing Tao have to a chapter master. Yeah. She's got uh, a couple of varieties of fusion blasters she can take. She's also one of the few characters you'll see that is customized, like named characters that is customizable in some extent. And she also just packs a lot of little weapons as well. So sh she can put out a lot of firepower. Um, she's got, I mean, seven wounds, three up save, five up in vuln, you know, minus one to be hit. She's decently survivable. She She's just a cool character to play around with. Yeah, absolutely. And then on the other hand, you have Commander Farsight, who is Farsight Enclaves. Um, he's got a four up invulnerable save, seven wounds, three up arm. So, you know, no minus one to be hit, but he's he's a little bit more resilient. Um, he also has a weapon skill two, which is pretty unique in the Tau army. And with five attacks... Uh, he's got a better plasma rifle than anyone at 36 inch range, assault two, strength eight, AP minus four, three damage. Uh, Tau plasma rifles got a major glow up and all do three damage now. Yeah. Which is just all of the phenomenal. weapons. All of the weapons got, got a glow. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, the Dawn Blade is got two modes of swinging. You can either strike, which is the classic. Doubles his strength, uh, minus three AP, three damage. So doubling his strength makes it swing at strength 10. Or you can sweep, which has it go at strength six, but doubles the number of hit rolls he gets to do and is minus two AP, one damage. So he can, you can either have him cut at hordes or go for big swings. So I, I really like this because as a Tau slash corn player, I like melee. Um, but like, uh, for, Farsight was always really good in melee, but he suffered from the problem of he was the only one that was good in melee. Now you at least have the option of like with some of the signature systems, you can load him up with a pair of bodyguards that can also do decent damage in melee. 
Um, plus the fact that crisis suits just got better and melee anyway. Um, and he's now has the ability to like do that sweep attack where it's like, yeah, if I'm going up against guardsmen, yeah, I'll just sweep and I'll just cut through a bunch of guardsmen. Like that's really useful in this army. You can't, you won't get tar pitted. No, you will not get tar pitted. He's got a couple of other abilities. One is tactical acumen, which we will see on other crisis commanders, and it basically, you select a crisis core unit within nine inches of, of the commander. And until the end of the turn, that unit can shoot and charge in turn when it fell back. And uh, each time a core model in that unit makes a range attack, you can ignore any or all hit roll modifiers. Did you advance? Ignore that hit roll modifier. Do they have a penalty? Do they have cover? that that? Do, are they in dense cover? Ignore that modifier. So he just makes your other crisis suits better, which is very apropos for Farsight because he's used to running with other crisis suits. And then his very personal ability, the way of the short blade, um, you select a Farsight Enclave's core unit within six inches at the start of the fight phase. And and until the end of the phase, each time a core model in that unit makes an attack, add one to the attack's hit roll. So not only is he better at swinging, he makes your other core units better at swinging if they're... Yeah. Yeah. So he and his friends can be a really solid unit to, to play around with. And uh, yeah, uh, Farsight, like if you're playing Farsight Enclaves, Farsight is a fantastic warlord to take. And if you take him, he has to be your warlord. But he is, I would definitely recommend taking him. And he's only a little bit, he's he's just a bit more expensive. He's only like 130 points. You get a lot for yeah. that 130. No, for sure. Um, we've got commanders in three different flavors of crisis suits. Uh, they pretty much have the same uh, weapon options, although they do have slightly different war gear options. Also, one thing to note on point construction, there's a couple of things here. First off, a lot of the war gear is free. Like if you take like a non-weapon war gear, there's only one or two that cost any points at all. Like the shield generator and the iridium battle suit, stuff that makes you more resilient cost points. Most other things don't. Uh, the other thing is the days of the quad fusion commander are dead. And that's Aww. because of how they've priced weapons for commanders and for basically for all crisis suit builds. It used to be weapons had a fixed cost. If you wanted to take four of something, you just paid that cost four times. And commanders can take up to four weapons. So, sure, why wouldn't you? Now, the first time you cut, you take a weapon, it has one cost. The second time you take it, it costs more points. The third and any subsequent time you take it, it costs more points yet. So, for example, that quad fusion commander now costs, let's see... So he starts out at 90 points. The first fusion blaster he takes costs 15. The second one costs 20. The third and fourth will be 25 points each. So you're talking like 85 points worth of gun to add to a 90 point model. Right. It, it's not cost effective to do it. It is far more cost effective to find two or three weapons that will either give you like Swiss army knife capabilities or that all kind of target the same type of target or are at least flexible enough. So for example, you could go with like a burst cannon to shoot at groups of enemies 
and then a plasma rifle and a fusion blaster to target elites and and or vehicles. Or you could go, I want to really focus on uh, killing hordes of enemies. I'll take uh, two flamers, which will be a little bit more expensive. Maybe 15 points for two flamers and then 10 points for a burst cannon. That's only uh, 25 points worth of weapon. But you're going to have a very dedic- like a dedicated role without mm-hmm. being ridiculously cost prohibitive. So I do like that they're encouraging mixed arms solutions. That is very good. Yes, you got the commander in the crisis suit in crisis battle suit. Uh, crisis suits now go ten inches instead of eight, which is fantastic. More mobility for this army. Yes, please. And then I mentioned that ability that uh, Farsight had tactical acumen. Crisis suit commanders have that as well. On the other hand, you've got the enforcer battle suit, which is like the, the newer, bigger commander they made. Um, only moves eight inches. He's a little bit slower, but he also has a two up save seven wounds instead of six. Um, he has hardened armor. Uh, every time an attack is allocated to him, you reduce the damage by one to a minimum of one. And he can pick a crisis core unit within nine inches of him. And until the start of your next command phase, they have objectives secured. One before we moved on, actually, uh, I was just thinking, did we cover the Battlesuit's ability? No, we haven't. We should um, probably mention that because that is a huge change as well and relevant to all the things that we're going to be talking about. <laughs> yes, yes. So Battlesuit's basically anything with the Battlesuit keyword basically behaves the way a vehicle does in close, you know, in engagement range and close combat in that you can shoot at something that you were engaged with. And Uh, If you shoot at something you're engaged with, um, you don't, like, if they're heavy weapons, you take a penalty of minus one. uh, But otherwise, yeah, you have to shoot the unit you're closest with. You can target Mm -hmm. something further away, but you have to kill everything you're engaged with first. So you basically behave like a vehicle, but without being a vehicle and thus being affected by anything that, like, specifically does more damage to vehicles and things like that. So it, it kind of mimics it kind of models that way that you are halfway between an infantry model and a vehicle. Also, well, and it just, it, it radically changes how, how crisis suits work now because, you know, Farsight, Shadow Sun, these commanders, your regular crisis suits all get to shoot their weapons when they're in melee. Like that's right. just enormous. Like, cause right. now and all of a sudden, isn't... like you're, you're able to actually do things in melee and, and rather than just stand around and, get punched (laughs) right and that is that is not in exchange for like i can punch or i can shoot it's during the shooting phase you shoot and then during the assault phase or during the fight phase you fight Uh, which also makes that uh, thermoneutronic projector even better because now you can you flame them going up to them then if you get stuck in you flame them during melee and then you flame them again when you shoot them and then flame them again during the next melee yeah (laughs) Now this this like I said this just radically changes how crisis suits work and and cuz the 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 problem with crisis suits always in the past has been they'd had no offensive punch in melee but they were right. always tough enough and had good enough armor saves that they wouldn't die quickly in melee so you would get bogged down by like a blob of infantry you would sit there and swing away and get your you know your four or five attacks or whatever you know whatever it used to be and you'd kill two two models and, you know, okay, 
I'm tying down a, a, a big unit of crisis suits with 20, you know, guardsmen. Yeah, I'll, t- I'll trade two of them every turn so that you don't get to shoot and you don't get to move away. Like, that's... <laughs> Now you get to, now you would clear that unit out very quickly because between the shots you're getting with the two or three or four weapons and the fact that there's ways to actually do melee damage now, yeah, they're they're going to be able to fight their way out of those those tight spots. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and but and so yeah, the, the, like a commander is a threat in any phase of the game. Because like commanders are still like weapon skill threes, no no slouch, strength five, yeah. four you know four attacks. They're dangerous to face in close combat, and the fact that yeah they can shoot you at ballistic skill two in close combat as well. Just you don't want to get into a fight with them, which kind of is an odd place for a tau unit to be, but a well, cool it's, one. It's, it's very interesting because it mimics. It mimics the thing that, like, Tau sh- are kind of good at in the fluff, where they talk about, like, oh, yeah, Thien's crisis suits are just devastating up close. It mimics it in the game, and it's like, well, it's not really giving them melee, because they're still kind of garbage in melee. They still don't have any AP. They're just strength. But they have other abilities that they can do in melee, and they have other things they can leverage so that they're still effective at those short ranges. Because before, you know, Valora was, like, a really good, you know, Really good step to take. You had to be up close, which meant you were susceptible to getting counters altered, and then you get bogged down and you couldn't get out of it. Now you actually have the ability to fight out of that. You're okay getting your crisis suits up in you know in the in the front lines because you can shoot your way out of it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you you don't necessarily have like we'll get to the stratagem. They've kind of brought up brought jump shoot jump back a little bit, but now if you mm-hmm. get caught, it's not the worst place to be. Exactly. So I, we were talking about the crisis suits, and I just want to make sure it's like, I didn't think we had talked about that. And that is a huge change. One Absolutely, of the huge yeah. changes to how this army plays. Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> um, but yeah, like, I like the fact that you've got the, you know, so like, you've got the commander in the crisis suit who's good at making your other crisis suits more functional in combat. You've got the commander in the enforcer battle suit who is tough as nails and can make your other crisis suits objective secured for a turn, which is fantastic. Yeah. Cause they can go in clear an objective and hold it off against anything. That's not a troop basically. And then you've got the commander in the cold star suit who has changed significantly. He is no longer a flying suit. He does move the most at 14 inches, but instead of being able to like advance, like move 20 advance 20 and like <laughs> shoot across the board. What he does now is once per battle, you can basically Pull him off the board and then deep strike him and redeploy him or put him into strategic reserves if you want. And then his specific ability to affect uh, crisis units is uh, you pick a unit within nine inches of wholly within nine or within nine inches of the cold star commander until the end of the turn. That unit doesn't roll to advance. It just advances eight inches, which they already moved 10. So you're talking about advancing, moving them 18 inches. Nice. So the commander in the cold star suit is encouraging very aggressive movement. So I do like that the three different commanders are not just, oh, these are in slightly better, like better versions of suits. Each one has a specific role that it plays. And because you're yeah. pretty much going to be taking a commander in every army, like you can tailor which commander you take to how you want to play. 
Um, we've got Cadre Fireblades. They used to be like the the easy to take cheap HQ slot. They still kind of are. But instead of just doubling the number of shots that you had, which was ridiculous, not going to argue very, that. Very ridiculous. <laughs> um, now it just uh, causes core units within six inches of him firing with pulse weapons to score an additional hit on sixes. So it definitely toned down than what it was before. Yeah. No, that, that's good. But he can also target Fire Warrior teams within nine inches of him and allow them to reroll hit rolls of one. So he's still a good utility character. It's just that he is only utility for uh, Fire Warriors, which you're not going to be castling up as much as you used to. So I don't mm. know if he's as useful. Uh, as a filler HQ to take up points in a Farsight army, maybe, since you can't take Ethereals and you're limited on how many commanders you can take, I could see taking him, because you are going to have Fire Warrior units in in your game. That, that's just yeah, a given. Sure. Yeah. Uh, you've got the Crute Shaper, which is your Crute HQ. He gets better, you know, better saves from cover. Uh, he's got the Ambushing Predators ability, which is something that all the Crute have, which is... Basically, a free seven-inch move at the beginning of the game, which so crew are you know fast. That's very nice, and he has yeah. an aura of crew reroll hit rolls of one. So he is basically a crew captain. Ethereals yeah. oh. we talked about. Uh, we talked about their invocations. They also have an aura of you can use their leadership, which is leadership ten. And they also have an ability called Inspired to Greatness, which is another ability that lets them pick a Tau Core unit and let it let them perform range attacks without failing an action. So technically, with the right invocations, they can do it twice, but it means you're less likely to take the invocation one since the Inspired to Greatness just automatically works. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, they have five other choices, one of which is just free command points. So no, no, that's not a problem. Uh, there, you've got Anva and Anshi, who are a couple of named ethereals, uh, which is funny because Anva is technically dead and has been replaced with a hologram, but he's still playable. Well, I mean, holograms put out pheromones too, right? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it's very really good technology. <laughs> yeah, a very stinky hologram. And his, his thing is he's basically a... He's a little bit more survivable because he's got an invuln save and subtract one from wounds against him. And then he can do more invocations than any other Tau. Yeah. Anchi is basically a close combat ethereal. Moving on, we've got Dark Strider, who uh, got a new model. And uh, his rules aren't terribly different. Although uh, he does have a, a group of little tiny drones that travel with him that allow him to reroll one hit roll and one wound roll, um, which is funny because he's also Tau-sept, so he would get that anyway <laughs> because he is Tau-sept. And you can't, I don't, I guess it would allow him to reroll two, but you just couldn't reroll the same one twice. Yeah, that'd be, in, yeah, be interesting. Because those abilities should works. stack. Yeah. Um, he gets a free move uh, at the beginning of the, the game. He allows uh, you pick a core unit within six inches of him and you target one enemy unit that he can see. If that unit, if the unit he selected is shooting at that unit, then they add one to the ruined roll. That's his structural analyzer. And he has the target upload ability, which all pathfinders have. And uh, 
that basically says he can start the fire marker lights action at the end of the movement phase rather than the beginning. So he and Pathfinders can get into position. So they kind of work like drones, but not exactly. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't have the Pathfinder keyword. It would have been, you'd think it would be easier to say vehicles, drones, and Pathfinders aren't affected by it. But since they didn't give him the Pathfinder word, they just gave him a special rule that does it. Yeah, six and one, half dozen the other, I guess. Right. And he's he's got a marker light, and he's got uh, a he's got a uh, pulse carbine that is twenty four inch assault two strength five AP minus two two damage. So he's no slouch in shooting either. Yeah. If you are playing Tau Sept, he's not a bad add on character to throw in. And then there's Long Strike, the other uh, named character for uh, Tau Sept, who is you know we we've talked about the Tau Railgun. In a previous episode, it is as ridiculous as it sounds. Strength 14, yeah. AP minus 6, D3 plus 6 damage, causes 3 mortal wounds if you successfully wound the target. Um, yeah. Now, they did tone down his ballistic skill. It now starts at a 3-up instead of a 2-up. Oh. <laughs> but if he's... Targeting a monster or vehicle, you add one to the wound roll, which you don't need because you're already guaranteed to be wounding thing- almost everything on a th- on a two. <laughs> well, I guess you'd be wounding anything tough eight or higher on a three, so yeah. this would still get that to a two. He can he has the targeting array ability that all hammerheads have uh, that he rerolls a hit roll, one hit roll when resolving its attacks, and then his other thing is he can pick. Because of his battle suit, he can wear, pick a core or hammerhead unit within six inches of him. And until the start of your next command phase, they every time they target an, a, a unit, that unit that they're targeting is treated as having a marker light token. So he basically can give another unit plus one to hit. So him and another hammerhead can do some real nasty things. <laughs> the downside is hammerheads and long strike by extension are still only tough seven, three up save, yeah. 14 wounds. So it's not the most durable of gun platforms. Yeah, I mean so, you can get one shot you can get one shotted by a by a hammerhead. <laughs> <laughs> Actually no you can't. Because the, uh, the hammerhead can do a maximum. Oh no, I guess of not. Tw- yeah, twelve. Yeah, you can get solidly bracketed by, a, sure. by another hammerhead. <laughs> sure, but you know, you, tough you seven. Get, you can get one shot by a storm search for sure. Oh yeah, <laughs> but tough seven basically means he's at the mercy. Like he and other hammerheads yeah. are at the mercy of anti tank weapons. Anti tank weapons yeah. will clean up against hammerheads, and so I think you know the. The point cost of hammerheads didn't really change much, and the railgun's like practically free. I think. Yeah. Let's see. Yeah, I, hammerhead. Yeah, I think it's included. The railgun is free. Yeah, so yeah. it's like, I mean, long strike is 160 points, which a normal hammerhead is 145. So he's like, they're not amazingly expensive, but th- they couldn't make them more durable without unbalancing yeah. them. So no, I, I they're, get they're it. They're very fragile. Like yeah. and they're going to be targets. Like you, you put a hammerhead on the table; it's going to be the thing your opponent shoots at first. Oh, absolutely! So they'd be foolish not to. Uh, let's see. Then we get into troops. We've got our two flavors of fire warriors: the strike team, which carries the pulse rifle, kind of the iconic Tau rifle. 
36 inch range, which has gone up from 30. Uh, rapid fire, strength five, which had always had AP minus one, one damage it is probably the best basic troop weapon in the game. Oh, for sure. And it has been forever. Like that's, that's always been their thing is like, we have the best guns. Yeah, we don't. You know, we're ballistic skill force, we rely on support, and we get, you know, just wrecked in melee. So, like, they don't have great saves, they don't have great toughness, but we got it good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Another thing about uh, strike teams is, and fire, like, all the strike team and breacher teams, the two fire warrior teams, they used to be able to take them in units of five and go up mm-hmm. to, like, ten or twelve. Now they are fixed at size ten. So you cannot like take minimum size squads like the new minimum is 10 which is yeah. fine because a a devilfish transport fits 12 so you can take 10 and two drones or 10 and a couple of characters yeah no it, it's fine like you do lose a little bit of flexibility with that but if you were taking five man strike team units you were basically doing it because you were trying to just fill out the minimum like the minimum amount of troops to to put your commanders and stuff in. So I'm fine with this. Like you have to spend mm-hmm. more points on them now, which is fine. That's yeah. <laughs> no, totally agreed. I think, th- I think making them, a m- I- getting away from like min maxing unit sizes is, is fine by me. Yep. So that's the strike team. Then we've got the breacher team, which is the not close combat, but the close and personal like shotgun team, which usually ride and devil fishes get dropped out and, blast in people's faces their weapon the pulse blaster has two modes uh you select one of them so you don't have to like measure against the target and see which band affects them which was a mess if you were attacking somebody that like had a big unit that might fall into like multiple zones now you just pick one of these two one is eight inch range assault two, strength six ap minus two uh one damage or 14-inch Assault 2, Strength 5, AP minus 1, 1 damage. So basically like a shorter-ranged uh, pulse rifle or closer up, it does more da- or you know stronger and better AP. These guys are still great for clearing off objectives because, I mean, a unit of 10 of them dropping out of a Devilfish is going to unload 20 shots mm-hmm. at you. And like if you're playing Monka, if you're playing like Farsight Enclaves, like there's... There's a number of of factions in here or ways to do this that can really maximize uh, breacher teams. There, I think you're going to you started seeing a lot of these because Farsight Enclaves was one of the few Tau factions that did passably well. Uh, you're just going to continue to see more breacher teams being used. I, I think they're just they're a very solid choice. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we've got Crute Carnivores, which is the the true the Crute. Troop choice. They are the cheapest at six points per model. Uh, they also have a crap armor save at six up. <laughs> um, but that's like you take them because they are cheap. You take them because they are a good screening unit. They get that ambushing predators ability so they can strike quickly. Um, they have stealthy hunters. So if they're in cover, they get a they get like two added to their armor save instead of one. So in cover, Kroot have a four-up armor save. That's yeah. not bad. Also, what's interesting is they added a Kroot pack ability. If your army is Battleforged, then for each Kroot Carnivores unit you take, you can include a Kroot Riders, Kroot Hound unit, and Kroot Shaper unit without taking up any battlefield roll slots. 
That's pretty None nice. of those units are very expensive, so if you want to go Crute Heavy, you just need one troop slot to be able to do that in, and it doesn't take up any of the rest of the stuff that you might want to devote to, like, Elites or Fast or Heavy or anything like that. Yeah. Um, now we get into Elites. We've got the Crutox Riders, which it's a Crute with a minigun. <laughs> it's a Crute yeah. with an autocannon, basically. And four wounds. That's about it. Crisis suits. Uh, we've talked about crisis, the crisis suits and how they've been improved with the battlesuit keyword. Uh, when we talk to commanders, um, crisis battlesuits themselves, yes, they're still moving. Uh, they're moving 10 now instead of eight. Uh, they also gained a wound. So they are now four wounds each. So they're even more resilient than they were before. And they were already decently tough. Make putting them at four wounds allows them to shrug off a lot, even in addition where we're leaning more into like two damage weapons. Mm -hmm. And then crisis bodyguards are slightly more expensive crisis suits who can also basically uh, prevent characters from being targeted with ranged attacks if they're within uh, three inches. So uh, crisis bodyguards, if you're if you have commanders that are likely to get you know shot at and you know like they're either going to be out in the open or like if your opponent's going to positioning and you want to protect your commander bodyguards not a bad choice stealth suits are basically the same as they were before they infiltrate um it's minus one to hit them if they're in cover they get an additional uh plus one to the saving throw in cover stealth suits effectively have a one-up armor save <laughs> yeah they were, and their base gun, the burst cannon, got better by getting two more shots. So, yeah. now, stealth suits are one of my favorite units in the game, and I don't see that changing anytime soon. If you are playing Kalyon, a stealth suit is a very good way to go. Uh, ghost keels, which are basically very big stealth suits, they don't get the benefit of cover because they aren't infantry. They're huge. They actually have the vehicle and battle suit keyword. But they can infiltrate. Uh, it's minus one to hit them. And they come with a special set of drones called stealth drones. As long as you have a stealth drone in the in the unit, uh, they can't be targeted by ranged attacks unless they are the closest eligible target or they're the enemy unit firing is within 18 inches. So if they can stay at arm's length, you can't shoot at them. Yeah. And they've got a couple of decent guns, including the Cyclic Ion Raker, which is a 36-inch gun. So I can shoot you and you can't shoot me. That's a, I, that's I don't a solid think trade. <laughs> yeah. Now, I used to use Ghost Keel. Like, Ghost Keels had, a, a, like, a different set of rules entirely. But I used to uh, use them as, like, I would infiltrate them in and play kind of aggressively, knowing that, like, if you tried to shoot at me and I had stealth drones left, uh, you'd be at, like, minus two, minus, like, three to be, like, you'd be very hard-pressed to hit me. Of course, that stopped working in 8th edition once they said you couldn't have more than a minus, you know, minus one to hit total. Yeah. Um, and with this, like, with these changes, you don't want to play them close up aggressively at all. You you kind of want them to hang back, maybe in no man's land. Like, you can deploy them outside your deployment zone but you're not necessarily going to try to get up in your somebody's face with them yeah which is why it's kind of like it's because the other option it has is the fusion uh, collider so it has like a 
better, uh, basically a, a multi-melter as its other option. And like, yeah, it's good. That's 24 inch range, but you're going to want to take the ion breaker. I think just because you're going to want to stay back. You're not going to want to get that close. Yeah. Which is a shame because the fusion collider is a fantastic weapon. Yeah. I mean, it really heavy is. three strength nine AP minus four D six with the, the melt boost. If you're in half range, I mean, it's a fantastic anti-vehicle weapon, but yeah, I don't want to get within half range if I can, if I yeah. can help it. Cause if, if I'm that close, I'm too close. Yep. Um, Firesight Marksman. Uh, this listing is a little weird because you have to remember that drones have their own data sheets elsewhere in the book. You don't buy the drones as a heavy support choice now. Oh, that's, that's so much better than, cause that was one of the tricks, quote unquote, in the last book was you could take the marksman and then not buy the drones and you just had a marker light platform and it filled out a, it, it was really dumb. It, it was. It was. Th- this is, yeah. <laughs> so now you get, he comes with three sniper drones, uh, but the drones still have the sniper drone trait. So if somebody's marksman gets killed and the sniper drones are still around, the sniper drones could move up to him and be affected as well. He, but he can only affect one sniper drone unit at a time, which is almost always going to be his own. You can't add more smart or more sniper drones to the unit. It's just him and three. And until the start of your next command phase, um, he makes the sniper drones have a ballistic skill three, lets them lo- ignore lookout, sir, and do mortal wounds on on hit on wound rolls of six. So basically turns them into sniper weapons mm-hmm. and the unit can't be selected as a target for range attacks unless it's the closest eligible target. So it's kind of like the ghost keel, except it's a 12 inch instead of 18. Um, he's interesting. I don't know how much you'll see him on the table. Yeah. Sniper drones have always been a very interesting idea that have never been been as good as other options there's there were like one there was a brief time like i actually have a number of sniper drones because there was a brief time when yeah you could take firesight marksmen separately and then you could take a couple of units of sniper drones and they were pretty effective because they had decent guns themselves now the guns aren't quite as good they aren't definitely aren't as good without having the the marksman around and it's a little bit more unwieldy to have him and the three drones because the drones also have to stay in con or in, you know, they have to stay in coherence with them. And yeah, it's, it's a little bit weirder than it was before. Speaking of drones, there's the unit of tactical drones. Now we're getting into fast attack. Um, used to take people used to, people used to take this to take a big blob of shield drones. You're not going to see that anymore. Shield drones yeah. will be taken with units or not at all. Yeah. Which is good. What you're more (laughs) likely to see is marker drones, because a big group of marker drones that can move around, do marker lighting, which doesn't care about their their ballistic skill of five, and they can move and still perform the action. I think you'll see marker drones more. You might see gun drones, but I think if you're going to see any group of drones, it's going to be marker drones. Pathfinders also come in units of 10 with no flexibility there. However, they do have the flexibility of you can trade out three of their uh, pulse carbine marker light combos for special weapons, including the rail rifle and the ion rifle. The rail rifle is not shabby. At all. Rail rifle's real good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the ion rifle's not bad either, 
Although, if I was going to use the the uh, ion rifle, I would want to have a commander nearby so I could overcharge it and reroll those ones. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, like, 90 points for marker light support is, like, it's a decent chunk to pay. But being able to splash in, because you're going to be hitting with marker lights two-thirds of the time, and unless you're having a lot of units gang up on that one unit that that unit of Pathfinders is is targeting, um, I don't think you lose too much by splashing in, like, rail rifles or ion rifles. I think that's actually a good choice. Yeah, I think that the having to be a unit of 10 and the way that marker lights work, I, I don't... I think it actually kind of makes sense that you would splash in other weapons just because you're still getting to shoot and the shooting phase is normal. You're still able to like move around and do things to position those weapons. But also there's going to be some diminishing returns if you just take a unit of 10, dump all of your marker lights into one unit, you're probably not going to use all of them. So you you do have some flexibility to to throw in a few weapons here and there. Yeah. You I don't think you're going to see people drop like the th- two or three units of five pathfinders that we used to see. So instead you'll see like one and then maybe a couple other sources of marker lights in the army. Yeah. Um, let's see. Piranhas. Uh, piranhas actually got kind of interesting. Uh, first off, they can outflank. You just put them into that. It's not strategic reserves. You just put them into behind enemy lines. And then during reinforcement step of one of your movement phases, you can set them up within six inches of any battlefield edge, so long as they're more than nine inches away from any enemy models, and their guns are all upgraded compared to the normal versions. So, like, their burst cannon is an extra strength. Their fusion blaster is D6 plus two base damage, D6 plus four if you're in half range. So... I, I think piranhas actually do have a role as like you can, they can actually absolutely fit in and, and do something interesting in the game. And then there's Vespid. Poor Vespid. I mean, they're not terrible. They're, they're still Marine killers. I mean, Oh yeah, they're absolutely Marine specifically killers. all they are, but <laughs> they're not. Yeah. They're, else, they're, but. they're, you know, weapons skill four, ballistic skill four, um, 14 inches of movement, able to do that that pull off the table redeploy thing you know re-deep strike in their gun is assault two strength five ap minus three two damage like i said it'll kill marines dead yeah their biggest problem is that they are tau auxiliaries so they don't benefit from any of the other like sub faction rules that they don't benefit from your philosophy unless you're playing dalith i wouldn't play vespid outside of dalith honestly yeah i don't think you get enough out of them so I, I do like that they changed the strain leader a little bit so that it doesn't complete. I mean, it, your leadership tanks if he dies, but it doesn't completely render the the unit useless if he dies. And I, it would have been interesting if they'd like done something with the strain leader. Where like, oh yeah, if you take the strain leader, you can give him an upgrade that allows him to take orders in other units or you know other cadres or other uh, seps. Like, I don't know, it could have, there could have been something there to maybe make them a little more useful, but... There used to be a rule on strain leaders that because they had the translation helmet, yeah. they could use, like, as long as the strain leader was there, they could use marker light tokens. I yeah. think that rule would make Vespid very good. Yeah. I think Vespid would actually have a, a place, because otherwise, marker lights specifically say auxiliaries can't use them. 
Yeah. And so having Vespid able to use them would be huge. This is but, the closest Vespid have come to being useful in the, what, four or five codexes we've reviewed now of Tau? <laughs> they're still yeah. not a choice you take, but they're closer to being useful. I so think they're a unit that if you're taking them in the right build, they're not terrible. And that's yeah, that's a long way that they've come, but it's still not great. Yeah, I can I can dream of a, I can dream of a of a useful scenario where like they would be not a bad choice to take, which mm. is an upgrade. So, <laughs> uh, let's see, crude hounds. Uh, crude hounds are basically bite your face a salty crude, but the big thing is they can reroll advance and charge rolls, which is not not bad if you want crude assaulting. Yeah. And now we're getting into heavy broadsides. Um, broadsides got a couple of interesting things. First off, they are core, so they benefit from a lot of the reroll auras and things like that. They are infantry, uh, and they're already starting at a two-up armor save. So a unit of broadsides in cover is extremely resilient. And honestly, they are probably a better railgun platform than... The Hammerhead. While the Hammerhead does have the ridiculous no invuln saves, um, the Heavy Rail Rifle, two shots per broadside. And by the way, the Heavy Rail Rifle is the stock choice, so it is free. Yep. As opposed to the High Yield Missile Pods, which add 20 points total. But the Heavy Rail Rifle, 60-inch range, which is still more than enough on the smaller tables of 9th edition. Heavy 2, Strength 9, AP 4... Or AP minus four, D3 plus three damage, and they still cause a mortal wound when you uh, successfully wound, which you are likely to do with strength nine. Right. Like <laughs> a unit of two of these would be really good. Like a unit of two of these could just put out some withering f- anti vehicle fire. And then on top of that, they can have twin plasma rifles or twin smart missiles. Uh, the high yield missile pods are not bad. They are now AP minus two, two damage each. So uh, high yield missile pods will still they'll put out four shots each. So you're talking eight shots per pursuit. Uh, still not a bad choice. They can't take shield generators. They're already resilient enough, but they can take shield drones or missile drones. Broadsides with shield drones would still be decently resilient because you can just have the drones take damage first and then and then you get to try to whittle through the eight wound (laughs) tough five eight wound two up save broadsides who are probably going to be in cover so yeah broadsides are are probably the best railgun platform just because they have the potential to be more resilient than the uh, uh than the hammerhead yeah yeah definitely and their battle suits, so they could fire those rail guns. They'd be at minus one to hit, but they could fire those rail guns in close combat. <laughs> or, you know, somebody Oof. engagement range. Oof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> uh, we've got the Riptide, which got moved from uh, elite to heavy, which is fine. I think heavy support is where it belongs because it is that yeah. big. Yeah, it just means I can't take three of it and three hammerheads. Or three, sure, you can't. You, know. just, you just need to take wow. a, a spearhead detachment. Sure. Yeah, you just have to get a little more It'll get expensive it. to do that, <laughs> although Riptides are actually slightly cheaper than they were before. 
They really haven't changed a whole lot other than their shield generator is now a four up instead of a five up. So they are a little bit more resilient. Uh, and actually they have the same toughness and wound profile as a hammerhead as well. You know, tough seven, 14 wounds, but a slightly better save. Um, same movement profile, same ballistic skill. Uh, the guns are quite good. Heavy burst cannon and the ion accelerator still put out a ton of strong shots. The interesting change to the Riptide is the Nova Reactor, which now no longer does mortal wounds to you. Instead, when you use it, you roll 2d6, and if it's more than the wounds you have left, it burns out and you can't use it for the rest of the game. So if you're at full wounds, you can just use it with impunity every turn. The minute you start taking damage, you run the risk of losing the ability, but at least it's not bleeding you to use it. So I really do like that. Yeah. I won't, I I won't be able to lose a game because I, uh, I killed myself with the Nova reactor in close combat. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I I like, (laughs) I like this take on, on the, uh, the Nova reactor. Yeah. Uh, and because they improve the invulnerable save, you can no longer boost it to a three up invulnerable save, but instead you can give yourself a five up feel no pain. So again, you can make the suit really resilient if you want to. Yeah. Otherwise the, like the boost, you know, being able to make a, a move during the charge phase or being able to increase the number of shots your guns do that. Those are pretty much the same. The riptide's not a bad choice. It just, you know, it effectively just moved to a different slot. If you liked Riptides before, they're still a good choice. I don't think you'll see triple Riptide lists, though. I think there's just other other options for flexibility that you don't and, need to And to be down. fair, that was, that was always a bad thing to be like, oh, we're going to take three of these in every army because they're so good. That was that oh, absolutely, bad yeah. game balance. <laughs> no, no, it was bad balance. <laughs> when we talked about long strike, we talked about the hammerhead. So the same problems that long strike has, the hammerhead has is that it's not a very durable gun platform. It's a very strong gun gun platform, but not a durable one. Yeah. And then we have the sky ray. And I think the sky ray may get the may, may be tied with the devil fish for the most improved vehicle. Cause the sky ray used to suck. Like, right. there was a period when Flyers first came in that the Sky Ray was really good, and then it sucked. And now the Sky Ray is really good again, because first off, it's a vehicle that has two marker lights, so it gets two chances to use marker lights and can move while doing it. And they replaced its weapons. It's still technically Seeker missiles, but you don't need marker lights to fire them. And instead of firing, like, you have six Seeker missiles and you can do one at a time. Now, the Seeker missiles, which all Seeker missiles are now 72-inch, like, heavy one, strength nine, AP minus three, 2D3 damage. Like, Seeker missiles actually put out a lot of damage and mm-hmm. you don't need a marker light to fire them accurately. The Skyray Seeker missile rack, first off, the missiles are not one use only in this case. And second is the type is now heavy D3 plus one. So every turn they're putting out two to four of those strength nine AP minus three, two D3 damage shots. Yeah. <laughs> now sky rays can do a ridiculous amount of damage. Also, if they're attacking aircraft, 
you add two to the attack's hit roll, and you can re-roll the damage roll. We see a lot of anti-flyer things that will make life difficult to flyers. A sky ray will pull a flyer out of the sky in a turn. Oh, for sure, yeah. Because most most flyers do not have the toughness to take four strength nine shots. Like, no, they potentially in a round. Like, that's yeah, that's gonna wreck anything. And having marker lights, so you can get a plus one to even counter the aircraft's hard to hit that would apply a minus one. So it's like, yeah. Although add two to the attack's hit roll does seem to break the rules of all at all bonuses max out to plus one. I assume the reason they say add it's add two is because it's it's to get over that hard to hit roll because like there's the normal minus one, so this counteracts that plus you get plus one. So. Oh, fair enough. So I think okay. I think that's probably how they're what they're what it's intended. They may they may have to clean up the wording on it. Yeah, but uh, that way you can marker light something other than the flyer. Although again, mm-hmm. with the cap on flyers now, it's not as important. But Skyray, the the fact that they're not penalized for firing at non aircraft and they're still yeah. just good to fire at anything, um, like. A hammerhead and a sky ray together are not a bad combo if you want to go like tank heavy. Yeah. Uh, then we have the devilfish. The devilfish went up in points like about twenty five points, but man, the reason that it did there, there's a couple of good reasons, and it's tied to your battle philosophy. Did you take Monka? <laughs> then it gets a free nine inch move at the beginning of the game. Did you take Kalion? And if you're using strategic reserves, like at the end of any movement phase, you can take the devilfish off the table and put it into strategic reserves. <laughs> so, and that's on top of any redeploying you did with Exemplar of the Kalyon. So, like, you can have units ready to go towards other objectives in devilfish. And if you're playing Kalyon, you just take them off the board. They have to be within nine inches of the battlefield edge. So you just move them to the battlefield yeah. edge, and at the end of the movement phase, blip, they just go off the board. And then next turn, they come in somewhere else. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> no, devilfish are real, like, they're really good transports now. And they are only slightly, have one wound less than uh, hammerheads. But, but yeah, I mean, the Devilfish is solid. Also, the the stock gun on the Devilfish, the Burst Cannon, has been upgraded to an Accelerator Burst Cannon, which is eight has eight shots and is strength six, AP minus one, one damage. So even their main gun is better. Devilfish are really good, and there's a strat that makes them even better. Um, there are Tau Flyers. And next, moving on. Um, I'm sorry, they are still lackluster. The Sunshark Bomber has a bomb now. It does have a bomb, and those bombs are not bad. It can do up to, like, 10... 10, It has the potential to do up to 10 mortal wounds per turn, which is not bad. But the cost on both these flyers went up, and I think that was under the assumption that flyers can be overpowered and spammable. And uh, I just... I don't see the bomber... I don't see either of the flyers being worth taking. They never yeah, have been. They still don't. Um, we get fortifications in the form of the t- the tide wall stuff, um, which they basically turned into open top transports, which is actually a good way to model them. So I'm fine with that. Which gets rid of some of the other weird issues that you sometimes had with like if I put this thing that shouldn't be on a 
<laughs> on a piece of fortification on it, and I can't move it for some reason. Can the can I get around that? Yeah. Well, the the drone port could technically move itself, but it's not a vehicle, so it doesn't count as. <sighs> Actually, they do all have the vehicle keyword now too. Right. Yeah. Now they do. But like uh, before, that was the argument. Well, if I put the storm surge on there and it doesn't move, I can I still move it here? It's not technically embarked. Doesn't. Ugh. Yeah. I get I get where people come from when they say Tau players are exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> we are very much extra. <laughs> also, because the uh, like crisis suits and broadsides got the infantry keyword, they can actually go onto the dr- the uh, tide wall. Yeah. Well, I take that back. Broadsides can't because they have more than five wounds. But crisis suits can on the drone port. They can't go on the shield line, but they can go on the drone port. And they can go on the gun rig. Yeah, I've always I've always been interested in the Tidewall stuff. Like, I always think it's a very neat idea. It's always, it always seems like it's just a little too expensive. Like, I don't know. Like, I, I think there's a list build that you could use to leverage those, and it could be really fun to play. But I... I haven't cracked how to use them properly yet. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure if there's if there is a viable build for them, but I'm glad they've kept them and have updated them and have made them, I think, more functional than they've been in a while. So I think yeah. they're, this is like the best version of them we've gotten so far. Yeah. Uh, and then we have the storm surge, our last entry in uh, in the data sheets. Um, the storm surge now is properly a walking tank. Um, it's gone up to tough eight, 22 wounds. It's got a two up, four up. Uh, like you don't have to buy the shield generator separately. It just has it. And we've talked about this one because they, they talked about how they changed the stabilizing anchors to be an action that basically just trade your movement phase for reroll all your, all your hit rolls and shooting. Um, the guns are ri- the like the pulse blast cannon is ridiculous. The pulse driver cannon is also still very nasty. We you know we've talked about the the pulse blast cannon because it's the one that at twenty four inches is strength 16, 12 damage. But the pulse driver cannon is not bad. Seventy two inches, heavy three d three, strength ten, AP minus four, three damage blast. Uh, you will ruin somebody's day with either of those guns. Yeah, and then. Like, you know, everything else, the cluster rocket system has 4d6 shots. Um, the destroyer missile, you've got four of those. Each one is basically it's a seeker missile, but it's at strength 12 AP minus five. And then there's you can take burst cannons or flamers or air bursting frag projectors. Uh, I can take uh, like it has a velocity tracker stock, so it is better at shooting against units that fly. <laughs> I mean, it's like the storm surge is really a tough nut to crack. Like it's it's majorly improved. I would love to see a list that runs three of them in a supreme in a super heavy detachment because they yeah. also the storm surge is only at three hundred and thirty points. If you take the blast cannon, which is the one that does the ridiculous damage, it's three hundred and forty points. Yeah, no, that's insane. Like that's surprisingly affordable for what it does. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the, the storm surge is a really good Lord of war. Um, I would not hesitate to run one, even under super heavy auxiliary, you know, just to splash one in. Mm-hmm. And then this takes us back to strats. 
like there's a number of strats for making like breachers better or strike teams. Uh, there's one called onboard sensors that uh, lets one of your fire warrior units that is within six inches of a devilfish uh, reroll hit rolls of one if they're targeting an enemy unit within 24 inches. Like that one's good. There's like crisis suit. Like there's units that buff up like all your basic like units that you're going to see a lot battle suits, fire warriors, crisis suits. There's a few special ones under Epic Deed. These, I think, are some of the more powerful ones. Um, we've got Savior Protocols, the new version of that. Basically, you kill a drone within uh, three inches you know, of a model that's taking damage. You just straight up destroy the drone and reduce the damage to zero. It's much cleaner. It can only be done once per phase, and it's so less abusive. Yeah, I agree. It's, yeah, making making that a stratagem means you can do it once and it's really powerful to do once like that's going to come in clutch but you can do it once and i that's right. so much better that's yeah right where it should be um branch nova charge returns but it basically stops your uh riptide from being able to from uh burning out once per game any particular model can't won't burn out like you can use this to avoid burnout once per game on a particular mm-hmm. riptide and then combat debark uh debarkation um I mentioned that Christ, or I mentioned the Devilfish got those boosts with like their Kalyan and Montcost specific abilities. Um, this right here is what will make Devilfish builds, or at least any army that's using Devilfish, especially with Breachers, to just be utterly brutal. At the start of your movement phase, if you picked Montcost and you're on turns one through three, or you picked Kalyan and it's turns three through five. You select three devil up to three devil fish in your army. Otherwise, you select one until the end of the phase. Each time one of those selected models moves after it has moved, the models in, inside can disembark instead of having to wait for it to be still for a turn. You can fish a fury with this. Yeah, I like that. Fish of fury <laughs> is back in a big way, and it no longer requires the ridiculousness of well, my units can see under the under the devil fish, so you can't. But you can't assault me because the devil fish is too big for you to charge uh, around. Those again, tau players are so extra. <laughs> they, they are, but this being able to just. Like if you're taking Monka, you get that free movement at the beginning yeah. of the of the game, and then you just rush up, you know, because Devilfish move up like twelve inches. Twelve. So yeah. you've already so you've had nine inches of free movement, another twelve inches, and then disembark these, you know, the tau inside up to another like nine inches because the three inch disarm bark plus their normal six inches of movement, and suddenly you have breachers. Who are right up in your face? If you're and you're playing Monka, they you know if they had to advance, they're not going to suffer any penalty. You're definitely within 18 inches, so you're going to have uh, breacher guns at AP minus three and reroll wound rolls of one. If you're playing at far side enclaves, they get plus. You know they they're treat you've treated the target like it's got a marker light on it. I mean, when you put a you put a, a cadre fire blade in there and you get to reroll your ones, like <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Or you use Breach and Clear, which is a strat that says the target won't receive any benefits of cover, and you can re-roll the wound rolls. Mm. I mean, like, you can stack benefits for, like, Breachers or Strike Squads and just go nuts with this. I mean, this is a very powerful stratagem. 
I mean, yeah, we've got strike and fade again, which is our, you know, jump, shoot, jump stratagem that you use on a jetpack unit. That's great and all, but I think that did emerge. I think that, you know, I think combat debarkation is better. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. And, you know, there's a couple of strats that make your crew better. I mean, there it's like they've really tried to make sure that crew are a viable, like, army build choice, which I appreciate. Yeah. And, like, there's another thing, another uh, set of things, like, that are tied to particular keywords. Like, if you have the counterfire defense system keyword, you can spend a CP to basically reduce damage from an incoming attack to one. Or, here's a nice one, the repulsor impact field for battlesuit units. It used to be a piece of war gear you had to take. Now it's just a strat you can use for all your battlesuits. Whenever somebody declares you a target of a charge, you spend a CP, they are at minus two inches on their charge. So, you know, it's a good way to, without having to lead into Overwatch, you can just kind of keep them at arm's length. If you do go with Overwatch... One of the pieces of war gear you can take is an early warning override, which lets that unit overwatch for zero CP. And it lets you overwatch on fives instead of sixes. So you can still get some of those kind of mid-range taub, like a couple of addition back taub bonuses that you used to have, but uh, without having to get into the weirdness of greater good and overlapping and like overlapping overwatch circles and things like that. I, there's a lot of tools in this in this codex, and one of the things I'm seeing is like there's a lot of very viable builds. Like I'm seeing a yeah. lot of options. There's I don't know. Like I think the auxiliaries are probably one of the weaker points of the army, and I think hammerheads. I don't want to say they're a trap choice, but I think people who lean in too hard to too hard to hammerheads may be a bit disappointed. But there's a lot of really good options in this army and a lot of mobility too. a lot of encouragement to move around, redeploy, mess with your opponent. And that's what this army needed. Well, like I said, like I had stopped playing Tau, you know, basically towards the end of seventh edition um, for two reasons. Corn Demon Kin book came out, so I was playing that. But Tau got very static. They have very samey feeling. You know, you, you were encouraged under that book to stand in a corner and, you know, overlapping fields of fire and, and do all that. And I just was kind of got bored of playing that because it wasn't, you weren't, Tau don't engage in the psychic phase. They don't really engage in the melee phase. And then if you're also not moving around, all you're doing is you're standing in a corner and you're throwing buckets of dice at people and they run at you. And that's that gets boring after a while. It does. This very much encourages you can still do that. You can still play that castle, you know, defensive gun line army, but this allows you, you know, encourages you to get out and move and get closer and get up in people's faces and, you know, like really be aggressive. And if you get stuck in, you're not just completely stuck in the, you know, in the melee phase. You're still not great in melee, but with crisis suits being able to shoot, you can clear things out. You can clear out smaller units. You're not completely shut down if you get charged. So I think they've done a lot of really interesting things to make the way they play more engaging and more fun while still being distinctly Tau. You know, they didn't solve the problem by like, yeah, we're just going to get everybody power swords at, you know, at AP minus one in, in melee. It's like, no, they've got interesting Tau specific things to to handle melee or short range and they retain the flavor of the army and play differently than everyone else does 
I, I think that's the important thing is that while they've changed a number of the rules from the previous version of the codex, at no point do I look at this and say, well, now it doesn't feel like a Tau army. If anything, I look yeah. at this and like, this feels like what a Tau army should feel like. And I've always been somebody who has played my, I like I've played the castle game. I absolutely have. Mm-hmm. And because like you said, that was one of the only viable ways to play. But I've also really like, I love playing Farside Enclaves. I love playing oh, with yeah. like the eight when it was, it's not, they're not in here, but I loved that aggressive style. I'm one of the few people I know who would use Riptides like really aggressively. Like people, yeah. it would throw people off because they're like, why are you coming at me, your town? I'm like, yeah, but this guy's big. Deal with him. <laughs> <laughs> and so I have Devilfish that I haven't used in like three two or three editions i'm looking forward to using them again yeah because they're gonna be really good in this yeah no i i'm excited for this because this feels it feels like it's a much more dynamic army to play and that's what i liked about tau that's what this was tau was my first army into 40k this is what drew me to them was like the cool robot suits and like the the way the the tanks and the devilfish are designed like they look sleek they look like they should be moving and like doing stuff and like i didn't i never felt compelled to go back to my tower for the last several editions a because they were garbage and b just because i was like they don't the way it's forced to play right now is you're either static gun line or you're taking a bunch of drones and i don't want to play that i i i can think of like five or six different army builds out of this book that i'm like oh yeah that'd be fun to play is it going to be good I don't know if it's going to be great, but it's going to be fun. I'm going to have fun with it. My opponent will have fun. Like it won't be, you know, it won't be a boring game. And that's really the the big thing I want. <laughs> oh yeah, and this is one of those armies that I mean, I think there's some some real potential for it to be very strong out the gate. At the least, I think this is going to be another one of those like gatekeeper armies where if you cannot deal with this army, you don't move forward. Well, I will say this, and I think I think you're absolutely right about them being strong out the gate. People who play Tau have play have been playing Tau for the last three or four years, while Tau has been garbage. They they know this army better than anyone else, and like if they're still playing Tau the last several years, they have a deep love for this army. They they really understand the tactics and they understand how things work. So I think this army or this codex is going to give this army the tools that a general that's familiar with the equipment and the units in here really going to give them a leg up. And I, I could definitely see them coming right out of the gate and start winning events and start competing at, you know, at, at, at events at a high level because you've got an experienced player base that just got a massive power boost. Because if you, you know, there were people that were, you know, not winning events with Tau, but placing and you know being in the you know upper half with tau before those players that have stuck with it and played this army for the last three or four years are going to immediately vault into the upper tier with this i I think somebody picking the army up may not immediately vault to the you know to the upper tier it's not going to be a uh you know pick it up and it's an auto win army but i think if you understand the army and you know how to play it i think this is going to be really fun to play oh absolutely absolutely uh, and speaking of playing, the last thing we'll look at is the chapter approved rules, the the missions for this, your secondaries. Um, you've got uh, for shadow operations, aerospace targeting relays. This one basically has you place an objective at the middle of each table edge. And then your infantry units can 
like perform an action at they start it at the end of your movement phase at the beginning of your next command phase it's done and that basically installs a uh, targeting relay on those objectives and at the end of the game you check to see how many targeting relays did you successfully install and that determines how many points you got um, so ranging anywhere from two points if you only have one all the way up to maxing out at 15 if you get all four which of course that one at the back of your opponent's uh, de- you know deployment zone is going to be you know on their table it's probably going to be the hardest one to get mm-hmm. but uh, with some of the things you can do with as fast as this army can be with uh, some of the ways that you can redeploy units in some cases, uh, it's actually going to be like you should even easily be able to get nine points. That's three of them because you'll obviously grab the one on your own backfield and the two yeah. on the on the edges should be easy grabs. So I see shadow operate or I see airspace targeting relays being a very regular pick for Tau players. Yeah. There's decisive action under Battlefield Supremacy. If you selected Montka at the start of the battle, then at the end of your turn in battle rounds one, two, or three, score four victory points if you control half or more of the total number of objective markers on the battlefield. For Kalyon, it's turns three, four, or five. This one's rough because if I would not take this one if I was Montka, because getting half the the objective markers turn one is a pretty big ask, even with some of the, the crazy movement things you can do. Like, yeah, that's, that could be tricky. If you're doing Montka and, like, you're going second, maybe, like, you can, or, you know, or, well, I guess it'd be the end of your, yeah, I guess it'd be at the end of your turn. So, actually, you'd want to go first. If mm-hmm. you're able to, like, jump out with, like, the, the hammerhead, or the hammerheads, the devilfish, do your, you know, do your movement, your your nine movement mo- advance do the, you can get to some of those backfield ones and hold it till the end of your turn but man if you don't get it or you know or they they have the ability to to counter that you're just you're hosed because you're only going to be able to really get that on the first turn so right. i don't know yeah i i yeah that's rough <laughs> right and like you still have to pick your secondaries like you pick them after you've deployed but you don't pick them you pick them before you find out if you're going first or second yeah. so yeah it, if you're playing monk ha and you don't end up going first this one's going to be real hard because especially like if you're using devilfish you that movement of nine inches could just put your ass out in the middle of nowhere to get shot at yep. so mm-hmm. that's not great um also the fact that you cannot max out on points on this it only goes up to 12 yeah this one's a hard a hard take now for um, Calion, i think I think there's some possibilities there because three, four, five with the ability that you have with Kalyan to like bring things in reserves and bring things off the board edge and redeploy. I think it's more viable that way because by, by turn, by turn three, four, five, you're hopefully going to have whittled your army, you know, your opponent down. You're just the, the risk that I see with Kalyan is the fact that how many games go to turn five, you know, how many games actually get all the way through turns four and turn five. And like, that's the risk you're taking with those. I think it becomes a little bit easier, but you might run out of time. Right. You you have to kind of make sure that you've got your opponent cleared out by like turns three or four, you know, yeah. to the point where they can't stop you. Now, granted, that is half the objectives or more, 
most games are running like four or five objectives on the board, so it might not be that hard. Those missions where you have six on the board, that could be yeah. a little bit tougher because you've got to hold three. And generally, at least two of those are going to be in no man's land. So it's doable, but that Kalyon or not Kalyon, the Monka one on turn one is the really, could be the really tricky one if you're not going first. Uh, and then finally, under No Mercy, No Respite, a clean victory. Uh, again, this depends on if you selected Monkai or Kalyon. In both cases, it's turns one, two, or three, or three, four, and five. And you basically score a victory point if one or more enemy units were destroyed that battle round, and three victory points if three or more enemy units were destroyed in that battle round. Fortunately, you've got three rounds to do that, and you do have Alpha Strike capability, but again, it maxes out at 12. And turn one, again, if you're not go like if you're playing Montka, if you're not going first, this could be hard to put yourself in position for. If you could make sure you were going first somehow, or move your like do those like any of those first turn moves get into cover or get out of line of sight and make your opponent come forward and then pounce them? Maybe. Mm. I like I like this one better for Montcov than like trying to hold the objectives because I could see you being aggressive and like getting in there and like trading unit for unit, you know, and, and like, okay, I'm gonna kill a unit, but I don't mind sticking a unit of fire warriors or breachers out in the open because they're gonna take a unit or two down. You know, like I could almost see that being a mu- I see that being a much more viable tactic than all right, I'm gonna put this breacher unit out here and then I'm gonna sit on an objective and get shot at. <laughs> yeah. On the other hand, Kalyon has the problem of on turn five, there may not be enough things to kill to get your points. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so neat. Like one of these is definitely like decisive action is better for Kalyon because it's easier to hold objectives later. Clean victory is easier for Mokka because they are more geared towards killing targets early in the game. So yeah. I don't know if like it, it would depend on what other missions, because again, you can only pick one Tau mission per uh, right. Yeah, that's true. You know, per game, so like aerospace targeting relays is probably the easiest way to get nine points for sure. Like all of these are going, like two of them are impossible to max out. One of them is going to be hard to max out, but doable. They're not. None of them are bad, but like you've got to play. Like you'll have to play smart to pull off. The the yeah. last two, I think. I uh, yeah, I agree. I think it's. I th- I like that they're kind of a different spread of of options. Like I do like that, but yeah, um, yeah. I think the aerospace targeting relays is the one that you would take if you take any of the three, unless you're oh, specifically yeah. building, you know, for one of the other objectives. Mm-hmm. No, agreed. But. Yeah, so that's, I mean, that's pretty much the book. Obviously, there's, you know, individual relics and strats and things we haven't touched on, and I'm sure there will be combinations of those that will be found that will unlock special magic, you know, in competitive play. But but honestly, I look at this book, and like, I don't think Tau players could ask for a better set of upgrades, honestly. Yeah. In a way that doesn't make the army a chore to play or play against. Now, will it be frustrating to play against for some people, especially if tower very aggressive and getting right up in your face turn one possibly, but in a good way. Yeah, no, I, 
we we talked about before that this this army desperately needed an upgrade, and you know, I I think this addresses most of the concerns that I had. It upgrades all of their weaponry, it gives them more shots, gives them you know some ability to stem the tide with you know without giving them just mail you know melee units. Yeah, it it really answers a lot of the questions that I had with how does a Tau army going to work, and it and it answers them in a, in a way that still feels like a Tau army, which is good. Oh yeah, and yes, it's still an army that does not play in the psychic phase, but as we've seen with the success of Drukari and Admech, that is not necessarily a weakness. Yeah. So, but you are definitely playing in two of the the phases of the game. Like, I mean, everybody's playing the command phase, so that one doesn't really count. But it's like you are definitely playing in the movement phase. You are definitely playing the shooting phase. Depending on your build, you may even do a little bit of play in the close combat, you know, in the fight phase. Because, like, if you're playing, like, Farsight is a capable fighter all the crisis the various commanders are capable fighters there's a couple of builds you can take that can really even lean into that um so like you can make it maybe not an assault army but an army that is a bad idea for somebody to assault you know it's kind of that you know make make these questionable choices but i'm also seeing just a lot of viable builds like strong builds definitely, but also just like even from like a narrative or fun standpoint, there are plenty of builds that while they may be a little bit lower in the power level can definitely work. And there are cases where like, you know, as we talked about, even Vespid and Kroot could be viable choices, you know, or just like for crusade armies, fun and functional. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think, I think when you're playing a tower army here, I think you're, target priority is going to be huge. I think hammerheads are going to get shot at first and they should be. Um, you're going to, you're going to try to take out like things like marker lights and pathfind, you know, pathfinders, marker drones, stuff like that. But I think it's gonna be a fun army. And I do think that they're going to, that they're going to move up towards the top of the meta right now, at least in the short term, because I don't think a lot of people are used to playing them. And I think the people that are used to playing Tau are really going to be able to benefit from the, from these boosts. Yeah. Well, and as we saw, like, with the top eight for, you know, LVO, like, Custodes came out of the gate swinging. Mm-hmm. And people are already seeing, like, like the Crusher Stampede is something that was just added recently, and it's been very successful. Yeah, I think, yeah, Tau will definitely disrupt the meta. I think they will come in, they will come in strong, and we'll have to see what matchups are, are and aren't good for them. And how they can deal with the current things that are big, but it adds one more factor to the to the field that you have to account for. So it will definitely like this book will definitely shake things up. But I think Tau players in general are going to really have fun with this. Just remember that you can't like the ways that you have been playing through now because you know up to now because that's how you've had to will not necessarily apply. Like if you just try to play this as a castled up army list, you probably won't have a good time because I don't think you'll be leveraging everything that this army can do. Yeah. And that takes us to the last part of the show, which is hobby progress. Um, Last episode, I mentioned that I was building a super secret model that I could not tell you about. I can now tell you I was building the brand new dark strider model. Uh, 
lovingly provided to us, as with many of these things, by Games Workshop. And I have to say, oh boy, that was a that was a tricky model to put together. Um, not because he's difficult to assemble the parts, like a lot of the newer stuff is very well, you know, it's, it's like practically seamless when you put it together and the pieces go together quite nicely. The tricky part is getting him off of the sprue without anything breaking. And the reason for that is those tiny little drones he's holding, they are like, they're connected to his hand by like little spines, at the bottoms of the drones. And I could not trim him off the sprue without them bending. So I am very lucky that they did not break off. Um, GW has really been pushing the envelope as far as like what they can do with uh, tiny pieces and tiny joins and things effectively floating in midair because there's just a tiny point of contact between it and a larger component. And I've re- I, I've mentioned this before in a couple other models, but I really are starting to th- I'm really starting to think that they're going to hit the limit of what they can safely do with plastic before long, and this one might just be about there. I we mentioned when we were talking about the uh, Eldari Corsairs at the you know and earlier in the episode, and I said that bird's gonna fall right off that guy's hand because you know that point of contact, whether it's glued or not is going to be tiny. And like the the dark strider model looks great, but man, it was it was, I was so nervous once I started realizing like, oh yeah, the act of cutting him off the sprue is damaging, you know, risks damaging the model. That's not ideal. So just be aware of that if you are playing town, you get the new dark strider. He is a, you have to just be very, very delicate when removing him from the sprue. So you might look at rather than cutting the, the drone, like where the drones are connected to the sprue, instead of cutting at that point, you might try cutting the edge, like a chunk of sprue out with it. So they're still connected to the sprue. And so then once he's put together, you can hold hold the contact point and the drone like in your hand very carefully and then trim the sprue off of the drone there so that you're minimizing how much bend could it could happen because otherwise yeah it could get it could get bad it could get real bad um and then otherwise what I'm going to be working on is I'm working on Bellacore and I have a second super secret model that I'm working on that I'll be able to talk about next episode as well. <laughs> Is it the Tau Manta? So, no, <laughs> no, I d- do not want, do not want. Um, I do not wish to live in interesting times. <laughs> I mean, the mouth, like the, the Manta is <clears throat> the Manta would be a thing of beauty if somebody else built it for me, but I don't yes. want it. I, I don't want that. Um, it's funny. It's like this week on, like my partner likes to browse Woot to look for, um, just, she likes, like she'll browse the, uh, toys and games section and then just send me a message like, oh yeah, by the way, this is for sale and this is for sale on Woot. And I'm like, yeah, but do I really, 
I, I don't know if I should really buy that, but that's <laughs> cool. And one of the things they have on there, and they're going to have it for a few more days because I don't think they're going to sell out of it, is the Super Star Destroyer for Star Wars Armada. And I really want it. But it's and, and it's at a really good discount, but she brought up a very good point of where will you store it? Because that thing is like 24 inches long. And if you think oh, man, that's going to be hard beat. to store. I know, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I can't, I don't really have a good place to put that. I mean, I have a lot of storage space, but Hang I don't have ceiling? a good. Yeah, I mean, you could. <laughs> I mean, I, there's weird things you could display with it, but then it would be difficult to play with. <laughs> but... <laughs> I don't think I, I would not want to hang a manta from the ceiling because that thing would be heavy as hell. That'd Oof, bring the yeah. ceiling down. But uh, yeah, so it's like I don't know where. Like I said, I besides the the fact that building mantas are somewhat of a nightmare, I don't want to even think about where I try to store it. So, so no, I don't want no 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 manta, which of course means <laughs> that they're going to select me to win a manta. God damn! Thank you, Dennis. Thank you for cursing <laughs> me. You're um, welcome. <sighs> I mean, if I get it for so anyway, free, that... I'll absolutely take it. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, if they give it to me, I'll take it. But I'm going to be like, thanks. That's not what I needed right now. <laughs> but, but yeah. Yeah. So, that, that I'm working on... Yeah. So, I'm working on Bellacore. Um, I, I'm looking to probably pick up a couple of uh, the newer Tau Commanders because I want to build an Enforcer and maybe another Cold Star and magnetize them. So I can change mm-hmm. out some of the options because when I built my Cold Star, you could not customize it, so I didn't. Um, silly me. Um, I know not enough foresight. I, you know, I built it based off of Seventh Edition rules. Who knew? Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I will be working on. But not a Talmanta, no. Not yet. Anyway. I'd stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I've just been, now that I'm, you know, back home from, from the holidays, I've been starting to work on like assembling models that I've had lying around for a little while. I I finished building a bunch of, uh, my black Templar models for, uh, for death watch. Um, because I have decided that if I can't decide what space Marine faction to play, I'll just play them all. (laughs) Um, but uh, yeah, so I've been building that, and then I've got my uh, some Tau stuff. I'm waiting until I get an actual hard copy of the Codex in hand um, before I start building some of the new things that I you know that I that I have. Like I picked up a Storm Surge and a, a Ghost Keel because um, I didn't have those from the last um, few cycles of Tau releases. So yeah um and I will probably pick up a a commander suit at some point because I don't have a cold star built things like that but uh, i I kind of want to get you know get the book before I really kind of decide exactly what what ways I want to take that army well yeah and there's gonna there's so many potential builds with that thing too yeah Let's yeah exactly see. for me then it's um knights. Uh, I mentioned last time that I'm starting to build knights. I have two built. Gonna look to build a couple more and then an armature too. And yeah, it's, it's, it's moving right along. 
I mean, I can complain about, oh my gosh, I, for such a big model, it has so many little parts, like all the handhelds you have to put on top of the Oh, yeah. Carapace yeah, all the little, the little ladder rungs. Yeah, the, that's, 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 that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I worked on today. I'm like, <laughs> this was a lot more little glue drops than I expected. So, <laughs> and also then dropping one of them and having to spend like 10 minutes searching on the floor for it. That was fun, too. <laughs> that, that is the worst. That is the worst. But yes, two of them are pretty much complete. And like I said, I got a couple more to do, which the main one I still have to do is the Eldar one where I use like the Eldar weaponry, which I've already got the Icarus gun and the scatter laser on there to kind of, or the bright lance is stacked as the Icarus gun and the scatter laser to be a heavy stubber type. So, so far, so good. Uh, and I have not had the opportunity to really do anything. Um, I've just kind of been, I, I've been stuck in, in spending like my time playing video games. So <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. And Hey, if you, it, you know, eventually there'll be more 40 K uh, video, related video games coming out, and that will like playing Space Marine Two will count as hobby progress. I think Is that yes. how that works. Sure, <laughs> sure. Why not? Does it have we'll, we'll go with that. Um, giant Nile can be. Oh, oh and uh, like uh, Total War Warhammer Three will be coming out soon. That counts as some sort of hobby progress. I think research. <laughs> yeah, it's research. Ah. <sighs> And that, speaking of, of, of things that are not necessarily 40k, that does bring us to the morale phase. As a continuation of last episode's topic, I mentioned that uh, I was, turned out I was the one host who doesn't have a uh, PlayStation 5 uh, in regards to the upcoming Cyberpunk. Oh, I thought you were going to say a custodes army. And now I also am the one host that does not have a custodes army, and I'm still maintained that streak. Ah, oh, darn. <laughs> I even sent you the custodes they sent me, so... It's a good army. <laughs> but I then mean, I'm just going to add another entry to that list on that page that I'm going to have to add for Evan on the uh, on the website, so I, I don't need that. But, uh, but anyway, um, like, as I was finishing up editing on that episode, I got an email from Sony saying, oh, by the way, you've been randomly selected to be eligible to buy a PS5. Like, we have an allotment coming in, and you've been selected to be eligible to have special access to buy one. And, like, oh, yeah, it'll be the next day at, like, 1 p.m. is when they become available. And I managed to get in. There was, like, a 10-minute queue I had to sit through. So they're kind of doing the queue thing that uh, Games Workshop has adopted for a lot of their up, you know, their big releases, although I imagine Games Workshop probably borrowed it from the video game industry instead. Um, but I got in, and unlike the last time I tried to buy a PS5, I didn't get to the point where I was entering in the payment information in my cart and hitting submit and ended up telling me they were sold out. I actually like got in, paid for it, and got it right away. And because I was a PlayStation Plus member, I got free like one day shipping. So like once they processed the the order, I had it the next day. 
So I have joined the uh, the the cabal of PS5 players. One of us. One of us. Horizon Forbidden West coming out soon. Yes. Oh, I'm so so hyped for that. That's that is the game because uh, if if this hadn't happened, then I would have started really looking in earnest like next week to start like to try to get one at because there's like a local used new and used game store that occasionally has still bundles but they charge slightly higher prices and require you to buy a whole bunch of extra stuff to get it and i would probably have fallen on that grenade if i'd had to to get one but instead i was able to pay retail price directly from the manufacturer so i'll call that a win but yeah, Horizon Zero, or not Zero Dawn. I although I do have the, I can't. I do have like the. They didn't do a PS5 version, but they did do a patch that gives it like way better performance on the PS5. So I've played Zero Dawn on that, and it's beautiful. But I cannot wait for Forbidden West to come out in like two or three weeks. So that that is why I'm glad to have the PS5. But but. Besides the PS5, um, there's been a couple of shows that have they they have come out. They're not done yet. They're they both like one just dropped three episodes, and the other uh, just dropped like it, they've got two episodes left. the The one that just dropped is the Legend of Vox Machina from on Amazon, based off of Critical Role Campaign One. Um, that is stupid fun. That is like. <laughs> Like, and you can tell the moments that were, because apparently this is, Dennis, I think you were saying these are the stories that are based off of when, before they started streaming the campaign. Uh, that's what Tim said, but, or someone else said, but yes. So yeah, because uh, these, because these are the characters from their first campaign, and to put that in perspective, they're on campaign three, and both campaigns one and two, what was streamed, were like over 100 episodes each. So, I mean, these are I, big, long campaigns. I but. truthfully did not get into them until season three, so all this is stuff is brand new to me for the early Yeah, early I mean, same, yeah, same here. It's like, I know of the characters, but it's... But like these are the retellings of things that were happening when it was just their private home game before they got approached to stream it. It is absolutely inappropriate for children in only the best possible ways. <laughs> I mean, there is there is lots of gore, there is lots of swearing, there is nudity. There is some very, very suggestive material. And this is the f- only the first three episodes that dropped. And apparently they're dropping them in like three episode clumps every Friday. But uh, it's fantastic. And you can absolutely tell the moments. Like I was going to say, you can tell the moments where this was the retelling of something on the table. And you know when the role went bad or amazingly good. <laughs> It's a lot of fun if you like D&D at all. Like, even if you're not w- one of the... Like, if you're not a huge Critical Role fan, but you enjoy D&D, you will probably dig this. Uh, the voice acting is fantastic because it's an entire cast. Like, the gamers are all voice actors. Plus, they got an exceptional ancillary cast. <laughs> I mean... 
David Tennant plays a role in a few episodes, and uh, they've got and they've got people they've also brought in as guest stars on other episodes of Critical Role. So, like Carrie Payton, who does a lot of voice acting, uh, plays the king in this, and it's just there's they've got a fantastic cast. They got a, like originally it was just going to be like an animated special and then they had like one of the biggest kickstarters of all time and then amazon approached them like when they were trying to figure like shop it around to get it distributed and they talked to amazon and amazon's like we'll double your money if we can make a whole series out of it <laughs> and they're like and also, they there was an interview with uh, with some of the the people from Critical Role, and one of the things that was very important to them is like when they shopped it around to some of these studios to try to get it distributed, they're like, okay, yeah, but can we tone it down and make it family friendly? And they're like, we could, but then it wouldn't be true to the kind of game we were playing when we were telling this story. And they said Amazon was the only studio who was like, this isn't for kids, right? Because they're like, Amazon was the one studio that kind of understood, like, this is going to be adult animation. And basically said, do what you want to do. We know you'll be successful. You're a huge name. We're we're behind it. So um, as morally questionable as some things Amazon does is – at you know something you know they threw their money behind this uh i know some people who backed the kickstarter were unhappy that it was being released on amazon because they kind of wanted exclusive first run access at it to which they turned around and said okay so if you want to get a free uh free amazon prime account to watch this here's how you sign up for a trial and then you can cancel it when it's over so <laughs> so they, they kind of had their fans backs on that one but and I think fans got like Kickstarter backers got access to the episodes a day early also, which is, which is, I mean, that's something it's not, it's not nothing. Yeah. But no, I, my partner and I have been watching it and it's been a lot, like we fin just finished up episode three cause it just dropped on Friday. So we, we've watched an episode a day and it, it's, it's been a, it's a lot of fun. Um, well, that's good so, to hear because I want to watch it but have not watched it yet. So it's it's on uh, my it, radar. Of it's fun. It it's fun. It's good. Um, I th I think you'll enjoy it. Um, and then uh, the other thing, obviously, that a lot of people have been talking about is the book of Boba Fett on Disney Plus. Yeah, uh, which which has had a mixed reception for sure. Um. There are five. It's only seven episodes long, and five of them have already dropped. Um, it is a continuation of what happened with Boba Fett at the end of Mandalorian season two. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously, I mean, I'm guessing from the sound of it, you are not terribly enthused by it, Kevin. I, uh, here's the thing: I like what the show is. I like where they're taking the show. Uh, I. I I think I have the same response that I had with The Last Jedi, which is a whole other topic, and I don't want to get into that. But um, there was a bunch of people that are like, oh, this is the best thing ever because it's new and revolutionary. And a bunch of other people going, oh, this sucks because it's not like the expanded universe that I read when I was, you know, an edgelord teenager. And I'm sitting here going, I just don't like it because it sucks. Like, it's not 
that the story is bad. I just think they did poorly. Like, I think it's not a very good show. Like, I just don't think it's done very well. I don't mind the story they're telling. I just think that the effects look bad and the pacing's really bad. And having a 65-year-old actor trying to do action winds up having bad choreography. Like, I I don't hate what the show is. I just think it's not as... It, comparing it to The Mandalorian, it's not The Mandalorian. Like, it's not as good a show. And that's fine. Not everything has to be, but... I don't know. I just uh, I have that, no problem with where fine. they, where they like, yeah. <laughs> I have I have enjoyed it. Um, yeah, and I've even enjoyed things that people have not, like the uh, the the uh, like the scooter chase in what was it episode three? Yeah, I know a lot of people. A, a lot of people bad action like, disliked that. It's just a bad it action. Wasn't scene. it? It was wasn't a weird low speed chase through. Yeah, it just. It was just bad. Like it was just bad. It was bad action. It was fine story wise. I didn't hate it. It just was like, like it, the the episode before that, they had this like awesome like train heist thing where like they're using swoop bikes and they're assaulting a train and they're jump and like that was one of the best action scenes they had done like in in the Disney era of Star Wars. And then the next week there was a low speed Vespa chase. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> so basically you're saying that it's inconsistent. <laughs> yes. That's that's really my issue. It's like, no, parts of it have been amazing. Like, the way, like, the story they're telling with, like, Boba Fett's flashbacks to get them up to where the story was at the end of the, man, you know, season two of The Mandalorian, those were great. Why were those flashbacks? Those didn't need to be flashbacks. They've done nothing to inform the story. They just halt the momentum in the episodes. That could yeah. have been the first two episodes. Like it, just, it, they made baffling decisions that I do not understand. <laughs> yeah, I, I can agree with like the pacing part uh, of having the the back to tank dreams. Yeah, flashbacks just be like big chunks of episode interspersed with like what's happening currently when yeah they could have just done those as you know yeah the first two or three episodes so like um screen i think it was screen crush uh, a youtube channel that i watch did did like a really interesting video talking about flashbacks in the book of boba fett and like what flashbacks are supposed to you know how they're supposed to work as an art form how they inform storytelling nothing against flashbacks flashback stories can be very good uh the example that jumps out to anybody that talks about flashbacks in cinema is the godfather part two most of that movie is flashbacks and it's great because the flashbacks inform what's happening in the story you see Michael Corleone have a, you know, encounter something and have him make ha him have to make a decision. And then it flashes back to his father making that same decision and it informs his decision. Like that's good storytelling. You can then like, you know, have these things inform what's going on in the modern story and move the modern story forward. None of the flashbacks did that. They just, well, we're at a point here where we're going to dispense some of the backstory so here's 20 minutes of backstory and then we'll go back to what we were doing before. And it just, it's jarring and weird. And I get why they wanted, they knew 
the cynical aspect of this, they knew that they needed to start the show with Boba Fett climbing out of the Sarlacc pit because it's a Boba Fett show and you have to do that scene. But they also knew that they ended the, you know, season two of the Mandalorian with Boba Fett sitting on the throne at Jabba's palace. So they had to get those two things in the first episode. And I'm like, but, but did you, you didn't need to, you could have trusted your audience that you could get that you'd get there in like two episodes. I don't know. The only thing I know about the show is the meme of the power Rangers. Yeah. That's the low speed chase. Yeah. And it's just, I don't, here's the thing. Cybernetics are obviously a key part of Star Wars. Darth Vader is a cyborg. Luke Skywalker has mechanical hands. Perfectly fine with cybernetics being involved. If you wanted to introduce that street gang, and I and gosh, this is getting into spoilers and stuff, so I, I apologize. But if you wanted to wanted to do like introduce the 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 Power Ranger street gang, which is dismissive of it, I don't actually think they're that bad. But if you wanted to introduce the mod street gang. Set up the flashback of Boba Fett going to the mod parlor first and saving Fennec Shand and getting her modded so that she survives and then introduce the mod gang later in that episode, because then you would have actually set up what you're doing and informed it as opposed to just randomly having them show up in an episode and then later explaining how mods and stuff work. I'm like, it's stuff like that that's just really frustrating. Like, it's not a bad show. And there's two episodes left. It's entirely possible they could pull it out and make the show good. Um, you know, and, and like they, they stick the landing and I look back on it. And I'm like, nope, okay, I had these questions, but the nature of long form storytelling, sure, like it all came together. I'm it I, I want to like the show. I just uh they've made some really weird baffling choices, and I also think it's very obvious from th- certain episodes of this show that they are much better at storytelling things when they're unmoored to previous previous canonical characters. When they have the freedom to just tell the story they want to tell, they're great at it. When they're trying to take existing characters from the original trilogy and flesh them out, they I really see feel like you can see where their constraints come in. And like well, we know that this is what Boba Fett was from this series, so we have to fit into this, we have to do this, and I just, it's, I don't know, it it's very telling, it doesn't, it doesn't seem like they actually want to make a Boba Fett show, but they just kind of felt that, well, we need to because Boba Fett's a character that people like. Well, and it, th- this was always going to be a difficult task to do and not piss somebody off in the fandom, sure. and of course, Disney has shown at least... Like the the Lucasfilm arm of Disney has been very hand shy about that in most cases in recent yeah. years, but it's like Boba Fett was one of those characters that has been portrayed as a total badass, but that badassdom has not been reflected in film, yeah, because of how he goes out in Return of the Jedi, and so you have this task of. You have to, you're, you're trying to tell a story that shows, oh no, he really was a, he really is a badass. He just had basically, you know, if we're talking like role playing wise, he had a bad role. Something bad yeah. happened. And like, we thought he died, but we, he didn't. And so yeah. now we're explaining 
how he didn't die and trying to show him off as being truly badass. But as you said, also Tamara Morrison is in his sixties now and you know, you're trying to pull that off. I appreciate that. Yes, they, they are stuck in some scenarios where it's like, you know, they, they decanonized the extended universe stuff. And I will say that like, I grew up reading the expanded universe novels, you know, in the nineties decanonize them 90% of that stuff was garbage like straight up I read it all but it was mostly garbage like it just you know so I'm fine with that like cleaning that up and saying hey we're just gonna do a whole new you know we're gonna take all that stuff out of canon and we're just gonna tell a new story perfectly fine with that but if you take all of that stuff out of canon then Boba Fett isn't much of a character because he's not like you said he's not in the movies very much his the movie that he's in that he has the most screen time is attack of the clones and that movie's Wait. garbage <laughs> what about <the laughs> and Christmas he's a little special? kid <laughs> and he's a little kid uh no because he has way more uh, screen time in in attack of the clones than he has in the holiday oh, special okay. in the holiday special he actually does cool stuff like the holiday yeah. special is legitimately like the best portrayal of boba fett in any of the films up up until this tv show but like yeah, there's just no, there's not much of a character there when you, he's the one character that really suffers when you pull all of the other expanded universe stuff out because then you're just left with six minutes of screen time and he's just a dude in a cool costume, and like, I get there it was always gonna be tricky. There's always people that are mad because he didn't do the things that he did in the you know the tales of the the bounty hunter novels or he didn't do this and like, I don't want to say that's a dumb criticism because I'm sure like. There's nothing wrong with liking those novels and saying like I want th- this novel on on the you know on screen, but it's kind of a dumb criticism because that's not what they were ever going to do, and like I'm fine with them taking the story in unique and interesting places. I just think they've done it poorly. <laughs> I, I won't argue. Okay, so as somebody who has enjoyed all five episodes uh, that have been out. Although I will, I can totally see the the argument that the the chase in episode three is the pacing is weird, and I I won't argue that the show does have pacing issues. I've enjoyed mm-hmm. it, but I will acknowledge it has pacing I, issues. Absolutely, like my favorite parts of the show up to this point have been the flashbacks. Like the flashbacks are great. I really like how they inform the world. They just don't make sense within the context of the show I'm watching. Like, that's the problem. And, like, there's I, – I definitely don't want to spoil this for anybody, but there is one episode where it is easily the best episode of the show. But I don't know why it's in this show. <laughs> like, yeah, no, I know exactly I, what you're talking about. <laughs> and it, I, I don't know why it's – I don't know why it's in this show. It would be like if I turned on – if I turned on, like, Friends to watch an episode of Friends and got the best episode of The Sopranos. That's awesome. I really like The Sopranos. That is a great show. But I was trying to watch Friends. Like <laughs> <laughs> You're you're not you're not wrong. You're not wrong. But I will I will also say that as somebody who re, like I the the new it's not really an expanded universe, but mm-hmm. I would say the maybe the extended canon because everything is the same level of canonicity now in Star Wars, which yeah. was not the case in the pre-Disney days. 
But now that like all the novels and comics and TV series and movies are an equal level of canonicity, there's things that they have specifically brought in in this series from the comics and from the video games that are really cool to see. And it's like, I see them brought in and I'm like, oh, that's cool. I know. And, and and the way they're using it is not just a, hey, remember this guy? Like, they're not doing a Ready Player mm-hmm. One with it necessarily. Like, the stuff <laughs> they're bringing in, they're actively using. But it's like, oh, man, it's cool to see this in a live action format now. Yeah. So, like, there's parts of that that I really dig. And getting to see more of that in action, I really enjoy and so, as is it fan servicey? Absolutely. Oh, but for sure. it's like, but so is the Mandalorian, and the whole like, concept, yeah, the whole thing is yeah. fan servicey. <laughs> but that said, it's like I think I'm kind of the I'm the target market because I am someone who I am a huge Star Wars fan, but I am also a the kind of Star Wars fan of of especially as I've gotten older of, yeah, this, like, I just enjoy it because it's Star Wars. And I may mm-hmm. figure, I, I may go in and look at the relative quality of it afterwards and decide it was okay. It wasn't, you know, it was great. It was not great. It was good. Um, like, looking back, I really enjoyed, like, when I watched Bad Batch, I really enjoyed it. I still think it's good. But it's not Rebels good. But it's good. Oh, what, what's interesting is, like, I think I was probably less harsh on the series until the last, ep- like, the previous episode that aired right before we recorded this, which is, hands down, the best episode of the series. But I think because that episode is so good compared to the others, it throws everything it laid, else into It contrast. laid out to me all of the other problems with this show that I don't know that I had, like fully internalized until watching that episode. And again, that episode is great. I've watched it like three times already because it's the best episode of the show. But like it laid out the problems that I had with the other episodes because I was like the other episodes have been fun, but, you know, I I would watch them and I'd be excited. You know, Wednesday come around, I'd get off work. I'd go in there and sit like, you know, they don't watch it. And like, oh, that was good. And then not really think about it again until a week later when I'm like, oh yeah, the new episode's on. Whereas that episode like came out on Wednesday and I've watched it three times already. So like it's really good. But it just kind of laid bears to like why I didn't why I haven't connected with the other episodes the same you know the the same way. Yeah, but I, I can see that. Yeah. And I, and I but think the it's show's also- good. I'm enjoying it. It's just it's not it's I wish it's it were not better, great is the big thing. I yeah. just wish it were better. Yeah. <laughs> and, and like I said, I think I think if there were, I think if the pacing issues were a little tighter, um, mm-hmm. like, you know, if the pacing issues were resolved and it, which does cause, because they're the way they're using the, the flashbacks does make the rest of the story disjointed and the flashbacks are definitely not dropped in seamlessly. So d- did, did you ever, cause this is kind of related, it's a little bit of a tangent. Have you ever watched, have, are you a big fan of Arrested Development? Or is anybody no on the okay okay so this is I am not I, I I've watched it <laughs> so Arrested Development is like one of my favorite like sitcoms it is fantastic it's all on Netflix if you get a chance to watch it it's great season four 
they put out on the first season they put out on Netflix came out in like 2015 or something. Because they couldn't get everybody back at the same time, they did it in this weird, disjointed, like, this happens, and then this happens, and it's all kind of unconnected, and it's just kind of loose, like, 10-minute almost skits that are, like, loosely connected that tell a larger story. And, like, most people are like, this isn't very good. I don't know if I like this. Before season five came out, and like in 2019, they re-edited season four and just made it a straight linear story, and it's a thousand times better. I'm like, oh shit, now I understand what's going on. Like, I would love for at some point, like, again, I don't know how Book of Boba Fett's going to wrap up. I would love at some point for like, them to re-edit it and just be like, all right, here's, here's the story in linear order, and it's probably going to be better. <laughs> yeah, I, I actually... Never watched the 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 re-edit of of the that one season of the rest of development. It's so I much need, better. It's I do so need much to go better. back and watch that. Because <laughs> yeah. like watching it and by the time I got to the end, I was like, okay, yeah, I see how this all fits together. But like yeah. to to me it it didn't and I really didn't like follow like the production of it. Or, or anything and really know at, at least at the time that they didn't have everybody together at the same time when they were trying to make it. So mm-hmm. like, it just seemed to me like a, a, a mechanic for them to like take a story that encompassed like five episodes and stretch it out into like more than that. Yeah. Um, well, because I think the re-edit, I, I think the season was originally like 19 episodes and the re-edit's only like 15. So like they do yeah. cut some stuff out and cut out some overlap and stuff. So it is like less, but yeah, it, it's I just mean, one of those things where like I redundant, like little snippets yeah. where one and yeah, it's kind of interesting because with with that season of Arrested Development, like at the time I kind of defended it because I'm like, okay, it's Netflix. You can pull up any episode. They dropped it all at once. You can just watch any episode as it comes along. Like, this all makes sense. This is fine. And it's like, no, it's just confusing. Like, traditional story format exists for a reason. If you're going to break it, have a reason to break it. If you're just doing it because, hey, season one of Westworld was awesome and it had flashbacks, so we're going to put flashbacks in our show, that's not a good enough reason. you got to, like, have a reason for it. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least at this point, we know the flashbacks are done. Because I think they finished those yeah. up with episode four. And yep. as you said, there's still two more episodes. They could absolutely stick the landing. And if I, they stick I, the and landing, I, hope they do. I, yeah. I think it'll, I think if they stick the landing, they absolutely, they'll be fine. Also, let's give it, uh, we have to give a shout out to Bryce Dallas Howard, who uh, directed the, the yep. most recent episode, which was fantastic. And, yeah. She's also directed a number of episodes, like a, at least a couple of episodes of Mandalorian, which were all very good as well. Yeah. Um, if they ever want to give her a Star Wars movie to direct, I think she'll do fantastically. Absolutely. No. It, yeah, she's fantastic. Like the 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 people they've brought on to like write and direct for the show, like that's the other reason why I'm like kind of disappointed of like why the show hasn't been as good is because like John Favreau directed an episode where, you know, Robert Rodriguez has directed, I think two episodes of the season so far. He directed like, the first and the third one. The third yeah. one's the one with the slow speed chase that. Yeah. And it's like, kind of a, this is, 
this is a really good director. Now, he's also a really bad director because he's directed some bad movies. But, like, this is, for the most part, a really good, like, innovative director. And it's disappointing that he that this was the episode. Like, that's part of it is that I'm like, well, I also know, like, who's doing who's doing this. And, like, I expect more. <laughs> uh, maybe that's just me, though. <laughs> Anyway, we'll just hope that it, we'll hope that the episodes six and seven are the payoff that that will turn this around and, and kind of even out yeah. the quality of it. But I will say, even with the, the the pacing issues, I've I've liked the overall story. I'm intrigued to see where the story goes. So the story itself is good. Yes, so yeah, very much so. And. and so yeah, and so I I am enjoying it, and now that we're fully out of out of the flashbacks and into the resolution, I th- I think it should I hopefully it'll end strong. And speaking of ending strong, it's time to end this episode. So this has been episode two hundred and fifty three of uh, Preferred Enemies. Uh, next episode two hundred fifty four is when we will look at Gene Steeler cults. We'll get back to the regular order of codexes. And but until then, from all of us here at Preferred Enemies, I'm your host Rob, Kevin, Dennis, and Richard. Good night, good gaming, and this may be the greatest good we've gotten so far. Preferred Enemies is an Undergopher Radio production and is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 Unported License. Our theme music is Metal Slug 2 Super Vehicle 001-2, No Need to Reload, originally by Takushi Hayamuda and remixed by Roataka, courtesy of OC Remix. It can be found at ocremix.com.